Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. It's April 3rd, 2022, or 2022, as we like to call it. This is episode 74, and it has something to do with the World Government Summit. We'll get to that in a few minutes. You guys don't know about that because you've been watching the slap herd around the world and every comedian's variation on that whole topic. I mean, it's a sad story in totality for people's attention spans <laughs> in the past week. I mean, when I tuned into Twitter last Sunday or Monday, I guess it was Monday morning, the entire Twitter feed looked like a Twitter thread. It was all just one thing. And I was like, what is going on? What did I miss? And uh, yeah, Will Smith went from pimping to simping in just a few sentences. And um, he kind of sat down like a pimp. He walked back with the swagger. And then now he has uh, had to resign from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I know we're all sad about that. And while that was going on, while you guys were all watching that, the World Government Summit happened, and they were talking about things like something called a new world order. In fact, day one, presentation one, first 10 minutes, new world order. How do we create a new world order? What do you think? What do you think? You, all these sort of things. All of a sudden, they're saying the quiet parts out loud. So, uh, you know, there, there's the... The epidemic of attention span loss from the slap herd around the world. I think you should take some of that attention. If you spent half hour, hour, two hours in the past week looking at Will Smith, ha-has, maybe take an hour or two and dip into the World Government Summit. Now, you need a map to that summit. And thankfully, uh, we're going to have some guests tonight. We had Ryan Christian. Uh, he's scheduled for tonight. He's been scheduled for like a month. But it was his site, The Last American Vagabond, who published uh, Derek Rose's recent article this past week. And it's titled something to the effect of, while you guys are all watching Will Smith, these guys had a world government summit. So uh, Derek has uh, a brilliant article, which I have printed here. We're going to go into uh, a little bit later with him. So the juxtaposition of ha having Ryan already scheduled and having Derek write this article and print it on Ryan's site. We're going to actually have two guests tonight in the lineup. But before we can get to uh, special guests and all the clips from the week and these sort of things. We got to hand it to Maxine Waters. She has finally, last week we had a problem with a Supreme Court justice nominee uh, who couldn't define woman. Maxine Waters has come out to the public and she has defined for us what it means to be tone deaf. We're going to hand it off to Luke Radowski of wearechange.org and bestpoliticaltshirts.com for the kickoff. Let's go to Maxine Waters and her defining tone deaf. <laughs> Nothing is going to happen anymore today. Oh my goodness. Yes, that is U.S. Congressman Maxine Waters telling a bunch of homeless people to go home. I'm, uh, I, that, yeah, yeah. If, if there ever was a more perfect representation of what's going on financially right now, this would be it. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukadowski here of WeAreChange.org. And of course, we have some crazy news to get into. 
as there are reports coming in of some very unconventional warfare in Ukraine. The United States is sending more aid and military equipment to that country, just enough to continue the conflict, as of course there are some crucial details about what's going on here that we will be talking about in this particular broadcast, as well as some uh, very interesting updates surrounding Miss Ghislaine Maxwell. We're going to be talking about that, plus a lot more. But but truly, the, the introduction that I, that I played in the beginning of this video is, is typical to the reaction by many Many people in Congress that are enriching themselves through, of course, insider trading, shady deals, corruption, nepotism, outright theft, all the while the U.S. government is trying to create new laws and edicts that will track any purchase over $600 that you make. All of this as Nancy Pelosi's relatives, along with the relatives of the Biden administration, are getting really juicy, amazing job offers inside of Ukraine. Now, if only we had an open platform where we could discuss these ideas without the fear of censorship, where we could have a national town hall, a real conversation about what's going on, how to fix it, how to make it better, how to make our government more transparent, more accountable, more limited in their abilities to intervene and destroy our lives, but we can't. Why? Well, because a few Silicon Valley tech CEOs with huge conflicts of interest and connections to the government prevent this larger conversation from happening, as admitted by even the former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, that recently went on Twitter unironically and expressed regret at damaging the internet, saying specifically centralizing discovery and identity into corporations really damaged the internet. I realize I'm partly to blame and regret it, end quote. A big admission from Jack Dorsey that looks like he's finally realizing the larger consequences. And even though it's a little too late and we definitely criticized Jack Dorsey on this independent media broadcast, we do have to admit it takes a big man to admit that they were wrong and that this is definitely a step towards the right direction, especially with the conflict for centralization and decentralization still waging, especially in the Bitcoin space. As of course, centralization of the internet has created situations where of course, a lot of people have been censored for telling the truth and uncovering some of the most disgusting elements of our society that have been aided and abetted by the federal government that for over, as documented through many photos, videos, witnesses, whistleblowers, protected Jeffrey Epstein for over 30 years. This as the latest revelation from this story that has never allowed the thousands of children who were hurt here to see any justice was that the Jeffrey Epstein estate was selling his island, Little St. James, which uh, seems also like a larger financial cover-up operation or money laundering scheme as, of course, the two islands that Jeffrey Epstein's estate owns have been bought for approximately 30.5 million dollars but yet they're being sold on the market for 125 million dollars which absolutely makes no sense at all especially in the private island market according to many specialists in this field who are saying that this island is way overpriced which highlights two possibilities here as of course there's a possibility that the Epstein estate does not want to sell the islands maybe someone would connect with it still wants to live there or two they're going to raise the price in order to facilitate some kind of money laundering and larger buy-off that that of course will take american taxpayer dollars and 
put them in the hands of absolute monsters. Which one of those scenarios is true? Who knows? As of course, we still know very little about what was exactly going on here. We found out even less through the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, which of course has a lot of very important documents and evidence sealed from the general public, as the judge said it would be too salacious, too shocking for the general public to understand. I definitely disagree with them, as of course the details here are already atrocious. And sadly, we won't be getting a second Ghislaine Maxwell trial, as of course the latest developments that we got a few hours ago is that a U.S. judge has refused to do a retrial of the Ghislaine Maxwell case, as of course Ghislaine Maxwell has been found guilty for providing services to very rich and powerful customers that haven't been named. How can you be found guilty of providing a service to someone when, of course, the customers aren't even publicly known? How does that make sense? It doesn't. This could be why, of course, there isn't going to be a retrial here, as of course there's a lot of connections to sinister intelligence agencies that are absolutely unaccountable and most likely had an international child trafficking and extortion operation run through, of course, very powerful individuals like Robert Maxwell, who, by the way, was the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, and according to a new documentary called The House of Maxwell, which is being oddly presented on the BBC, is highlighting interviews with intelligence agents all over the world, including KGB agents and British intelligence that are admitting that Robert Maxwell, a very famous, huge media mogul, sort of like the Rupert Murdoch of the UK, worked for both Russian and British intelligence. This, of course, shouldn't surprise you, as Maxwell Epstein had extensive intelligent agency connections, and this is why this story stinks to high heaven. There's also a new victim coming forward, releasing some very crazy revelations. We can't even talk about that. We're going to be talking about that tomorrow on LukeUncensored.com. But what happened on this island is absolutely disgusting. We can't even mention it here. And very interestingly, Disney Cruises also did excursions just a couple feet away from Jeffrey Epstein's island, which is very uh, coincidental, as of course the Disney Corporation is fighting the state of Florida very publicly about a recent law that was passed in the state. This, as Disney, also looks like it has very serious problems dealing with similar behaviors that Jeffrey Epstein was connected to, and as of course the people involved here are not only invading justice, they're also being bought off as we're finding out that Turkish fraudsters are providing close to $1 million as gifts to Prince Andrew, as of course these criminals are rewarded. While here in the United States, we are soon to have the confirmation of the next Supreme Court justice that literally gave extensively very lenient sentences to people who have committed some of the worst atrocities on the face of the world, the same type of atrocities that Mr. Epstein was into, to the point where she even had to apologize to the defendants, to the people hurt in these particular cases, for clearly providing a larger disservice during these very key and boring court proceedings. So yeah, a lot of nastiness and corruption in, of course, our mainline society that we deserve to at least hear about. But sadly, it's becoming more dangerous to even talk about it on big tech social media. But we're still able to do that, mainly because of, of t-shirts. Yes, sounds ridiculous. This is a win-win for everyone because this is how we get supported. We're not, of course, the corporate media that gets supported by the military-industrial complex, like, of course, MSNBC, that has been literally calling for World War III, unabated, on their national, quote, 
news broadcast as they are literally calling for troops on the ground from the United States to come into Ukraine and start the global conflict between East and the West. These kind of ideas are extremely radical. They're extremely dangerous and they go unabated, unquestioned. And of course, the corporate media broadcasts with, of course, these larger messages literally being cheered on by the alleged hosts of these, quote, news organizations. I'm ready to commit at this moment, unlike I was before this day, to put people in direct contact with Russia, to stop Russia. Call it peacekeeping. Call it what you will. We have to do more than provide weapons. And by we, I mean the United States. Yes, we're going to do it as a coalition with lots of other people. But we are the example. So put boots on the ground send weapons directly at Russia. And, uh, you know, some people would say it's a it's a little Orwellian to say it's it's a peacekeeping mission when you're literally starting a war. But that, of course, is the information that the American public is getting through, of course, the corporate media, very dangerous messages. This, as the United States, has been extensively supporting the people of Ukraine and their military as the Department of Defense just announced an additional $300 million in additional military equipment and aid for Ukraine. Some commentators have pointed out that this is just the right of money to ultimately not make that much of a difference on the battlefield except to indefinitely prolong along the war. That's a comment that I think is worth considering. As we've been telling you here on this independent media broadcast from the very beginning of this, that this is going to be a lot longer of a conflict than a lot of people expected it to be. This Kissinger doctrine of limited war, proxy war, is something that, of course, we have been warning about since 2014. It is here. It is ugly. It is devastating. And essentially, in my book, there are absolutely no winners here. There's a lot of horrors and atrocities of war, including the latest allegation of unconventional warfare being used against the Russians as we're getting reports, according to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, that two Russian soldiers have been taken out, 28 have been injured and hospitalized after, quote, being poisoned by pastries offered to them by civilians in Izum. There's other reports of 500 Russian soldiers allegedly being hospitalized after drinking poisoned alcohol. Now, are these reports true? Are they meant to stoke fear in the Russian military? Distrust, as we're also hearing that the Russians are allegedly having a hard time resupplying their troops with the proper gear, food, and gas that they need in order to continue these operations inside of Ukraine. As it looks like from the latest reports that the Ukrainians have been able to take back a whole region inside of Kiev, as there's new videos showing Russian armored vehicles in what is described as a tank graveyard. This, as the Russians have announced that they are going to be pulling back and allegedly not fighting as strong during peace talks, whether that's true or not, it's very difficult to find out, as of course there have been a lot of very conflicting news reports that make it very difficult to truly understand what is really happening on the ground there. But I, I think it's fair to say, especially with the overwhelming amount of evidence, photos and videos of Russian military equipment being taken out, that the Russians are dealing with a significant loss of their forces inside of Ukraine. That is pretty much clear. And there's even photos and videos coming out of inside of Russia of Ukrainian attack helicopters going in to Russian territory and blowing up their fuel depots. Yes, this is a very significant escalation. And according to many, turning the tide of this conflict as 
This battle has already been expanded to two countries right now, and who knows how it will further escalate from here. But the fact that there are strikes made inside of Russia is significant, definitely worth noting, especially when it comes to detailing every aspect of this entire saga that is unfolding right in front of us. This, as according to Peter Hitchens, a lot of this is happening because, the, because quote, the United States wants this conflict to drive Russia back to the Stone Age. And I, I do believe that there are some important elements of Peter Hitchens' opinions here that I think are worth considering. And geopolitically, this is a proxy conflict between the United States and Russia, just like the one that we saw play out inside of Syria. And these two empires are in a conflict with each other, which of course largely is bringing in a bigger question of American hegemony on the world stage, as of course an aggressive American foreign policy has also brought China and Russia together, something of course worth considering geopolitically on the world stage. This as major financial concerns are becoming more evident and transparent. Also, very interestingly, a Ukrainian intelligence agency is claiming that it was China that was responsible for allegedly launching huge cyber attacks on Ukraine's military and nuclear infrastructure, specifically right before the Russians invaded. This is very interesting because China is a country that, that does have good trade relations with Ukraine. Are they secretly helping Russia, especially in the online digital space? Well, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if they are, but it's definitely bewildering because largely they have stayed out of this entire conflict. The United States did warn China to stay out of this conflict. China did publicly say that they're going to retain normal trade with Moscow and they rejected the threats of sanctions against them by the United States. As of course, on the world stage, the situation gets more complicated than ever. This as the deputy prime minister of Poland just announced that that country is, quote, open and ready to host U.S. nuclear weapons on, quote, NATO's eastern flank. And as the rhetoric gets more heated here and involves more countries, as the battlefield keeps expanding, I'm left thinking, holy crap, this is an absolutely idiotic situation, especially if you look at the larger financial consequences because of it. This, as it looks like the Russian ruble has relaunched linked to gold and commodities, questioning, of course, the U.S. petrodollar as the world financial markets have been disrupted by this entire conflict. Major supply lines have been destroyed. The price of energy, the price of food is going to be going up, while, of course, the devastation of war spreads throughout this entire world as already. 4.2 million estimated Ukrainians have now left that country, 90% of them women and children, with, of course, a vast majority of them going to Poland, their neighboring country that has been supporting and helping them out more than ever. Will there be peace from all of this? Will this conflict finally end? Are the Russians getting more desperate by the day? Is there going to be a larger escalation because of this? Well, who in the freaking world knows? But I think it's fair to say that all the ingredients here making this situation that much worse are only being added instead of being reduced. The conversation on the corporate media is absolutely disgusting. We should be talking about diplomacy, de-escalation, trade, smart foreign policy moves that, of course, stop a lot of this madness, help protect the innocent, and all of we got is the corporate media cheerleading for the military-industrial complex for more war, more conflict, more pain, more suffering. And that's why we strive to do the opposite of that here.
And he does a damn good job of it. All right. That's Luke Radowski of wearechange.org. Uh, two of the more remarkable parts in that story. Let's just re- rewind a little bit. He's talking about Robert Maxwell, uh, father of Ghislaine Maxwell. He was not only a spy for British intelligence and Russian intelligence, but also Israeli intelligence. Now, there is the problem because you'd say he got away with it successfully, right? He's a spy for their three different countries. However, he died suspiciously. And when I say suspiciously, like from memory serves, he was on a boat called the Lady Ghislaine, named after his daughter. And he fell overboard, apparently, into the ocean off the coast of Africa. Uh, I don't know if it was Malta or Maldives. It was one of those far out yachty type places. And it was uh, it was uh, it was an accident, I think. So there's a lot of speculation over the years that Robert Maxwell was killed, possibly by one of the three sides he worked for, who found out there was two other sides to his nickel. And uh, yeah, his his daughter then becomes uh, famous and then they deny her the uh, the appeal trial. So it's going to sentencing. Right. Um, this uh, we're going to have uh, I'm going to be on Addy Ad show with Peter uh, on Tuesday. So I can get an update on what's going on with the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. But that's the Robert Maxwell angle. Three different intel agencies. What do you think his daughter was up to? Like that famous photo where she was at the burger place reading the like CIA agent book and stuff like that. I don't know. These people eat their own, though. We saw that the last week with Will Smith. All right. So um, the next point was MSNBC. I wake up today and it's like uh, they want to go to World War Three all of a sudden. World War Three. people who have never fought on a battlefield, people who have no right telling other people what to do, broadcasting out there, uh, <clears throat> makes me uncomfortable that, uh, I don't know, people are calling for World War Three when there's really not, there's no need, back down, back down, we'd all, like, we can all have, like, prosperous lives here if we just tune the tyranny down just a little bit, just a little bit. All right. So next up in tonight's lineup, we're going to go to Christy Lee uh, from Christy Lee Independent Media. We're going to go to her report on uh, weekly report on media malfeasance. And then we'll be back. We'll be right back. Yeah. Something like that. It's because I did that reverse thing earlier. In typical puppet fashion, mainstream media and big tech collude to make sure everyone is distracted by this. Uh Oh, Richard. (laughs) Oh, wow. I'm not saying this was staged, even though it was on a stage and it happened between two actors and Rock kept his hands behind his back and the Oscars were in desperate need of a ratings boost. No, this is clearly real. As PolitiFact points out, it's only pure coincidence this was sponsored by Pfizer, and there is no evidence it has any relation to Pfizer's alopecia drug anticipated to come out next year. But while many remain distracted by all that, I'm still bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, unbalanced, misleading, or just plain false. Here's your media malfeasance for the last week of March. In a remarkable about-face, MSM is now at least acknowledging the authenticity of the Hunter Biden laptop, But we won't forget. They went from this. There's no evidence that Joe Biden actually did anything wrong or did anything to sway things in Hunter Biden's favor. He's denied that his son ever lobbied him for anything. There is nothing, Hunter, there is nothing wrong that Vice President Biden did. Plus calling it Russian disinformation. Uh, Could well be tied to Russian intelligence. Or a conspiracy theory. The whole lock him up 
false conspiracy theories against the Bidens really is stunning. To now the Washington Post and New York Times come out this week confirming the Hunter Biden laptop, only nearly two years too late. It had only been 37 weeks since any of the major networks even uttered the name Hunter Biden. But now... Multiple sources tell CBS News that the federal investigation into Hunter Biden's business practices is broader than previously known. Federal prosecutors are also looking into how Hunter Biden reported money from business deals in China. But while CNN will now acknowledge the laptop from hell, even saying what people were banned from saying just last year. Well, Brianna, this is a very real, very substantial investigation of potentially serious federal crimes. We know the FBI has possession of it and that they believe it is his laptop, that the contents of it are his. The propaganda puppets turned their attention to playing cover for the big guy. It's uh, a not pretty picture, but it's not really uh, of uh, much public import in terms of the policy of the United States. I guess they just won't look at the evidence of entanglement, like intermingled bank accounts with the big guy and his cut of 10%. Play cover all you want, but we will not forget your censorship, demonization, and writing off of this story just before the election. As for the justification of your malfeasance using that signed letter making the Russian disinformation claim, here's just one of them now. Former CIA senior operations officer John Seifer. I take special pride in personally swinging the election away from Trump, Seifer says. I lost the election for Trump, then I feel pretty good about my influence. Now, he says that comment was just sarcasm. NPR remains awfully silent. The taxpayer-funded news outlet had no problem mocking the Hunter Biden story before. Any chance there'll be any accountability now that Representative Matt Gates has entered a copy of the laptop contents into the congressional record? Good thing there are, in fact, copies, since we can't trust our federal agencies. They turned over this laptop to the FBI, and what now you're telling me right here is that as the assistant director of FBI Cyber, you don't know where this is after it was turned over to you three years ago. Yes, sir, that's an accurate statement. Those of us who brought you the story a year and a half ago are still waiting to hear from Leslie Stahl as well. Excuse me, they found the laptop. Leslie, Leslie. What can't be verified? The laptop. Why do you say that? Again, the Washington Post finally got around to analyzing the laptop and say experts confirmed that thousands of emails carry cryptographic signatures attesting to their validity. This after dismissing as fake before the election. WAPO columnist Megan McArdle concedes an actual solution will require the recognition that we in the mainstream media are part of the problem. We are not trusted because we are not entirely trustworthy. And now even MSNBC is forced to admit the tanking approval of the Biden administration. Since the start of his presidency 2021, this number, his approval of Joe Biden on, on the economy, has just ticked down and down and down. This is a new low for him on the economy. Also, you know, it's just a conspiracy theory that those who oppose the parental rights bill in Florida, like Disney, have some secret agenda to indoctrinate our children, right? Our leadership over there has been so welcoming to, like, my, like, not-at-all-secret gay agenda. And that's all the time we have with your media malfeasance for the week. I'm Christy Lee. April 2020. It's just getting crazier and crazier out there each week. All right, so um, we're not going to address that Will Smith thing that everybody's talking about. Maybe at the end of the show, because there were some comedians that stuck up for right to free speech and comedy. 
there were some funny things, but we got serious things that we got to take care of first. Tony, the uh, the show card for tonight is voluminous. We got two guests right now. We got about an hour before uh, our first guest or maybe a little less. Uh, what do you want to throw out there now that we got the uh, the kickoff and uh, the first play on the record here? Where would you like to take it? So, uh, I mean, this week was not this kind of tame. It was a slow news week. It was a really slow news week. Other I mean, than the, the World Government Summit with the New World Order and Correct. them meeting and stuff, you know. Which I have a whole subsection about in the technology, economics, and politics section, which makes up like 10 videos, I believe. Something like that. But All right, so other, let's just dig into that, that because okay, we'd get yeah. that on the record before sure. we talk to the publisher and the writer of uh, the article about this stuff, right? So um, if we could, um, do you have... Um, it was the pre-conference before the conference kicked off because there was a live stream from day one. There's a live stream from day two, but there was that yeah, pre-conference. Yeah. It was like 20 minutes or something. And it was uh, Frederick Kemp from the Atlantic Council. And it was kind of like the framing out of why they have these meetings and these sort of things. Is that anywhere on the show card? Let's see here. You can go to the World Government Summit site. You can see the agenda. You can see what topics were covered. And then you can dig in from there. They got a YouTube channel. They got all these videos posted. So I've been perusing uh, for the past couple of days, several days into what are these people in Dubai meeting about? And uh, what did Klaus Schwab, of course, say there at this meeting? And uh, what is the Atlantic Council? I know these things, but people should ask, what is the Atlantic Council? What's the goal behind this conference, right? Because there's like hosts of the conference. What are they trying to get done? Uh, and then the agenda would allude to some of what they're going to accomplish at that type of conference, right? Um, yeah, out of here. Yeah, I was going to say. And then if you... Uh, LD, just, I'm going to put it into production. I had like 10 videos all under the... It was stuff that uh, the community yeah, has to... The the gist of it is I want to play this like a little bit of this first pre-clip of the conference because we're going to talk to Derek and Ryan about the article from the, the past week. But mm -hmm. Derek actually wrote an article back in November of 2021 that tells us a lot. It's like the pre-conference to this conference. And it was also in Dubai and also had like the World Economic Forum. So the, now we're noticing a pattern, right? So this Atlantic Council, Frederick Kemp kind of uh he used to work for the wall street journal he used to work for cnn he's worked you know so he's an establishment guy and the atlantic council is like uh this above nato kind of representation of power in an international sense in the anglo-american establishment relationship uh about 20 years after the special relationship they came up with the atlantic council all right so let's go ahead to this first clip. sort of reminds me a little bit of the trilateral commission but like in a different sense different working groups bro different got, working you know groups, yeah. they're all doing similar things on similar like topics but different topics that overlap it's like a you bunch got of it things yeah that overlap yep. all right let's check out the other side of the world at the world government summit first the war in ukraine has reawakened europe to the risks of its overdependence on Russian gas and oil, driving a long overdue conversation around the role of energy security within the global energy transition. The agreement this week between the United States and Europe to send an extra 15 BCM of LNG per year to Europe is a first but important step within a wider goal to reduce Europe's dependence uh, on, on, on Russian uh, energy. Second, Europe's energy disruptions have global consequences and send 
a global message. The energy transition isn't a light switch, but will take years to successfully navigate. What's at risk, either by distraction or by destabilization, is the global cohesion necessary to realize the urgency of global climate action and net zero emission world, in a net zero emission world. We opened this year's Atlantic Council Global Energy Forum at a moment when our energy system is confronting concurrent geopolitical, energy security, and climate crises. I can't imagine a better time for us to gather and put our best minds together so that we can better navigate this period of uncertainty. We must avoid letting this crisis force us to choose, force us to choose between energy security and climate action. Our call to action this year at this forum is that we must stand together to avoid that false choice. The demand for leadership has seldom been greater, regardless of whether you come from the east or the west, from the north or the south, whether you're from a re resource-rich country or an energy-poor one. It is with that in mind that I reflect on the lo recent loss of a member of the Atlantic Council family, uh, a member of our International Advisory Board, a personal friend, and a leader, leader whose wisdom would be so valued in Europe and beyond at this time, former Secretary of State uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, the first woman to serve in that position. Her commitment to principle and her relentless focus on building a better future globally should inspire us here. The Atlantic Council also lost former Secretary of State General Colin Powell last year. I always asked him whether he preferred being called Secretary of State or General, and he told me General because that's the one I earned. Uh, uh, and then the year before that, we lost General Brent Scowcroft. So a generation of some of the, uh, the giants of international policy is leaving us at a time when now we must rise and others must rise to fill their, uh, to fill their difficult roles. Fortunately, this is a region where great leadership can be found, such as my partners on this stage and throughout the now six years of this forum. His Excellency Suhail al-Masrui, Minister of Energy and Infrastructure of the United Arab Emirates, and Dr. Sultan al-Jaber, Minister of Industry and Advanced Technology in the United Arab Emirates, the Managing Director and Group CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, Chairman of Mazdar and the United Arab Emirate Special Envoy for Climate Change. Gentlemen, it's been an honor working with you uh, these six years uh, and, uh, and then adding this year as our partner, uh, Minister Omar Al-Alama. Hi, pull it. <clears throat> All right, so that video is there on the World Government Summit YouTube page and, uh, you know, celebration of the warmongers right notice any likenesses Sorry, I mean, I <laughs> you know uh <laughs> madeline you albright so like you, you so know her she's famous for saying that thing about we think it was worth it for the million dead iraqi children and the sanctions right mm -hmm. colin powell he's famous for in this vial there's enough anthrax to kill everyone you know that whole same and the wmds yeah instead of tracking down who sent anthrax to american senators and news agencies instead of tracking down who really did it 
not no Bruce Ivins. Instead of tracking down who really did it, they went and blamed poor Saddam, who they sold that stuff in the eighties. Like Don Rumsfeld, he's he's like signing the check. Like, here's the deal, man. Shaking his hand, CIA and MI6 put Saddam. Like, so if people knew the truth, they would never support a war in Iraq. But if you take away the truth, everyone's like, rah, rah, let's go get them. You know, what was the Joe Rogan joke about, uh, you know, if, uh, if those people were trying to take away your NASCAR, there'd be a thousand bass boats going across the Pacific, like <laughs> get them, you know, that was back in the old, old, <laughs> old 2001 days. Yeah, Joe like... Rogan days when he had that Bush joke where he's like, I think we can go dumber. You know, that whole line, he, yeah, he had I some good stuff back. Bit, back. Yeah. He still does. His, his comedy is good. Uh, one of the best observational comics and relating to culture, uh, you know, that yeah, we I have. agree with that. I agree but those ones from back then in the early 2000s, they're still kind of spot on they're, They ring true today. That's what makes great comedy. Right. Um, so you got these aspects of. You also mentioned Brent Scrocall. Can't forget him. It's national security advisor. Well, yeah, yeah. Scowcroft, I mean, right. like, let's not forget enough, you know, deep state, more deep, and deep deep state, state architects yeah. and servants in Renfields is who he's saying. It's like a model to. for the other two in a way. Well, especially Powell. So he has the front for the Atlantic Council is saying we're having this this world government summit. And it's about what did he call it? The the energy. I thought I just wrote it down. Uh, Global Energy Forum. That's how it starts. Like that's the framing of who's putting on. They're like the sponsors. Global Energy Forum presents World Government Summit, you know. And they're, they're going through and now, uh, so that was a preface to it. So now can we go to day one, scene one, act one, let's just listen to the first 10 minutes of what this conference is all about. And I, I don't know, there's something about seeing a room where everyone's in the same outfit that screams like, I don't know, some sort of indoctrination. It's a four letter word starting with a Don't C, you find it interesting? Before we go there, don't you find it interesting about how it's always about energy? Always about something. They talk about net zero emissions. Is that even possible unless you well, get money is a representation of energy? So it's the money yeah. and the energy yeah. are tied it's together. There's, energy. there's alchemists out there making money out of nothing and chicks Dark are free or something. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just check out World Government Summit because everyone tells you. They'll tell you. They'll tell you because they know they're experts. There is no world new world order and it's a conspiracy theory. And Stop trying to think with your brain, son. That's basically what they tell you when they say that. Stop trying to think. The adults are over here think. Okay, I want you to see, sit in the audience, hear what these people are planning for everyone's future. I, I, you know, they didn't ask us, but they got the plans because they're the smart humans, and we are the, uh, I guess, you know, what is it when you don't have freedom? Slaves, slaves in their situation, in their imagined situations, we would be the slaves, right? All right, let's let's roll it. So it doesn't happen. Yeah, it is starting. Ladies and gentlemen, a very, very good morning on what is the first official day of World Government Summit here at Dubai Expo 2020. I mean, they and call the it World Government. Of this session. It's conspicuous. Are we ready for a new world order? Quiet the organizers here are nothing if not ambitious. This is, I think you will agree, a daunting subject for discussion at just after 9 a.m. on a Wednesday morning here in the relative calm of Expo 2020. But tackle it, we must, because I believe what is clear is that we have hit an inflection point. We are certainly living in a unique age of uncertainty and volatility in global affairs. 
whether you are from the global north or the global south, we have all collectively lived through the twilight zone that was the pandemic and the changes to our social, our digital and our fiscal landscape that COVID-19 wrought. And just as the world re-emerges from the pandemic, we are faced with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which certainly feels like a transformative geopolitical moment. Coming as that does against a backdrop of great power struggles, the emergence of middle powers, of climate crisis, and cybersecurity challenges, the trend lines certainly seem to indicate a world headed in a disorderly direction. Is the US-led multilateral system created post-World War II to manage international relations so that the world would never again see and experience the same chaos and disorder of a world war? Is it anything like fit for purpose? And if not, what is the alternative? That is the purpose of this discussion today, so let's get on with it. His Excellency Anwar bin Mohammed Gargash is the diplomatic advisor to His Highness Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nayan. Fred Kemp is the President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Dr. George Friedman is founder and chairman of Geopolitics Futures. And Dr. Pippa Malmgren is economist and former US presidential advisor. You are well served with my esteemed panel this morning. Will you welcome them, please, to the stage? Excellency, are you ready for a new world order? I think, uh, Becky, the, pro the main problem is uh, if you think of the technology, the technology is 21st century, 22nd uh, century technology. What is happening in AI, what is happening uh, everywhere, really, that will really transform and is transforming our lives and also transforming. Uh, international relations. But I think the, uh, the frame of thinking is still 19th century. I think this is one of the problems that we have in the international system. Where if you look, we are still, it's still about nationalism, it's still about state sovereignty, it's still about use of force or non-use of source, force. And I think this is one of the major, major issues as uh, we try to, uh, to bridge really what is mentally, uh, you know, governing international relations with the 19th century mode of thinking, but at the same time with technology fast, fast ahead of us on the curve. That, I think, will be a major problem. That's a very interesting perspective. Fred Kemp, your assessment. Um, uh, so my mentor on issues of world order is Henry Kissinger, so I'll try to channel him. And forgive me, Dr. Kissinger. But his answer would be, what do you mean no new world order? We have not had a world order yet. Mm. What we've had is we've had a Western order that was imposed on the world. 
And so the first world order in modern times, or somewhat modern times, was four centuries ago with the, with the Treaty of Westphalia, ending a century of conflict, the Thirty Years' War. And it wasn't uh, a great moral thrust. It was just recognizing the world as it was. If you look at what we're trying to create right now, uh, we're, I would say, at an inflection point in history, as important as the end of World War I, where we got the effort at world order tragically wrong, uh, we ended up with millions of dead, the Holocaust, in World War II. After World War II, we got more right than wrong with the creation of the International Liberal Order and the United Nations and the Bretton Woods uh, uh, system and the European Coal and Steel Community, NATO, etc. And then Soviet Union fell. And then the Cold War, uh, we thought it was the end of history. And we thought that everyone could fit into this system that had been created. And it worked for a while, uh, but not everybody came into it. Uh, but China grew. China uh, certainly uh, took uh, full advantage of being part of the global system. Uh, Russia did not. Russia became more of an outlier. And I think where we are now, and this gets to your question, Becky, of a new world order, is uh, it can go in two directions with the war in Ukraine now being a decisive element. Either the jungle is back, as the historian Bob Kagan talks, and, and that we can go into a darker era, um, or we could go into an era because of the advances of science, advances of technology, that could be one of the most prosperous, promising, progressive, enlightened, moderate, modern eras that we've ever faced. Mm -hmm. And I think we're in a moment where that's being decided, and I think the importance of the Ukraine issue is that it's a fulcrum for this, mm -hmm. and how the world manages this and comes out of this is going to have far-reaching consequences that go beyond Ukraine. Thank you. Pippa, the US president, and I steal a line from the Washington <coughs> Post here, their national uh, columnist who is um, a terrific uh, writer. US president has framed the tension of this moment as pitting democracy versus autocracy. That is a controversial position uh, coming as it does um, from the US president. Do you agree? And how does, how does that framing fit into our wider discussion today? Well, I think the word framing is correct. Mm. Uh, I wrote a piece in late October saying we're already in World War III. We are already in conflict that extends so far beyond Ukraine, actually, mm. even within the context of Western Europe. But we've clearly been pretty much at war in space, uh, below the surface of the oceans, submarine warfare between superpowers. Uh, I wouldn't even say that this has been happening for at least four years, and it's spilled over into public view on the ground. Uh, but we don't frame it that way. Uh, also, this idea that it's one kind of uh, political organization system versus another, but really it looks to me like old-fashioned superpower conflicts. Um, where I'm very optimistic, and I agree with you about how to frame the future, what I see as someone involved in technology, someone involved with entrepreneurs and advising governments, I see a future where we genuinely have ubiquity and not scarcity. 
I see a future where the internet is available for free for everyone in the most remote locations on the planet, for example. And that means the location of power is going to shift. And I see, as a person in financial markets, decentralization of power structures everywhere, in finance, in political power. Um, and in fact, this conflict that we're in right now may be the beginning of that shift. I certainly see many people from the industrialized world looking very actively to move to places that they used to consider emerging markets, mm -hmm. uh, to build businesses there, to expand there. So uh, I also think, to finish, this idea that autocracies have an advantage over democracies, I will fight that tooth and nail. I don't think it is correct, and I think our, our view that just because, for example, China had a more autocratic approach made them more successful is unproven by time. And we are going to find the places that allow the entrepreneurial spirit to thrive the most and give the greatest political latitude are the ones that are going to grow the best. Thank you, Pippa. George, your assessment, briefly. Right, I think it. human beings live their lives. You can check out that clip in its entirety. We got the whole thing. There's day one, there's day two. It's like six hours, day one, seven hours, day two. If that's your sort of cup of tea, enjoy it. You know, I wanted to point out that the, the last speaker we heard, she talked about decentralization. First off, we got to bring internet to everybody. And there's, you know, one third of the world's population doesn't have internet. They're not bringing it to liberate people because they ain't using it right now to liberate people. They're censoring people. They're, they're undermining people with it. So when she sees naively, like optimistically, you know, this technology is going to permeate. We're going to get these people to internet and power will decentralize both financially and technologically to these people. No, here's how it's going to work. They're going to decentralize centralized intelligence as far as spy networks and surveillance. And they're going to put it on us, in us, as they've already done on the phones and the computers. They they're going to decentralize centralized oh, intelligence as <laughs> when we get the playback air. All right. So the other aspect is. They're going to decentralize, yes, banking and give internet people. They want to bring the internet and banking to all these people, but that's for tracking. These central bank digital currencies are going to be there to see your whole life's everything. Completely Larry transparent. Fink and Karsten and yeah, Black so she, and, she's and one of those naive, seems to be yeah. well-meaning people who gets up on stage and they're, they're like, we want, we value your perspective, right? But that's not what they're doing in reality. So she well, either they, knows that and doesn't disclose that. Or she doesn't know that and she's up there supporting an agenda and they do they talk more about new world order all through that first presentation because that's well, the title of the presentation she recapitulates kemp's position from kissinger so it's like well the world seems to be this 19th century viewpoint of nation states at war and we need to find a way to transcend that issue and we're going to transcend it through technology right and the big thing she talks about is tech causing a lot of power shifts and the and she immediately goes to the financial sector first she says we're going to internet to everyone which means we're going to track trace and database and it goes vermis likes to say but then we're going to she immediately segues right into financial the financial odds, control. someone like Kemp actually ghost writes for this. And book. then and then she talks about you know autocracy saying? versus democracy. She's like, well, we still need democracy to build up, innovate. Then we'll just take it over and control it in an autocratic form. She didn't say it that way. She sort of built up this whole idea that democracy. She, like, what she you, really means is a, a controlled free market. You think speaking. Kissinger is really right in these books these days when he's got this <laughs> world order book. Do you think maybe Kemp had some input? 
his protege running the Atlantic Council on his behalf. And what is what does Kissinger represent? Not that story. Not that story. Not that story. This story, because the original title of this book was the book that drove Kissinger crazy. I have two copies. And that's the one I used to my first, the very first copy I got the one that drove the book that drove Kissinger crazy. Yes, there is a theme going on there. Might be something about this. Yeah. So uh, World Government Summit, it's a real deal thing. Now, do we have clips that were circulating through other media channels and stuff? Because I saw there was a couple tasty clips. The one of the clips I saw, she said, one of the, one of the panelists said, uh, who I believe was female, but would have to get a biologist to see if she was a woman. Um, she said something to the effect that they were going to create a new financial system, a new accounting system, like all the stuff that we know of today is going out the window because they got tokens and crypto central bank currency ledgers for you to have everything registered with the government so i want to see yeah. like if we can the, find the blockchain is going to be weaponized like the the freedom already that people been, think that, might have been yeah, created to be might have been created that's the thing i've been very skeptical from the very get-go like make your coin if you're doing it but be careful because wait until you see what they have coming there's another thing that kemp said here that i thought was interesting he said the i think well, the if they phrase, didn't say it in 1988's economist that they wanted a central bank digital currency type thing by 2018 you know yeah then they allowed it to seem like it was part of some sort of libertarian movement that's so brilliant actually to make it seem like it's from the ground up some sort of grassroots movement in, in fact, order it to was talk, anything but you know in order to talk about crypto from like 2010 to 2013 2014 i would say great i would love to talk about that topic with you i have some questions can you review this paper and then we'll have something common to talk about and the paper was 1996 mit how to make a mint and it was an NSA crypto, basically, they want this thing and, you know, plans for like a Bitcoin type of currency yeah. before Bitcoin emerged in the market. So I always used to it's say almost like, like LifeLog and Facebook a little bit, a little bit like that. A bit, yeah, Zuckerberg. that's an analogy. Kemp said this phrase, I just have to be in a, you know, into philosophy and teaching logic, end of history. Pretty sure he said this phrase, end of history. Again, we have this idea born out of German idealism which is where we got Prussian education and much of uh, modern philosophy takes its, its sort of calling card from Hegel, this idea that they can control history itself through this di these dialectical processes of manipulating the mind, manipulating markets, manipulating institutions, manipulating nation states by playing them against each other and then bringing in the sort of synthesis they want out of it. And so when he taught, said end of history, I was just like, boom. I mean, this is just, again, a recapitulation of these uh, false philosophies that they're utilizing to uh, create a sort of hegemonic world order. Well, Kemp and his... Uh, oh, he mentioned Kagan too. Yeah, right. yeah Robert so he K. calls him, sure. he's like my good friend, Bob Kagan, who wrote this book, right? right? America and Europe in the New World Order of Paradise and Power. Right. But it's New World Order, Kagan, Neocon, Kagan wife, Victoria Newland, Newland, U.S., you know, honorable ambassador type situation over there since 2014. Now she's doing a different position, but she was one of the, the Newland Pyatt transcripts, plus the Pyatt George Soros meeting notes. Those are actual documents. You can see the notes from them meeting with George Soros about Ukraine and that and putting new people in there. Yes. Yeah. Using yes. his, uh, open founded well i forget what they called it over there but yeah it's the irc or ifc or something that's like it that. yeah yeah so the point is like there's a whole train of of evidence and journalism that's like not done 
like uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have time to write on it. I have time to know about these things and see them and bring them to you when other people write fine articles. Like we're going to get to Derek Rose's next to Strobe Talbot. Yeah. yeah. Strobe Talbot's a real yeah. scholar. So I can say stuff like that. Clinton's buddy. Roommate. I'm not time. I'm, I haven't, you know, I don't have time my day or week to take and orchestrate like those, those condensed articles. That's why when Vedmore or, or bros or yes. someone like you know, yeah. that has one of these things put together, you rely on, on Yes, I do. I do. I, oh, you know, so do I. Yeah, I agree. I'm reading and doing other stuff. I'm putting I'm putting dots together, but I could do better on my production output. But so Kagan, uh, his brother's <clears throat> Frederick Kagan. So he's also a neocon. His dad, uh, Donald, I think, is the Yale history professor. I've taken one of his online class like because they had classes from these places online. You can just take them for free. Take uh, philosophy, history, these types of things from those universities. <clears throat> but um, and this isn't a very long read just boring as hell uh i got some passages here this is funny i was looking up like what's this connection to potentially leo strauss i found this on the carnegie endowment for international peace i am not a straussian at least i don't think i am this is by robert kagan on february 6 2006 Uh, yeah these are all that's a very interesting this whole book Like this whole book is a defense of like NATO, right? That's their thing, right? So the whole NATO and then 9-11 comes along, helps out NATO. America did not change on September 11th. It only became more itself, right? So then he goes on warmongering. Uh, While you do that, I mean, the fact that he mentions that NATO has been a supposedly a success, that's exactly what Kemp was saying there. It's like, we got it wrong during, after World War One, but we got it right a little here, bit after World War II. We got synchronicity, right? Didn't we just hear from a world government conference about Madeleine Albright and Brent Scowcroft, <laughs> right? So from September yeah. 11th to 2022, there's a big arc of uh, of history between what is in this book and what's going today, going on to or that this past week. Yeah, Henry Kissinger, State and National Security Advisor. Okay, this is from DW. page. Where's your page numbers, dude? 94. Henry Kissinger once asked the aging Harry Truman, what he wanted to be remembered for. Truman answered, quote, we completely defeated our enemies and made them surrender. And then we helped them to recover, to become democratic and to rejoin the community of nations. Only America could have done that. Yeah. If only that had really happened, because I, I think <laughs> I think they jacked those countries in reality. You know what I'm saying? And Truman later wrote, that's the idea. Sorry that he history. created the CIA. So that dude didn't know Harry, Harry Truman was a tailor like in Missouri, that dude like to become president, you should follow that guy's rise to power and you'll learn something about the establishment. He might've said something about the Rockefellers one time. Yeah. is interesting character. The S in Harry S Truman stands for S he didn't have a middle name, but they thought he should have at least an S. So that's what it is. There's no middle name. Whereas, uh, that's the reason Joseph why they- R. Biden is Robinette. Robinette, I believe, is the current vice president, current president, former vice president, current president, vice president Biden, his middle name. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, vice back, president, the vice presidents they pick are uh, not of the highest ilk. So. so, the New World Order is a conspiracy theory. You should dismiss it. Definitely don't look at like what the people doing it in like being referenced at this conference at the World Government Summit are up to. Stay in the dark. Do we have another clip? What's what we're looking at? Yeah, we have uh, another eight clips. Well, government's greatest hits. These are what was posted in the production channel, I think a day or two ago, from member, I think the SRW from the Discord chat. She went through and found timestamps she thought were interesting. So, you know, 
it was like the the will smith slap was like that. this tsunami but when it washes back it was world government summit left on the beach so it's been a mixed bag this week yeah anyways um yeah that's been that was a great cover for it sponsored by pfizer not this not not the world i can but the uh the slap heard around the world slap slap was slap yeah yeah, slap heard around the world alopecia heard around the world wonder if they're going to offer us a new pill wait and (laughs) see wait and see not a side effect from the vaccines although you can read my twitter from earlier today and see vares reports where that was one of the symptoms of the vares reports i thought was interesting in in children by the way so might not just be jada it's almost like chemotherapy as an analogy jesus christ yeah which doesn't chemotherapy mutate cells not saying there's a similar mechanism of action just you know i'm just using it analogically only what i can tell you like as a factual origins of what we know today as chemotherapy and allopathic medicine um Cornelius Rhodes, different spelling from Cecil Rhodes, was a chemical warfare expert for the U.S. military, and he had done uh, experiments during, like, uh, I guess the war, and then he took these into, like, post-war society. He took some of these experiments off-site to a place called Puerto Rico, conducted experiments on human beings who did not give informed consent, who were drastically altered by these experiments. And then he was brought into the medical industry and became the founder of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, where they developed chemotherapy. So look into the origins of these things that they're giving us that they call medicines that might kill cancer. Yes, but they also kill individuals. And, you know, they don't uh, count those part of the statistics. They relieved that one out. So it's very well, here's convenient how, I, how they do. Here's how it's I very convenient it. how they do cancer statistics. This is like harsh information for someone who's not familiar with this. So I'm sorry, but here's how it is. If you don't have both sides of the information, you can't make an informed decision. So if you only have the propaganda and you don't actually look at the origins and the concoctions that they're pumping into people, then you're on un- you're an uninformed pawn in their game, and you your health or someone you love they could be adversely affected from those moves. So. If you can see, okay, uh, they developed it back then as chemical weapons, and then they made these things, but somehow it can still be good for you. Good. Now you're making an informed decision. You're using your brain. You got a quantum computer between your ears. It has they don't want you to use specifically. it. Yeah. I mean, it's much more targeted and much more specific. Right. I mean, yeah. I can just it's, show it's you not what quick. it was when initially, but I'm not, not necessarily to support it, but to understand that it's not what, what it was. And I'm not saying like if, yeah. in a certain situation, I like, I, I would yeah. not plan to take something like that, but in any situation, you got to yeah. be open to what's going on. Correct. So, uh, Correct. Cornelius, let's just, do as that. you find that it's an allusion back to what I uh, referenced, uh, in regards to expert lifting during my logic course this past Thursday in regards to, um, uh, Bertrand Russell and what he said about the emergence of scientific societies. This would be the way in which they go about doing it. They would experiment on people. They would be aristocratic. It would manifest in this way because science would be seen as a grand hierarchy where they could create a perfectly controlled system. He sort of lamented it and so thought there needed to be a hedge against it, which the hedge he called democracy. But it, it was necessary, but not sufficient to use his own terminology for it. Right. So it's, it's just a recognition of like how they thought in the 19th and 20th century about science itself, creating this like perf- perfect system um, right. that they can have full and control they have the over. Right to think really those things demonic. back then. You just don't have the right to reach in the future and take away my freedom right now with that stuff. All right. So uh, real quick reference, because I said some stuff and it sounds, Ooh, that sounds impossible. Dusty Rhodes 
worked under Flexner and the Rockefeller University kind of empire of creating allopathic medicine in America. There's two references, Rockefeller Medicine Men by E. Richard Brown and How Big Oil Conquered the World by James Corbett. And you're going to hear about this kind of, he was a believer in institutionalized racism, which allowed him to do those human experiments on Puerto Ricans and developed chemotherapy, worked at he Memorial Sloan. It was really Sloan. part of eugenics. The eugenics right. was so big back then. We and who created Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center? The people bringing you cancer all the time. Well, you know? Yeah, right. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Whether it's and at the pandemic, same time they were doing that, they PCR like Flexner thing. report for medicine is different than the Flexner report for education. The Rockefellers attacked education and and medicine at the same time. At the like same 1920s. time, it was in the rest, right? You got it. Yes. And the references for this come from there's molecular vision of life. Also, Rockefeller Foundation, the rise of new biology by MIT professor, Dr. Lily E. K., who has now passed away. Uh, and yeah, so Memorial Sloan Kettering. Now you got that on the record. Now let's go yeah. back to world government. Let's watch some world government clippage. Back on topic. Not that that di didn't have to do with world government. That's a subsection, a little work group co controlling the medicine and your pain establishment. That's a work group under this world government thing. Let's go back to the top of the, the meta narrative with the uh, creators of the great narrative. Do we want to hear from Klaus? There's about <laughs> four minute his address remotely. Speaking of Klaus, that's going to foreshadow. Yeah, let's go to the Klaus because then I want to come back to Derek's uh, November 2021 article because it's Klaus and the United Arab Emirates uh, in Dubai in this other conference. It's very similar to the one that you just are we're looking at now with the World Government Summit. And that's the one where they started this thing called the Great Narrative. And they tie together. So I wanted to tie hmm. them together. Great narrative at the, for the end of history. I wanted to lay down the groundwork so we could have a really nice conversation with, with Ryan and then with Derek. Maybe a little overlap in between. Thank you, LD. All right, you're welcome. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to participate for the eighth time at this important meeting even if only in a virtual way. I would like to express my high respect to His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum for having taken the initiative for creating such an important global platform for governments shaping the future. I also want to congratulate Dubai for having organized such a successful World Expo despite all the repercussions of the global pandemic. Last November, in partnership with His Excellency Mohammed Al-Gargawi, we brought together 60 top intellectual thinkers here in Dubai. Thank you to His Excellency for enabling this initiative to define a longer-term narrative to make the world more resilient more inclusive and more sustainable. With all the current issues on our agenda, we tend to forget that we are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, which accelerates global change in much more comprehensive and faster ways than the previous three revolutions. I'm proud 
that the government of Dubai has been so foresighted in establishing a center for the fourth industrial revolution in cooperation with the World Economic Forum. The objective is to quickly recognize the potential of new technologies as well as develop the necessary ethical and political frameworks around those new technologies to ensure that those technologies are human-centered and society-oriented. The world has to overcome not only the damage done to our economies and our societies by COVID-19, it also has to confront the repercussions of a dangerous clash between major global powers. History is truly at a turning point. We do not yet know the full extent and the systemic and structural changes which will happen. However, we do know that global energy systems, food systems and supply chains will be deeply affected. In times of crisis, the role of governments is more important and more relevant than ever. What is also needed is a summit like this one to go beyond crisis management and to look into constructive ways we can build our common future. Our futures are intrinsically connected to one another as the profound challenges to mankind such as climate change are globally interconnected and require collaborative responses. In conclusion, and despite all the challenges, we have to uphold our responsibility, which we have towards the next generation, and which we can only fulfill through collaboration on a national and on a global level. I wish you an impactful and successful meeting. I wish you a momentful and impactful meeting. He couldn't say it any creepier at the end. I mean, okay. All right. So first off, Bond villain has done the, the talk seven times before that. He couldn't make it this year because of COVID. He's doing the virtual presentation. I know, Klaus, we've been there. I've done that. But then he's like, uh, the fourth industrial revolution. Like it, when you dig into what he's saying, because what he sounds, what he says sounds, it sounds flowery. It sounds maybe nice. If you don't know the context, I can see how people buy into it. But if you actually read his books and then follow what they're doing, he, he takes it upon himself to be the front man for a whole coterie or maybe even say a cabal of people who are looking to reshape the future in their image. And it doesn't necessarily include all us useless eaters out here who, especially if we're thinking for ourselves, might not be sporting the latest experimental concoction booster, right? They want to create this digital society to get rid of unwanted voices for one to reshape society in their image for number two and number one helps them get to number two. And then they just play God from there. It's pretty much their plan. It's not real deep. It's not, it's not some philosophically uh, understandable type thing other than power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Those people are right next to absolute power. They work for people with absolute power. They work just under those central bankers who are writing checks to whomever they want. Cause there's no penalty. Cause they're charging us 
for the bill. They're charging us with a tab. So uh, do oh, we find I was that- going to say uh, uh, maybe this is Paul Joseph Watson critiquing uh, one of the World Economic Forums. I forget his name. We had JP Sears had him on talking about how they're going to change the, the human person through technology and talking about how they're going to use bread and circuses essentially in the form of drugs and video games to keep people docile. Literally saying this, so maybe we, this two minutes, a two minute clip. I was thinking it might be worth this. Yeah, and then you're I talking also about wanna, the digital control. Yeah, I also of human wanted beings. to squeeze in that clip of uh, the the person talking about them wiping the the banks and creating a new mm. accounting system yeah, on the record yeah, that's good. Uh, before guest time. Let's do I that says, one. For, it doesn't matter. Matt. Do you know uh, which one it is? Otherwise, you can actually, play Joseph actually Watson. play yeah, play Joseph Watson first. So DJW find which one out of this. Was it? Uh... Right, it's like the opening that. scene in Reservoir Dogs. To- Tony was about to say Toby Wong. All right, LD's got it. Saving the day. <laughs> do you Thank tip? You. Do you tip? Yeah, the classic, right? I don't tip. What do you mean, don't tip? Sorry, Reservoir Dogs. That's a classic. <laughs> Historian, professor, and author Yuval Harari is listed as an agenda contributor to the World Economic Forum. He's also cited by virtually every technocrat and elitist worth their soul. They laboriously shower him with praise, heralding him as one of the 21st century's greatest thinkers. So should it concern us that Yuval Harari thinks that most of the population are, quote, hackable animals who need to be kept docile via drugs and video games? Yeah. That might be a worry. And then the big political and economic question of the 21st century will be what do we need humans for? Or at least, what do we need so many humans for? Beyond wage slave migrants to service Harari and his globalist buddies, apparently nothing. At present, the best guess we have is uh, keep them happy with drugs and computer games. And we call this the metaverse. But don't worry, the elite really care about you. I mean, one of their biggest heroes literally said you're all useless eaters, but I'm sure he didn't mean it. Would constitute a new useless class. When I say that these are useless humans... Harari previously stated that voters don't know what's best for them. That the elite will soon be able to hack into people's brains. That there needs to be, quote, an antivirus for the brain to prevent people being infected with fake news. That there is no free will or God, no heaven or hell. And that while the elite themselves will become gods via transhumanism, most of the rest of us will soon, quote, disappear. And to emphasise... This is the guy that the elite thinks is one of the greatest thinkers of the 21st century. But yeah, I'm sure they really have your best interests at heart. And you, useless class. So all that flowery language, you can sort of see behind the veil there what they really think. Um, I think it's... uh... Okay, Rich. Yeah. I was going to say, do you want to go to that clip or do we own uh, Yeah. If we find the clip, I want to get that on the record where they were talking about re- like basically just recreating it. banking. They're like, we have a better idea for banking. And so now we're just going to change everything for the world. And uh, I like to hear it in their words. This is that, don't know if it's the future fits this fit city governance and data. Is that clip? No, it wouldn't be that one. That was a okay. different. That was a different clip. What I'm looking for is something so on I saw, day one live stream or day two. I, I have so many clips yeah it was was an outtake clip that i might have seen on would it be on your uh playlist no it's not it's not but let's go to ryan christian we have a guest i could have seen it on his show i was about to say i probably saw it on ryan's show so he might even know he could answer your question ryan how you doing 
Hey, good. Richard, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing wonderfully well. Do you know the answer to the question about uh, during the World Government Summit this past week, there was a, a video of someone making a comment on how they're going to wipe and like make wipe the banking system and like make a new accounting system with along with a new digital currency. And I wasn't sure if I maybe saw it on one of your live streams or where no, it was. I don't think so, only because my the depth that I have uh, I, I, on the world that meeting comes from Derek's research and his recent article. So he might be the better one to ask on that topic. I haven't dove too deep on on that meeting in general. But All right. good, me. good, because uh, Derek will be here later. I can ask him that. I definitely didn't see it on his show, though. So I'm still I'm trying to help LD in the control room. We'll find that clip out. I can find it later if I have to. So, uh, Ryan, uh, you want to introduce yourself to the audience for those who don't know you? Because I could. The Last American Vagabond. You write, you create, you're a musician, you're a deep guy, but you also have like a staff of writers that do incredible work and you're purveying their highly censored work to the world. You're walking the edge, getting banned and censored places. I don't hear you complain about it. I see you do like consistent, incredible productions of like deep dives that I can only get in like once a week and you're like doing it daily. So uh, as someone who does like the hundred mile marathon, I look at you with the 200 mile marathon under his belt and I think I can go further. Uh, how did you get to do what you do and, and, and why do you do it every day the way that you do it? You know, it's, I think it's something that we all probably have in common in this regard. I think that there is a, a need to cut to, do something that's not being done, you know, and that's kind of a, just a classic human trait, like to fill a need. I mean, that in everything we do, even our markets, our economy, it's all built around the idea of something like that. I think that's what we are doing when your show, our show, there's people, I don't know if it's the same story for you for how this kind of started, but I just had this feeling before I really even knew what was going on. Right. I mean, I, I remember, as I've said many times on different shows, I remember the time when I first kind of stood back and was like, wait a minute, I'm watching two different mainstream channels and they're telling me that this is fact, excuse me, and this is fact. And they're talking about the same story, but they're saying two different things. And you're going, wait a minute, how is that even possible? Like, you know, the mind that thinks that they're fact, the news is only fact or mainstream media. And so I just kind of had this drive to start doing something, you know, like, well, I want to put my thoughts out there. Like I never thought it would become what it was today. I just started doing something random. Actually, I was on a, a trip with a friend of mine and he started writing a blog which kind of just got, gave me the, the motivation to do that. And it, it started all around cannabis and everything else, but it always centered around trying to poke holes in the lies that were being pushed around primarily cannabis to begin, but then it broadened out into everything, foreign policy. I mean, I think COVID really opened that door for a lot of people. And I think that's bleeding over into the Ukraine manipulations that we're lied to about basically everything. I mean, that's not even really hyperbole today. It's, it's quite incredible, but that's in a nutshell, just, you know, I just have this burning desire to push back against the lies, you know? Well, that's good. Like, uh, I didn't really, before I got into doing some heavy duty, like full-time research, the biggest conspiracy thing I knew about was like JFK, but other word, other, otherwise, like my, my views were pretty much status quo. But then once I started to find some cracks in that pavement and see things growing through, I'm like, what's under the pavement and what, you know, what's the underground history of America, of American education, these sort of things. And, uh, there's so much more under the pavement like the pavements the thin strip on top of the field the whole field's a story and they tell us it's just like this here's the right. cement walk across here don't walk on the grass and you're like the grass is the real story 
which I, is I, a you know call back to how you started there's a cannabis pun for the audience there we yeah, go yeah right there you go I, I mean i keep i keep finding this in everything i'm doing every single story i mean it's never done you know like you know you, I, it, that's the, the thing we should all remember in this is that we never there's always something more to see behind it there's always more to the story you know and and for me let's just take for example ukraine you know i was very well well versed on crimea and and uh, you know, 2014 regime change. And even before that, you know, as much as more than most, I would argue, but not to the depth of some of them out there. But then this kind of started and I was, you know, primed and ready to be like, okay, there's going to be manipulations here. There always are. And the dive into the real background of the Azov battalion and, and the, the fascist build by the CIA from, as my research shows, at least 1948 forward, it just, blew, it, I mean, it sh I shouldn't say it blew my mind. I'm like, well, it's like, I almost expected to find this kind of stuff, but it's like, it, I didn't know that before, you know, and the more you, you kind of blossom this story, it just blows your mind. And then you find one more part of it and it opens up a new story and it ties into the something else. Like, like the, the things that we think we know, like I remember looking into, um, like the world, the first one and two world trade center bombing and, you know, these different stories and, and you find that there's more around there. There's more like MK ultra ties and, you know, these different things that you didn't really pick up on from Corbett's work is where I'm talking, referencing there and just, it never stops. You know, it just keeps, keeps blossoming and it, the lies just get bigger and bigger, you know, and that's what I really want people to see today is that we can't just get comfortable because somebody else gets voted in, you know, it, the lies are going to perpetuate for sure. Yeah. 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 All right. So, uh, your mic's coming in a little high and low, it, like it hasn't got too loud. It's been a little low, but I don't know if zoom's maybe like auto modulating or, or something like that. So I don't usually use zoom. I'll try to say still, uh, yeah, I, did, they, I, did, I was noticing something funny on the settings when I got started. So that makes sense to me, but I'll try to stay still for you. Yeah. I don't think it's a big deal. As long as the audience can hear you. Uh, I'm not, I'm not finicky. And then I wanted to dig into like this Azov battalion. There's a long history goes back to like 1947 ish. Is that what you said? Well, what's interesting is the the history around the CIA's yes. essentially cultivating fascism in Ukraine to be uh, to, in that case, in the beginning, it was to be used against the Soviet Union, where it's the same idea now. But now it's Russia. It's the same. It's the same concept. But the Azov Battalion came into this, as far as I can tell, like the what in, in the context of the CIA manipulating it around 2014, 15, like sure. post regime change. And then they had this operation under Obama where the CIA was sent in both for administration things, but as well as military operations. And that's been admitted by even Western mainstream press, but under the guise of sort of like fighting for freedom as they always try to you know play the game. But the history shows quite clearly that these people were not just that they knew that, not that they were extremists, but that they knew that they were extremists and chose them because they were extremists. And it's important to, to note right there, as I'm really continuing to try to point out nationalism it's not an inherently negative thing or even right. I should, I should even say it's not a negative thing. It's the, the extremist level of anything for that matter, where it becomes negative, like to, mm -hmm. to have pride in your country, whatever that country may be and have meant an idea in that way that maybe people disagree with, but that's not wrong. You know, so yeah, the, I think the it's a natural frame, thing for a lot of people because they're just like the people that they live around. They're proud of their country, yeah, right? They're not choice, seeing right? like the governmental baggage that might come with these sort of things. Um, were you referring to Operation Gladio? I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I was no, like, well, I was what like, I'm actually okay. referring to is it's called Operation Aero, or it, it just says uh, Project Aerodynamic is what it was called. Project Aerodynamic. Maca, uh, Mac, uh, his name was McLeod uh, Lebed, I think, or Mikhaila Lebed. And this is a this is a guy who was a Nazi war criminal. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was arrested for murdering the Polish Polish uh, Minister of Interior, sentenced to death for it, and, and escaped when when Germany invaded Poland. Now this guy is a an open extremist. He he's the, the, the party, the group he worked with was Ukrainian uh, organization for 
nationalism, I think. I think that's the term. I have to look it up. But this was a group that the CIA chose because of their extremism. They compared it to Italian fascism. The point is they, they picked him because of this. And that was uh, the, the 1948 beginning of this sort of, or technically that was 1953 when the, when the project began, but 48 was when they began cultivating this group. And I think I, I see a document come up there that might be. Yeah, I was just thinking because the overlay would be like right around that same time, Operation Gladio was like MI6 and CIA having all these stay behind forces to battle communism. And they would have armed groups like that. And then oh, the yeah. other reference I had for you was this, and we can go to whatever Tony or LD have. Uh, the Belarus secret. And this is where, let me get it smaller. This is where CIA and MI6 took all these Nazis mm. and then they smuggled them to the United States and in and, and Europe uh, and England as well. But this Belarus is right next to Ukraine and these Belarusian Nazis were moved slightly outside of where they were. And it's a whole interesting story. This is by the uh, attorney, John Loftus, who used to work for the uh the department of justice and he wrote several other books but this one in particular it, he didn't talk about i don't think he talked about gladio in here because this was written in like 1982 gladio doesn't even come out to the public till 1991 around there so um but it's like the proto if you didn't know about gladio and you overlaid that you'd say these people were part of that same project so i was wondering right. if this group that is now in power in ukraine if they had been groomed over the past 60 years by uh, covert intelligence forces, weapons smuggling, weapons caches, prep just in case the Russians get uppity, right? Just in case. And that was also tied into the Italian. That's why it's called Gladio, because that's the Italian word for sword. So it was Operation Sword down there, but it really is used to refer to that bigger network right. of uh, espionage and terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it, I mean, it, it might, it could very well be one and the same. Maybe one is un, under the umbrella of the other or, you know, something like that. But at the end of the day, it, I, I would, that would make sense, but it would also make sense that there's just a multitude of projects and operations operating all around MI6, CIA, you know, whatever. For sure. To, but it's the in the event. same kind of template or pattern oh, yeah. of oh, yeah. like their, the archetype. Well, yeah. Let, right. Let's put, it, let's put it this way. It's the yeah. same exact archetype and pattern as everything else they've been doing in any other situation you want to look at. I mean, this is not new. It, it's the same. It goes that's back to the 19th century, the British State Department. Exactly. This Medini, is not even a, yeah. Yeah, this is not even originally American. I mean, this is just, the, yeah. this is manipulation. You know, this is wartime propaganda. You know, we can yes. look at like Bernays Forward and we can definitely see the way that social engineering has become a very focused kind of thing, but it's been around for a long, long time before that. It's, it's quite alarming though. I mean, you can look at, that's why we talk about the new Al-Qaeda. You know, like Whitney coined it as Ukraine, the new Al-Qaeda. My first discussion was sort of like, this is the new Syria. And it's the same conversation. You know, it's like they're using the same template right in front of us. It's, it's incredible. And they continue to do it decade after decade, but like by the time, so like right now they're running stuff that's very similar to things they did in the 1970s with the, uh, the inflation and the oil and stuff like that. But most people who are my age, they, they, they barely remember that. And the kids younger than me, they don't know anything about that to them. They don't see the record replaying and restarting. Right. Right. So it's like, they think on these multi-generational long cycle plans, Right. Like the, what the World Government Forum and the World Economic Forum and these sort of World Government Summit, World Economic Forum, 
what these groups are doing, like the plans were laid down like a hundred years ago and they're still executing on let's drain the wealth out of America through the federal reserve until there's nothing left. And then they switch on digital currency for everybody. And it's a social credit system tied up, you know, See, that's important. It's important for people to recognize. It's not just one thing, right? It's not, it's all about the population or it's all about this, or it's all about that. At the end of the day, there's a multitude of, of agendas. And I was actually run, making a running list when COVID started about all the different so-called conspiracy theories that were being like driven in because of it. And I just stopped doing it. I'm like, let's just call it every. <laughs> Everything. It's it's like a one. It's total game. warfare. It's total Seriously. warfare. Every every possible angle they are attacking for food, water, uh, our ability to provide for ourselves in the form of uh, what you know our productive labor. Um, I think it was Engdahl who said COVID, he, he coined it because his book was called Full Spectrum Dominance. William Engdahl. Mm -hmm. That I think it was him. I'm not. Sure. Book, I know the title. I'm not. I'm not, not sure if the name is correct. I don't know, but the, the title I recognize. Yeah. I mean, just that, that idea of, of like, there's a spectrum and they're hitting you on all, every area at the yep. same time. And uh, well, they, yeah. they know that creates a level of psychosis. I mean, this is like documented research, exactly. right? I mean, it's like it puts you in a position where you're so completely unsure of almost any, you know, I always reference specifically uh, a brave new world. It's there's a little bit of a different context in that compared to the others where, you know, it's kind of it's like engineered apathy as opposed mm -hmm. to fear and, you know, like being aware that you'll be certain. It's like you don't even care, you know, take your pill, sit back and just check out. That's like the McDonald's Walmart kind of scenario that I always point out. And it's very real. I agree. I yeah, unfortunately the, think it's more of a model for what is happening and is to come. Yeah, well, we the bread and circus further. model's not broken, Tony. You don't want to fix it, you know? That's right. <laughs> Right. Why reinvent the wheel? They're like, just add to it. Just add to yeah. it. <laughs> Some technology on top of it will be good, right? Yeah, that's so, the thing. Like, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask, like, what's your workflow to get prepped and do a show like you do as regularly as you do? You got to have some process. You got to have some discipline in order to achieve the consistency that you do. And these yeah. things are noticeable from a producer's perspective. So I wanted to inquire, like, what's your process? How do you, how does a Ryan Christian uh prepare for these epic long form solo dude you're doing it you're doing it live in the in the true style no excuses like you, right. you get it done and then you had that round table the other day that was really interesting too oh, so you, you mix up you. your format right mm -hmm. it's not always like just the daily rundown which is super useful by the way yeah. uh but you know you have an interesting coterie of friends with whom you work you're kind of like living the dream you're writing your own script in life. This is not something that you really trained from, you know, young, young age being groomed to like do this thing. You figured out this stuff on your own. You had to be, uh, you know, self-reliant and you had to have some self-confidence. And I think also where you lacked any of these things, you had that burning desire to be like, you know what? People deserve a better perspective or a better option for choice because these people are being lied to. So yeah. like, how's it work for you? Well, the, I don't want to forget to address the process. Oh, I think that's an interesting question. Happy birthday. I, I meant to oh, say you. yesterday and I, I noticed that you were on the schedule for the day after I was like, I wrote a note. I'm like, say happy birthday. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How old are you? Well, uh, 30, 39, 39. Woo. I remember 39. Yeah. <laughs> did you do anything? Did you do anything fun? No, I'm weird about my birthday. I don't know why it's, it's not even about age for me. I don't, I honestly, like don't, I, I wouldn't have remembered my number if someone had brought it up and I'm actually was hoping to tell people like, don't say the number. Cause I can't even remember what it is. And somebody said, it, I was like, damn it. But I'm uh, the same it, way. Yeah. So 80, 1983 the number, it doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, how, at some point down the line, you're going to be like, what is it? My 60, 70. It's like, who cares? It doesn't even matter. <laughs> Do I have right. the senior citizen discount yet? So where were you born? 1980, <laughs> 1983. 
83, correct. 83. All right, good. I was born in 73. That's how I calculated math in, in a real time live stream. Otherwise I wouldn't attempt it. <laughs> it. It usually turns disastrous, but I was like, I could do that. Um, 1983, I was in third grade. You got to grow up in a good age of music because you missed the yeah. early 80s stuff, you know, and by the time have, I also have my dad and my, and my and my late grandfather, a huge influence, you know, a lot of Beach Boys and, and you know, 60s era music and different stuff that I really kind of absorbed. And really, that was my focal point of music when I was in like high school. So I was more of like the weird one that was, you know, from a different, you know, play, all, playing all the Bob Marley and different stuff like that, that people thought was weird. And, you know, but then you broaden out into it. And I, I, you're right. I think it was a really great. I actually feel like it was sort of like the end of the last like rock stars, like real rock stars. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, I agree. We, we've all seen it and we know it because we've Especially seen COVID. what came afterwards. Yeah. I did Don't get to see COVID, like rage with the machine and all these horrible people that just went the other direction. It's like anti-establishment unless we're scared about flu or whatever. It's like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to talk music sometime. I got to uh, I got to yeah. see Brian Wilson play Pet Sounds album from the first row at like bb king in new york nice. little little theater and he wasn't too with it anymore mm. but to be able to hear like uh, you know i grew up my my dad uh usually had control of the radio so i grew up and i know all the 50s and 60s songs all the way through the 70s so i know yeah. a lot of decades before i was born you seem to also have that that added element because it helps you to bond with older people people yeah. older than us and if you can talk music it's a place where you can start to uh open communications so well, like yeah. And, and I think it also, it, it helps you. I mean, I, I, I hate to bring it to the negative because I definitely think that music and any kind of media at some level is used to manipulate people, you know, the way you think, the way you perceive things. And so I think it's a different era of music. You know, it's like, it's kind of, I look at it like if you're watching only TV and stuff from like 20 years ago, you're not really being manipulated by the way they want you to today. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like a different kind of mindset. And so it, it's counterintuitive in a way to the propaganda. So maybe it's just the way I look at it. All right. So let's go back to your process. Do you mm -hmm. listen to music while you prepare for a show? What do you do? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Well, I'm laughing about that. I, I, it might be more surprising for you to know that it's a little less organized than you might think. I mean, it's more kind of fly by the seat of my pants in a lot of ways, but I'm, I'm, I'm meticulous about a lot of others. So I do know what you mean. Like it has to be, if you're going to manage all this information, but the hard part for me to, to start in the middle of this is that it's, it's a, a daily thing or a, often every other day based on other things, interviews and stuff but it's a lot of information, you know? So it's like, it started out for me as a, you know, trying to make it like a quick thing. I mean, I still use the word concise to be quite honest, just to piss people off that can complain about the fact that it's a long show, but concise technically doesn't mean short. Let's just put that out there. It means a lot of information in a short period of time. And I'm, I'm talking about like three days of information in three hours. I think that's technically concise, but different point. But I feel like it takes a lot to manage all this together and get it in a way that kind of coordinates. And if I were to try to plan it, it would be impossible. I mean, I used to do that in a way and I would sort of have things written out when I was a little more nervous. And I also think it's funny if you go back and look at the very first thing I did. I, well, I don't think it's around anymore since YouTube censored it all, but it was pretty clunky. For those out there that want to get started, I mean, it's, you just got to get it going, man. It's embarrassing. It's weird. And you just got to get through it. I'm all tight and, and the, the shot's like right here. And I'm all, you know, it's like, it's just funny. But it, and I just kept going, like you said, just kept pushing. I want to make this work. But for me, it starts where I sort of like I, anything I think is important, I send to myself, you know, throughout the day when I'm not working, I just get people send me stuff. And I really took a page out of the book of James Corbett. I mean, I, I really he's one of my largest influences that, you know, it's about open source. Anybody that wants to send me stuff, they send me stuff and I try to shout them out when I can, but it gets impossible after a while. And I just build it all up. 
And then when I'm ready to do the show, I pretty much sit down and I open up most of what I have and I go and I basically go through it tab by tab and I just kind of, okay, that's one thing. And I, that's, oh yeah, I want to talk about that. And, and I take it tab by tab and I pull it in and then I go, oh, that goes with this and this organizes here. And, you know, and it, it just, it organically becomes a show. And so it, it starts with what I think is important, regardless of where it ties in. But often enough, I have to like chop off half the show and be like, well, I'll talk about COVID tomorrow. And, you know, and then, then I've got these multiple windows open with different things. And I, I close them before I go live. People that freak out about how many tabs are open. But <laughs> that's, I really that's love like, seeing the tabs at the top, actually, because yeah. I, I, I can relate to that. Well, it, makes, it stresses people out. I actually get it. It gives people anxiety when they're like, oh, my God, there's too many tabs. open." <laughs> yeah, everyone's got a limit. And then that limit seems to creep on you. I used to limit myself to like just 20 tabs open. No, it's not. Now it might be like 50 tabs open. I would do I cut, 50 I tabs back, a day just to do I the show. I cut back from 75. Yeah. No, I open stuff and close it as fast as I can. So I those are like 50 to do's up on my screen to me because some of these tabs have been open for a, a little bit. You know, See, that's the hard uh, part. I stick myself into it. I'm like, I, I'm just like, I'm the same way. I'll have, man, that's been open for like a but week. But you have a way to clear yours every couple days, right? Well, but, I, but I don't Because you can. That's the hard part. And I yeah. think it's a lot of pressure when you're like, I've got this whole block of stuff that I want to get to, but it's before not before you pressing. forget. Yeah. Well, like, let's say it doesn't connect to like the, the day to day stuff, right? It's yeah. like this in-depth discussion of like nanotechnology. I'm like, where do I, where do I shoehorn that in? If I already have like a three hour show, like, and that's the hard part for me is that I'm constantly, people don't know this, but it, it stresses me out. Like, I don't want it to be too long for people as much as at the same time, I'm constantly battling my own neurosis and my own, like, I can't not talk about that. And so it's like this game of, of, of balancing it every single day, you know, and it's like, that's the process, you know, it's just about, and then and, and to your other point, you know, I don't really do much else to be quite honest, you know, since this really started, it just took, it just consumed everything. And I allowed that knowing it was happening because this is important. I don't plan well, to do this at this level forever. You know, like I need to have a life and a wife and a child, you know, family, <laughs> you know, but it's like, but right now you're in the race and yeah. you're running it. So what if you took a look at that concept of it being too long and saying, what's a healthy amount of my, of my time to invest into this activity and let that be the length of it. Cause if you yep. want to go six or eight hours and you can, that's a good workout. And it's hard for me though. That, that, that speaks to the part of me that's not I know. organized, right? Because yeah, I can't, yeah, yeah. I just like, I'll set my time and I'll be like, what am I on? I'm like two hours. Past but if you had different late. windows of activity, like one is you going through the tabs, one might be you going in and like looking stuff up and, and give us a glimpse into like a research part or you like starting to make a post or writing a blog on it. Right. Um, I used to do that. It was called research and review, but the problem was it became its own show. And yeah. I wouldn't, re I wouldn't go over it again because my two, my audience was there and they watched it all. And it's like, why am yeah. I going to do the show again? Yeah. It's redundant. It's okay. A good idea. It's a good idea. All right. Yeah. I was just trying to, I was just trying to think, cause it's like, um, had I considered what people would tolerate or consider too long. I, I mean, I've made in the past since, since 2006, like I started making podcasts in 2006. So within the first couple of years, I had a couple that were like probably, 12 hours or something Ooh. like that. Right now that's not me oh. talking. It's me taking a subject, finding the best information that represents it, cutting samples out of it, making an intro, doing a monologue to explain it, and then giving you all the source material mm. that takes 12 hours. So it might take you like three hours to get the gist. And then if you listen to the full content where all those samples came from, that's what the whole 12 hours would be by the you, time you I mean 12 hours prep to make the show. No, no. 12 hour episode. So the show is 12 hours long. Oh yeah. And I wow, have, that's, uh, that's, that was nine 11 synchronicity. And by the time I did my peace revolution podcast, Tony, uh, there were several of those episodes that were 20 hours because mm -hmm. it would be like, 
JFK's 50th anniversary. Here's every piece of evidence you've never heard on this topic. And we put it into a time capsule for the future. So like the first three hours, you can get the gist, but it just makes you want to hear. Let me hear that whole Jim Garrison thing or whatever the situation was. Well, you you cut it together to make it intelligible. So it's you you call it an interactive classroom. So it's interactive education where the people can sort of dive in at different points and you'll get the the full context of what's going on. So there's a lot of like pre-production that goes into it that we have to edit it. We have to listen to all of these things, find the relevant timestamps, then put them together in a way that makes it understandable. So we're not just playing like disparate clips that have just been thrown together that make no sense. Yeah, and yeah. That's so these are of, like pieces yeah, it's, of it's art stuff, that yeah. I made. So, and and Tony was here for part of it, so he saw the process. I helped do some of them. I, I definitely think art is the right word for that. I mean, that must take yeah. weeks, weeks. Oh, right? it take like a month per episode, yeah. you know, wow. to because you got to find the source material, listen to it, then decide if it's good enough. So I'd start with a hundred hours and shrink it down to okay, here's the best twenty out of all that and how to orchestrate it. Well, but the same weeks, way you do the would, tabs, yeah. you know, as far as arrange, like this ties into this. Once you get yourself in touch with like, these are the artifacts and source materials on any right. given topic. And you start to be like, how would I present these? Well, this one at the end, the guy says this, and that ties yeah. into what this it's organic. Right. And you're the brain, you're the quantum computer processing that. That's why I always described it as art with a practical application of knowledge, you know, but right. That's a good way to put that it. took I mean, a lot of effort. And now we do this, which is my hobby time during the week. It's like six or seven hours and it's fly by the seat of our pants. I don't I even have it. the show card for the past two weeks in front of me. I and it. um, yeah, it's, it's a little more similar to what you're doing, but you do yours more often and you have less people involved and the topics are like deep diverier than what we yeah, get that, that's into here. That's one thing that people don't, don't really realize it, it's literally just me. I mean, there's a, there's a, there is a, 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 you know, a T lab group team that, you know, that are, that are doing, this is why I'm, I'm really proud about the way that I've grown this. I, and I think that everybody that I brought on the reason that they continue to stick around is because I don't know anybody else that allows writers or anybody else involved to, you know, I mean, it's, it's ultimately my call at the end of the day, whether the stuff goes up on T lab, but I don't, I don't reach out and be like, cover the story or they send me something. And I'm like, I'm going to enter in these paragraphs and do this thing. I, I tell, I make a point to be like, look, I want you to cover what you are passionate about because just like music, as you guys know, when people actually care and believe what they're singing and writing about, you feel that. So if, if they're just covering something because I told them to, it's not the same thing as them being like really pat. Like you read Derek's articles, you feel it. You read Whitney's articles, they care about this stuff, you know? And, and at the same time, they don't have to worry that I'm going to be like, no, tweak this or take that back. You know, even if I disagree with something, which happens, I'm like, well, I would write that differently, or I actually feel they did this. It's not, it's not that we need to realize that it's not that, you know, T Lab has one opinion. You know, there's all sorts of multifaceted ideas coming out of it. If you read some of the older stuff that's on the website, it'd probably blow people's mind because it's, we've evolved quite a bit, you know, but I think that's super important. You know, we got to have that. It's funny because I think they have a special feature on Twitter for, uh, like, if I ever mentioned T Lab in a tweet or uh, you're all dunces or D Bros Live. When I go to tweet it, it says, oops, something went yes. wrong. You have to try I'm again. Glad you said that. Everybody then, keeps telling me that. But if I go to, so the first time I did it, I tried to do it again. They're like, you already posted that post. And they're right. like, right. And so then I, this time when it happened, because I tweeted earlier today, I went to my profile and it did post. It just mm-hmm. tells me. It's just like a little warning. Like you're a little close to the line posting that on our platform. <laughs> Every single thing I post does that on Twitter. Every single thing I post does that. It says, ooh, it says error. And then you go, oh, where did you already posted yeah, it. Yeah. And then I look and it's there. And I'm like, what a weird process. Like, I wonder what that is. You know, like, yeah. and it's all, and everyone tells me that they post a T-Lab link. It does the same thing. You know, it's like the I, DMZ between North and South Korea. <laughs> you're in that zone. That's how, yeah. this, you know, <laughs> you're, you're right. close. 
<laughs> it goes. I think they, they want you to feel like, yeah, like we're walking on eggshells. Like maybe I won't I'll self-censor because they're just about to, this is why I really want people to in, lean into the whole, if you don't care about their censorship, it's, it's not important. And the only reason the, the people are afraid to lose their connection. If you build your network outside of their platform, you can't be censored. I mean, I, I know people, there's a little bit more work involved, but I've been, I, I proved this with YouTube. I might view my videos getting two, 3000 views, a, 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 a video, regardless of what channel I put them on. And these are channels with like 46 subscribers. I've got like right now, like 40 plus different Chilu, uh, pirate channels right now that people send me and I use. And so if you can get the views, if you can reach people because they just know how to connect, they, they, they go to my discord and I post the thing before I go live and they go to the channel if they want to use YouTube, which I asked them not to. But if you don't but care, but they about do it, anyway. Sometimes we're broadcasting yeah. right now on Jules Kroll. He loaned us his channel for tonight. He's a pirate channel. We had Felix Rodriguez. We had to thank you. We had to thank you, Ryan. We, we have took to that thank you yeah. from you. Yeah, we're like, yeah. oh yeah, this is a great. Corbett idea. said it, but you yeah. did it, and we're like, yeah, we're doing <laughs> that too. I love it. I swear, to, I swear to you, I feel it. I know it by their actions and by the stuff that's happening. They don't. They. I mean, obviously, at some small level, somebody's irritated that's happening because we're circumventing their control. But this, I think, it's bigger than that. I've seen things happen where I'm like, okay, this is on their radar. They're aware this is happening, and they're aware that it's kind of bleeding out to where it's like. If nobody cares anymore, then we can't control this. It's kind of losing control. I'm starting to do it on Facebook and Twitter, and it's it's working to a degree. But I'm hoping people. I'm glad you're doing that, man. Awesome, makes me happy. Yeah, and the, the other part I want to touch on is the censorship. Now they're trying to deep six everything right now. It's like Stalin, airbrushing people. Out. You know, yeah. this is a a time in history. So we didn't inherit like a clean history of what's going on. And part of what I've tried to do since 2006 is give people like the history behind the things that are going on especially like this book, but the, and give a better sense of history to the people who come after us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think right. what you do is a huge contribution to that. And it needs to be archived Thank in you. an indelible way that anyone with access to the internet from here on forward should like have access to that, which exists, that, which you created. Yeah. Now you got people recently, it's like Chris, Chris Hedges, he, all his stuff got deep six. He lost all these interviews and Edward Snowden because of the RT thing and all this sort of thing. It's like, well, this has been going know. on for years. Yeah, it, you know, He's just the latest casualty. Right. Lee Camp's going to be uh, on the show next week. He's the latest casualty of these things. But it's like people like you were really early casualties because you were so close to the truth that they didn't want getting out there. These other sources that are kind of like more progressive, they were allowed to exist longer, but people like yourself, they, they got to take you off the field early because you can't watch one of your, your, your briefings and not come away from the sense of, gee, the TV is really lying to me. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Cause they're yeah. like, what you're talking about is things that are published on the internet that people can then click in the links and see for themselves right. if they want to use their quantum computer right between their ears and start thinking about these things. And you set a good example of doing that, but in this face of censorship and needing to have your own platform, but well, what if you have your own platform and it's on WordPress and WordPress doesn't like what you're saying and all these other things. And then the next thing they're going to do is take away the name address and right. we don't know each other's IP addresses to resolve and we can't communicate. Right. So there are technologies and platforms are kind of like research and development right now. But as far as getting your content and Corbett's content, and these other type of important contents, the indelible internet where it can go up and it's there forever and it can't be taken down that defeats that really pokes a hole in that big balloon of censorship that they're, you know, yeah. trying to use. I agree. Well, this is why we need new, new directions. I mean, it, whether we're talking blockchain or even different technology than that, like the idea of a decentralized internet is something that I think is really important. And I, 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 the sad thing is that there's been a 
weird counter push, which, you know, I would even be willing to say that, you know, maybe they're right. I, I, I don't, I, I'm open to both arguments around this, but that, that there's just been like this weird kind of counter push around utilizing these technologies at a time when it's obvious they're going to be used against us, right? Like the central, mm. central, the, the government, central currencies, uh, what's the like, CBDC, like, yeah. central thank bank you, digital currencies. Yeah. 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 And, and we all see it. It's obvious blockchain and these technologies, it's just like the analogies, like the internet, right? It's clear. The internet did not end up the way that they wanted it to right? this. And this is the history. It's not a conspiracy theory. You can look up what it's a DARPA project. I guarantee it was not built for us to freely speak to each other. Like technically, 60s, it was technically yeah. it was our naval intelligence where they added the D. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so the so the point is that this now we're at a point where we have to think about how we can utilize these things, because, like, for instance, if we just kind of aggressively pushed back from all technology, which my gut is like, I'm like, want an older car. I don't want a smart TV. I don't want to go any of that stuff. I'm with you. But if we all just break away from it right now they're going to keep building it and we're going to be screwed and we're not going to have any way to get, you know, communicate and go around. Yeah. It. The Amish ain't conquering. They're cool yeah, and all, yeah, that's a good way you know, <laughs> but seriously. So I think it's important that we at least begin to like, look into ways that this stuff can be pushed back against, you know, the DC, uh, hollow chain is one that I've followed for a while. I haven't been looking into it for a while. It's another, you know, blockchain. It's not blockchain actually, but it's a, crypto you know discussion for decentralized internet but i know there's a lot of different things out there that could work and they're pushing back against it you know i think the whole point about the great reset and where all this is going and it's just it's one large but one facet of everything that's happening is it's the technological control i mean Catherine austin fitz will point will, would argue it's much more about the financial control and it's a like a way to build the infrastructure which i agree with but all the technology is leading in this direction you know everything they want to remove your anonymity they want to remove your ability to have a vpn to be able to you know everything they're doing right now you try to w access a main website right now if you have a vpn most of them won't even let you look at the website like why does it even make sense they're not they're, they, they they want to track you they want to know what you're doing what you're reading what you're thinking it's, it's an alarming time. And this is, it's always been there, but I think people are just finally starting to see what a lot of these conspiracy theorists have been waving their arms about for, you know, look at how long Corbett's been talking about this stuff. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah. This 2009 video archives, which when he was on the show, I'm like, I have that old DVD. I mean, that's how far, I mean, it goes back even further than that. But yeah. I think the idea here is you have to repurpose the technology because the technology is being sort of rolled out in order to control and enslave us. But we have to find a way to sort of take that energy and sort of transform and transmute it yeah. so we can use it in a way that per participates more in freedom and, you know, galvanizing our own sort of communities to take action that, you yeah. know, around those concepts. So it's, it's yeah. difficult, but that's because to your point, yes, it's, it was about digital, um, financial control and it still is, but yeah, they want control as Patrick, we had Patrick Wood on a couple weeks ago and he's talking about, but it's really about technocracy now. It's about transhumanism. Right. That's it's really the end game. Because it's one and the same. Yeah, first, it was about financial control because they thought this controlling markets could control the human being, which to some degree does. But now that with the level of technology and the advancement in technology and the pace at which technology is advancing, you're realizing, well, now we want granular control. We want to be able to control the human mind, body, soul complex completely. Mm. And that's, you know, it's, it's devastating. But at the same time, I think it gives us the opportunity to maybe find ways to, I don't know, uh, get, use their own technologies, their own concepts against themselves in some capacity. I hope so, at least, because yeah. like we're not going to we still have to participate in the technology because the culture at large is doing so. And that supply chains and our ability to even provide for ourselves like we're embedded in this. We have to find a way to sort of sort of deflect and push back. Sort of yeah. Well, it's an interesting analogy. argument, though, and I, I see like I see both sides of it. 
And just because mm-hmm. you can see both sides of it doesn't even mean you have to have an opinion on it because I'm continuing to learn about it. So let me just throw out what I'm thinking. Terrible. If we take this argument that adopting, for instance, uh, crypto or blockchain and this type of technology that is being developed over here by central banks to control us, right? It might not have originated there, but they've definitely gone on the bandwagon over the past five, 10 years. And they're like, they're going to be building and, and make their low pressure area or force people into those corrals and get that done. So because they're doing that, does that mean we can't in, you know, investigate a pirate uh, coin or a Monero or privacy type of transaction using a similar infrastructure, right? right? So that's a question. It's hard to tell. We're in the fog of war on these topics. So let's go back 20 years. The internet was built by DARPA to your 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 point, Ryan. So should we not use the internet because it was created by DARPA and they're going to spy on us and surveil us and build patterns and, and train the AI from the data we feed it over two decades, they can control us, right? Should we not use it to intellectually find out what's going on and communicate with other people before they have total tyranny forever? Okay, but that's still, we're in the fog of war. Let's go back to the telephone. 1970s COINTELPRO, if we use the phone, bro, to talk about freedom, they're going to tag our words and they're going to come take us off to camps. Maybe we shouldn't use the phone. Let's go back to courier pigeons like the Rothschilds and let's do stuff like that and put it in code. No. So use the telephone, use the internet, use this stuff. No, it's a double-edged sword. Know that they're working their butts off and organizing and funding and trying to do this over here. So we need freedom over here. Technology can be available to have freedom. Like if freedom is going to be had in the future of their technocratic despotism, we're going to need technology equal and opposite of some variety on our side right. to well, keep freedom alight in the future. That, that's the key. It's, it's not, it's about the you, it's about the way in which it's being used, right? Like there's a huge difference there. Like for, take a good example wearables like or implantables let's say which is where it's going like like implanting some device in your arm i'm not suggesting you go out and implant the good device in your arm that's not what i'm saying right that's that's right, counter right. it's the opposite what i'm saying is we need to understand how this works and and the wearable implantable argue, part of it is totally off the table for me i'm talking about the idea of you know the technology itself like the idea of the passports the idea of and again not that we should have them but understand how these things operate how they can be circumvented right we don't we don't know how to work around these things if we don't understand them and i think the main focal point is around blockchain <clears throat> i do think that's a central part of where this goes you know the the internet of bodies the 5g smart city kind of thing that all works on the same technology right now anyway and so if we find ways around it how to you know make our own communities around the side of it. Derek's a big proponent of that, right? The, the counter economies, and maybe that involves some new technology, right? I mean, that we just have to be open to these different possibilities you're saying, Richard, and I think it's exactly right. And it's, if you're, if you're going to shun yourself from it completely without understanding it, you're, it's just, you're just letting them build the panopticon around you in real time. Yeah. And then the next element would be like dividing and conquering around that topic while it's still open for investigation. And we understand there is an enemy and there are people that are trying to do stuff. But on the other hand, maybe we need to hook up some IPFS. So Ryan uploads once and it goes to the internet forever. And then it comes down and distributes to these places where people on the regular internet goes, right? And it goes and populates your float and your odyssey and all these different channels then you have an indelible publishing system. And if they try to censor you, well, what they can't censor you out here in this interplanetary file sharing system that they created to talk to people on Mars, right? They're like, how do we send data to Mars if we ever send people? And they created this protocol. Well, we can also use that protocol to make your publishing indelible. Now, not me personally, but smart people we might know that are working on these things and already getting like Corbett stuff up and indelible. This is where I need to go. I, I'm I'm actively looking right now for somebody to help br- kind of bring T Lav into that field because it's new to me. 
you know, like whether we're talking about Linux or, you know, all these different directions, I'm just like, okay, like I've, you know, I'm, I'm open to it, but it's, it's definitely a, 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 you know, what's the right analogy? Like it just, it's completely new to me. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The goal is learning like, curve. It's tough to, yeah. you know, uh, spend time learning new systems. We do and I don't have living. the time to learn. Right. We have these shows and everything we do every day. You know, there's a lot that goes into right. like, Jesus, I might have to change this and that and what the plugs and. <laughs> you know? And yeah. there are only things that break you're not aware of because yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm all too familiar with it from work. That's yeah, last last night I sat or two nights ago I sat down in the other studio behind me to teach the students and like my camera wasn't working and it's like I not only have to teach a class and push the buttons for the slides but I got to make sure the cameras are working. So most of the time around here it's one man show, but I do have a lot of online help. And so what we did is we delegated and the, the IPFS project for Grand Theft World is going on right now. It started last week with Patrick Sheehan and he started, uh, so he had a meeting. So anyway, we've been having R&D meetings for like two years on this topic, but now we have a way where it's actually a method and there's some programming and it goes up and comes down and then it gets spread all over the place. And uh, yeah, you need that too, dude. And yeah, you can only maybe you can we talk offline. Give me some insight because I'm definitely yeah. You can only wear so many hats. So let's get you wearing the the hats you wear best and figure out how to like systematize, delegate the rest. Right, because right. you know Sounds we don't want to get you burned out. <laughs> now Corbett, on the other hand, amazing consistency over the years. So yeah, he's the one that got me to start taking it seriously. So I was podcasting probably for a year. Um, he started his podcast 2007. And then I was like, holy shit. It wasn't just like Alex Jones who doesn't communicate with anybody. I'm like, there's this guy I can write to. There's yeah. this guy, there's another guy over there and he's published because he's too. a real person. Yeah. He's a real person. <laughs> and he's been the same real person since I've known him in 2007 yeah. or maybe 2008 at the latest, but right. him and Pilato were like some of the first yeah. people that I met. And James Evan Pilato is also awesomely consistent. And like, yeah. He was doing guy. his radio show actually first before any of us. He's he started like 2003. Yeah, he he's a classic radio guy, man. I love James. Oh, dude, dude. He's, <laughs> he's a deep catalog of knowledge, that dude, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he and is. he grew up in West Virginia and like a lot of people in West Virginia, you know, who might not leave or feel sorry for themselves or victim mentality. He took it upon himself to go beyond public schooling and all these other things. And that's why he's like an original character who's out there like living, living his dream. Like he's, he's happily married from what I know. And he does something consistently that feeds his passion, but also his curiosity and his interest. And it, he packages it. So it brings value to other people. And when he and Corbett started like new world next week, mm. that's like five or six years into this. Uh, I was like, okay, well, you know, this is cool. And now it's like, they're on episode 1000, something or other, I'm sure at this point. And it's like, I love it. that just that, that little simple, like, cause I'm like, oh, I see what they're doing. They're having a call once a week and they're talking about some stories but right. it became a thing. Right. And now it's a thing that we all kind of Jones for. It's like, is it out yet? Can we see it? What's going right. on? Right. I love it. So I mean, yeah. Yeah. I want to see you grow. I want to see you flourish. I see you really out there working hard. I see you like up against like the natural forces of the environment, but there's like, you know, uh, just the daily, you got to think of something, you got to put it on screen, you got to record it, you got to edit it, you got to post it, you got to publish it, all these sort of things that think people don't people, think about. Well, they don't. They they yeah. click on Rockfin. They see your stuff. They give you a little tip, and then they're split. That's about you know. But they don't see that before and after. You got hours of work to get that done. Most so people don't uh, recognize that it. Well, and I get it. Before I did this too. You know, you don't really understand what goes into it. But the people really genuinely think that we just sit down and 
hit a button and and i'm serious like and they know you're right they go, why 100%. couldn't you just add this or add the more links than this or put it in this category and it's like well add it to the list man there's a hundred thousand <laughs> things i could do <clears throat> to the point i was saying earlier i actually think i straight off on it's it, in regard to the show there's nobody else back here there's nobody helping with links i other other than the people that send them to me from you know people out in the community you know i so i should say there's a lot of people that send me research but that almost becomes counterintuitive after a minute when you have you know, 75 emails every five minutes that are, <laughs> look at this, look at this, but impossible it, but to process. Though, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's really, it can be insurmountable. Yeah. Again. I, yeah. I experienced the same thing when I took over the GTW show card, it was where we get feedback from the community, but at this, Rich would say like, I was making the show call show card into like essentially his Christmas list when he was five years old. Dude, and I'm like, like, okay, so, you, like, there's just, no way. <laughs> and I was organizing it and I was trying to watch as much as I could. And I'm like, after six months, I'm like, called a meeting. I'm like, yeah, we got to rethink this. No, but, well, um, you know, I, it's, I, it's, it's I, triage. I mean, that's really what yeah. it is. I mean, I, I, I hate to say this, but this is just the simple reality of what it is, is there's there, it's you have to basically decide what you're not going to look at or get to. Yeah. And that's just the way it is, unless you're going to hire somebody to go through this, which, you know, which I am to some degree, like I'm bringing people in to help go through it. But I'm such a I'm so neurotic about letting people in the bubble. You know what I mean? Like knowing things or seeing what's coming through. And, you know, these days it's hard to let people inside, you know? Yeah. No, I agree yeah with that. And going back to that point about Tony's Christmas list uh, show card. When I first interviewed John Taylor Gatto, I, I took him. Oh, yeah. Took him to the hotel the night before I picked him up at the airport, took him to the hotel. And I said, here's my outline. This is what I'd like to talk about this weekend. He comes back to me the next morning. And so we turn on the lights. We're about to film. And he goes about the outline. He goes, Richard. If we had all week, we couldn't cover this outline. And that's a point I just set it aside. And we had like a kinetic conversation for the next two days based on that. But yeah, I, I've been where Tony was with, we got to talk about all this stuff. He's like, no, we got to find the best things to build out, to right. give the message to the audience so that they can have handles on it and hand it to other people. Is well, kind you of feel like, like you thing. owe them to a degree, you know, it's like, well, they reached out, they took the time to write three paragraphs about why this is important, you know, and it's like, you feel like you're letting them down. I, you know what, you know, what eats away at me is that I, there are people every day that reach out that we don't respond to. And I, I mean, there was a moment where, you know, like, whether it's one thing we, I, I really, really make sure that we do T lab and I'm not the only one that does this just to be honest about that is that we respond to people that write us. We get a lot of written mail and, and we respond to every single one of them, handwritten, everything. But in regard to the emails, which are so much more, it's like there was a, a period in time where I was responding to every single thing. And I was every day getting all the emails down to zero. And there got to a point to where you just start going, okay, shoot, there's 10 more. I'll get them to them tomorrow. Next day, oh, there's 30. Okay, I'll just get it to tomorrow. And then again, the point is, well, at some point you're like, well, shoot, now it's a thousand. It's like... Yeah, it becomes exponential. It's zero is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you just kind of move forward. And it's like, it breaks my heart is the point though. Yeah. They, yeah. They, it means yeah. so much to them and it should. I saw that happen to Corbett first because he said, look, I'm getting too many emails and I can't write back to him. And I was like, oh, look at him. I said, I still get enough emails. I can write back to all of them. But at some point I'm going to get to the point that he's at. And then I did. And then I do. I carry that weight. And, yeah. and now since I turned on comments on YouTube, since I started this podcast, because for years, for like, you know, 10 years, I didn't have comments on YouTube. And for 10 years, I didn't have a cell phone either. Those were peaceful years. Yes. Now I don't read I the comments that. on YouTube. Sid Rock, one of the autonomy graduates. That's one of the things he gets paid to do every week. The people who have in serious inquiries, make sure they get to me in some meeting or, you know, and they mm -hmm. want to link and send it to them because I don't have the time in my schedule to do that thing, but I feel it needs to be done. So I will pay somebody who I've trained uh, with excellence to do that sort of thing and be my proxy.
Mm-hmm. And that's a load off. I haven't done it for my email yet, but I did do it for like the social media type stuff. Yeah. So well, it's good, man. I mean, it just shows that you care about what they're saying. For me, the comments part of it have, have other than my website, I don't really and get unless one just happens to catch my eye, which usually it happens to be a bad one because I hate that that's the one I've, you know, but you know, you, I just respond to the, the website and leave the rest alone because so much of the engagement on YouTube and everything else becomes so vitriolic and so negative and especially Twitter. It's just, man, every single time I get cooked into responding on Twitter, I, I regret it every single time. That's a good <laughs> point. That's a good point. Negative. I might respond on Twitter once or twice a month. I try mm-hmm. to stay away from that. And I also, I, cause I learned that from, um, the, the reason I didn't have YouTube comments on wasn't to avoid trolls. I just felt it was disingenuous for people to leave me comments. there, thinking I'm going to go there and read them and respond when I'm, I'm busy reading and responding. What members are asking me, these mm-hmm. people have paid for my time. They get my time first and I don't really have time. So, you know, it's, a uh, I see like, I want to serve them and like answer their questions and do all these things. But I also have outlets where I do these things and people who really want to get in touch with me, they seem to find their way through. Well, so see, that's the point. That's the point. Anybody yeah. that really wants to, I mean, you're, I'm I assume your emails posted somewhere very clearly, right? If somebody somewhere, really yeah. wanted to get to you, they would go that way. You know, <clears throat> excuse me. You get those emails sometimes where it's like, you know, I, you know, I left all these, I can't believe you didn't respond to me. And it's like, come on, really? Like, then I feel even worse. Cause it's like, you know, they, they, most people are more than aware that we're, that it's just, they know that you're busy. Like nobody really thinks you're going to respond on a YouTube comment. Most people, they really don't think that, you know, it's the ones that think that you're the only kind con- and because they posted, they know you saw it, which is not really the truth. You know, it's just too bad. But the point is that this goes to such a point where, you know, it's a good problem. You know, it, I mean, it look, look at how many people you're reaching on a daily basis. You know, that's what they don't want us to see. That's why I think that the effort is to kind of keep this, the moment that you start reaching enough and you start, you know, it's, it's really dangerous for them to allow that to continue. Like the Patreon point, that's the same thing that was uh, the response to Whitney, as well as me. They basically admitted that you're allowed to have these conversations, but you can't prove them. Essentially, they didn't use the word prove. But they pointed the links. Okay, well, you're pointing at source material, like peer-reviewed science. Okay, so that we prove that we're right, and now it's fake news. Perfect. You know, so that's exactly the point. So they just can't let that reach get out. You know, shows. What was that? Is that two years ago? The Patreon Patreon? banning? No, probably less than two years. I don't know. It kind of bleeds together, but it was it was a while ago. It's like a year and a half, year ago or something like that. Because I remember when it happened, and I I was I thought I was a part of the show. Well, I remember seeing a bunch of people. It's been a year with Patreon loss at the time. And one of the things was it wasn't even something that was posted on Patreon. It was something right. somebody had posted on another site Both of us. that they're yeah. like, you posted that this thing over here. And you, you know, cause I wasn't sure if that was yours or Whitney's yeah. situation or both or my, mine was my website. Hers was unlimited hangout. And they right. basically, they, bo- they basically just said here, you have to delete these articles that you posted that have nothing to do with Patreon other than that you posted the link on Patreon. Like that's just incredible. I mean, but that's beginning to happen everywhere now, even getter, by the way, did you see that? Getter no. censored me, yeah, very clearly, and then censored somebody else. And he even re- he was a bigger, bigger, bigger entity, and he reached out to them. And I don't think they realized. I don't know if it's illegal that he did this or not, but he, you know, caught he. They responded. He showed the response, and they said it's based on your actions off the platform. I was oh, like, oh my god, this platform is pretending to be free speech. I mean, it's just this is gross. There's a lot of these happening out there. We need to be skeptical about all of these platforms, whether Gab or anything else. I mean, I'm not trying to say that we should immediately assume that they're trying to you know lie to you but i don't know a lot of these like, like rumble is a good example i am very suspicious of rumble for a thousand different reasons if you oh, get yeah. into it, you'd like to but i think it's just the new youtube 
Yeah, it's the new um, YouTube. They're trying to compete in that market. So Getter, I thought they went public recently. Getter, yeah. I've got a profile, but after I created the profile, I was like, uh, who are these guys? And I was like, headquarters, Columbus Circle, New York City. I was like, that's really expensive real estate to be running your HQ out of. Who's the guy? Oh, it's a guy that used to work in like Trump administration. Now yeah. he's doing right. oh, okay. Right. I see what it is. Done yep. pretty much with Controlled opposition, but, sort of. But thing. on well, the they, other they hand, respond to me. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, um, Jeremy from library right or kingsley and aaron from float like there are platforms where we can actually know and, yeah. and talk to the people creating it or both of those platforms right so uh rockfin i've talked to some nice people at rockfin too i love rockfin yeah but you know uh there are a couple other platforms like this and between this there's been a huge gushing of freedom in the past two years that otherwise would have just been on youtube and you right. see when youtube censored everybody what was it? 20, 2017, I did a talk at the Porcupine Freedom Festival on how creators like us needed to have our own platforms because they were going to come by and censor and demonetize and do all the stuff that they've done since then. So the, the, the gist was um, there's two things. When YouTube bans you and takes away your income, you just lost. But in reality, if you can land on your feet, have your own platform, your own offer, connect with your audience directly, own those contacts and not have them knowing who your audience is, right? Right. That's great for you. And by the way, YouTube just lost control of your attention and everyone in your audience's attention. And if they can do that to enough of the creators, we would all be over here with independent platforms, probably federated, cross-pollinating information. And uh, it's not the uh, Fediverse that they talk about on the Timcast, but this is just over here now because you decided to cut ties twitter and youtube and these places want to block and censor and now there's a whole group of people over here and the conversation is really over here because over here everyone knows it's like the the cookie cutter milk toast talking points from the administration and the people in power right yeah i think that's going on right now i agree i, I think that's that's exactly the idea of having these kind of counter economies counter societies like around it all i mean look i wouldn't even be posting on soup on youtube or using it all even at all, if it wasn't that there was the largest grouping of people that are still lost that right? need to I mean, be that's saved. The idea. What's that? That need to be saved. And we don't save yes, them, but the exactly. information we're kind of putting through the, the media mirror here is things they could use to think about to save themselves. And the problem here, and I shouldn't say the problem, but the confusion is that people are like, well, you're still, you know, you're, you're telling us to stop using YouTube, but you're putting it on YouTube. And it's like, well, see, the point is that our job is not to high five about how we know what's going on. It's about, you know, we're doing this, hopefully everybody right. in this field to reach those people over there that are confused, that are lost, that are being misled. The problem is that, again, the, the, the confusion is that those people that don't do a show like this, they should be the ones going anywhere but YouTube because they don't really need to be on YouTube. They're the ones staying, not, and again, not to be accusatory, like I get why it's, it's easier, but they get used to the chat, right? They like the way it's functional. It's on their phone, you know? So it's about getting rid of these little comforts. You know, it's yeah. like, like during COVID-19, it was like, well, we need to stand up against all this, except I still like my Frappuccino. So I'm going to go to the Starbucks every day. It's like, well, no, see, you need to put your foot down and be like, those creature comforts got to go because it's more important than that. You That's know? what bothers me. Cause I'm afraid what happens if YouTube goes after our customer, like, I want to say customer base and people frequent our community. And then it's like, you know, cause they like, they want to have one foot in both worlds. A lot of these individuals, and I get why, because of the convenience, a lot of it does come down to convenience, especially with how it integrates with other devices, like our smartphone and so forth and so on that. You know, I, you know, that would be the next step. I'd hate to say, don't, hopefully no one's listening to this of the technocracy yeah. sphere, but here's a good example. I, I use it often for the transcript. 
because mm. no oh, other platform yeah. has it, right? So it's like I often open YouTube to grab the transcript and search for things, even though they know, I guess, I don't should say know that, but it only works if I have it on a private window. I don't get to go down that rabbit hole. Every thousand things that don't work on YouTube for me these days, I think is pretty funny. The algorithm's very sophisticated too for finding like, like videos, just at least for if you're just looking for base entertainment or something really like that so stuff too it's really good at hiding yeah. stuff i it's, look for my own but stuff it also not like publicly but, but in my control panel and it won't show it to me sometimes and i'm typing in like the exact title or whatever right. and it'll show me anyone else who has published or copied my video and pub- published it right but it won't like list my publishing of that thing which is pretty band. epic yeah yeah that's what i just showed on my i was just searching for uh an article that derek wrote so I was looking for the link to put it in and I read at like an, an endless list of other sites that I've never heard of, like real small sites I've never heard of, you know, but the same exact title, all those came up and Actors Post was the first one, which I'm glad because Actors Post, I, I like Actors Post, but because they repost a lot of our work, but I'm like, I search for the exact title. Unless you type in the full name, Last American Vagabond, it doesn't even come up like page 17. It's not there. Like, yeah, they have there's no the way best- you understand that. They have the best query system somehow because you go to Rumble, unless you type in the exact thing you want, you won't not find it. Their query system is terrible. And Odyssey is not much better. But yet, like I know, I know YouTube's is very good, except that they shadow ban. Because right. you can find anything else you want by just typing in some sort of incoherent sort of oxymoronic phrases. But then all of a sudden, if you want to, so you know what you want to search for, like I don't know, the James Corbett's well, like 9 11 conspiracy five minute video. Can't find yeah. that. So like, I was yeah. trying to find DOSNet. Oh by, yeah, that took right? me a while to find again, and I downloaded. Okay, so I went. I went. I was trying to send it to Vedmore. Uh, I went to Bitshoot. No, nothing found. I went to Odyssey. No results found. Hmm. Okay, let me try YouTube. Oh, the net. Here it is. Here's a documentary. Let's stand back. Here it is. Here's the whole thing. So even though they've censored it, the original versions they they allow uploading of pirate versions on there still. So there's still like a beauty of freedom that exists within <laughs> the tyranny of YouTube out there. It's pirate channels, yeah. pirate uploads. And right. these sort of things that but are I slipping through. I think so eventually they're going to do yeah. something about yeah. that. Yeah. Like they, it's, but I your social credit score, of course. Exactly. But I also yeah. think it has something to do with the influence. That's my point from before. That mm. if, it, if it's not reaching enough people, they don't really care. You know, it's like this guy's That's got three views. It's got four, you know, 40 people subscribed. Once it like, let's say somebody grabs it and it goes somewhere else. You know, it's just about the reach bottom line, you know? And that's why if they feel they've censored our work, I can't, pull it and air it on my own channel, you know, and reach those people. So it's like, they're kind of box it out. They put it in that corner and then they'll frame that corner as the extremist corner. All the maniacs over here talking about this topic, you know, they, they create that perception, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, but I, I think that it always comes back to promoting and, and leaning into the, the platforms that we know will support us. By the way, I don't know if you guys have seen super you, I think that's another, uh, that's one that I'm really working with lately that I think is a great platform. Superu.net. It's, it's the only one out there, in my opinion, that is all it's got all the other bells and whistles that YouTube currently has, like the embeds, live streaming, you know, video on demand. Like it's, it's another video streaming platform. It's not just like a Twitter, Facebook with video. You know what I mean? Because some of these newer ones are still trying. I mean, even even like uh, uh, BitChute does, still doesn't have live streaming, you know, yeah. or, or Odyssey doesn't have all the other things that YouTube does. Like SuperU is really striving to be like, you know, a, a YouTube alternative in a good way. And I know the people that built it. You know, at least from my perspective, I know that at least where we're at now, that they believe in maintaining the, the, the merits, the, the tenets of protecting the people that are speaking the truth, bottom line, you know, but I, I yeah. for instance, I know BitChute and Odyssey are the same way, though. Like, I, I love that they're standing up for their creators. Yeah, and I think the pressure that's being exerted by the people 
of the ilk of the world government summit you know they're they're exerting pressure and they're not doing it on purpose this is like a, a, a like on uh predicted reaction because there's the predictable reaction those are all the people that just snap in line and say yes please to the new thing right but there's other people that are going to want to drag their feet and they have some plans for us but it hasn't kicked in yet so we still got freedom we can still communicate pretty freely right now it's going to go up other people are going to be able to see this so i think i'm very optimistic even though it's like this is the <clears throat> act three in the play and we're getting close mm -hmm. to the end and the dollar's about dead and it's not a good time in, in history for the world enter you know uh, world war three and putin and ukraine and this whole sort of thing to kick off and uh while they work right. on covid two electric boogaloo yeah, right right it's coming because they're still going with the the commons pass and all these things that they designed just because it went away right now doesn't mean they're going to stop any of this infrastructure it's going full steam ahead behind the scenes while people are watching the slap heard around the world it didn't go away yeah exactly yeah. exactly but that's that the main point is it didn't go away like right. that's the real point the narrative stopped everything in fact kept going and that the digital id i just pointed this out in the last show i mean <clears throat> the digital all they really did is stop centralizing the narrative around COVID. they're like well here's a digital it. id for your safety right. for international travel it's like well wait a minute it's the exact same thing all you need to do is include the COVID pass in there with the it, you don't even need to change anything on the technological side it's just narrative you know it's rebranding new narrative it's, yeah i exactly. mean that's that's rich asked me last week what do you think what are you most concerned about with the next week's narrative and i said what they're not talking about in regards to COVID because they're not letting that go. That's really the, right. how they're going to usher in this sort of technocratic control, global control grid. And like, they're not stopping that. The, the billions of dollars have been invested worldwide is not going to just all of a sudden go away because we're focused on either Ukraine or then what happened after we finished the show, Rich immediately sends us like four in the morning, oh, the slap heard around the world. And that's all, I have a whole section on that. Not that we'll probably even get to it, but it's just like, that was huge. The culture section was massive this week between the whole transgenderism, you know, the cultural Marxism sort of nonsense going on or critical theory, but then also the slap and, you know, the silencing of, of uh, comedians. I mean, it's just, it's weird because for the past, I've been now part of the show about a year. And since I've been doing the show quite about nine, 10 months, the I call it the vaccines, uh, lockdowns, therapeutic section, basically COVID-19 section mm -hmm. was massive. And we that would be what would take up three four hours of the show at least. Right. All of a sudden, it's it's dwindled. The past couple of weeks, it's it's dwindled down to be nothing. Even Ukraine this week was not like big for the compared to the past couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, this culture section just took off. And I'm like, you can kind of see is the way I'm building this, or I'm sure you see this when you do your daily breakdowns, like yeah. how the narrative is being crafted and framed. Who what are people talking about? And you sort right. of get like a meta viewpoint of oh, I see. I can now see it from like a, a sort of outside the the sphere perspective, like what's going on inside the sphere, and it's yeah, it's well, weird. What, what you're what you're kind of encapsulating there is the is the the mainstream you know yes. wind bubble of discussion. You know, like because really, as I know you know, there's the the real conversation, and this is what's frustrating me is that <laughs> like I'm getting to the same point where I'm like, okay, dang it, I know that COVID is obviously like they just admitted this is happening. They just pointed out this is happening. Oh my God. They just said, this doesn't work. And there's all these things coming out left and right. And then you're like, but 90% of my show is about Ukraine. You're like, because right, it has you to got be. it. Yes. Yeah. And it's so frustrating, but, but you, I, the point I keep making is it's like in this moment today, in this show, that's gotta be the focus, but realize all of this is interconnected, you know, and, and whether it's the Ukraine literally being connected to the COVID-19 narrative via the bio labs and the foreign policy and the white, you know, vanilla isis and the white supremacist domestic terrorism biological threats like you can see how this kind of wraps in together but on top of that 
there's a lot of other things around it as well. Like the, 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 I mean, we, we can, since you brought it up, I mean, I don't get, I never talk about this stuff on my show. Like I even made a point to kind of laugh about that topic because it's obviously being used to manipulate people, but there's interesting discussions around it. Like if you really yeah. want to just have like a pop culture conversation, I, there, I, I validly was like, from a cultural perspective, fake. maybe this it's, was planned. <laughs> you know, yeah. You yeah. Can't prove that. Exactly. Or just, no, it, but you have to consider it. Like I, I don't necessarily oh. fall down on that side of the argument either, but you have to consider it because it was coming into it sponsored by Pfizer. It was coming into it low in ratings. You're talking about an Academy award winning actor getting like, you know, getting this Oscar tonight. He's got a front row seat. If they had worked it out now, I know Chris probably didn't write the joke and I know they didn't rehearse that apparently in public at the mm. scheduled rehearsals, but it still could have been a thing. And in the movies all the time, people are trained to slap really close and react to it. And Chris did have his hands behind I mean, his back and kind of lean into it. It looks but like he also, as you do in movies or in wrestling, you know, you sort of, you, but you Chris go also with makes a fist punch. afterwards. If you look the if you look at the still frames, okay. first off, the best meme was rock, uh, rock, uh, beat, uh, paper beats rock. Cause his uh, Will Smith's <laughs> hand was open. So paper beats rock. And then there's one where they're like, Chris Rock was about to hit him back. Look, he makes a fist. And if you look at his fist, his thumbs on the inside of his fist, which tells me he hasn't been taught how to fight. So, it wasn't yeah. go well. yeah, right. so he opted out of that. So I could see it being a legitimate surprise and an honorable kind of like Will Smith, point, Smith yeah. just slapped the yeah. shit out of me reacting to it. And I can also see it the other way. And I don't have to have an opinion either way and make a decision because I don't think we have enough information to make a decision exactly. on that. I agree. And they 100%. get people to jump to conclusions all the right. time, either by censoring, by national security, or by not, by not showing us what's on stage left, right, above the Got stage, it. underneath the stage, backstage. Yeah. Or, or just what we used to really think about how these things can happen. Like you could stick, like there's usually a, an event or a moment, you know, there's something that happens. So in this case, the slap or whatever, you know, that that's the moment. If you, then you build out from there and you go, okay, what can I find? Oh, Pfizer. Oh, alopecia. Oh, they have a drug. And you start, you know, piecing these things together. You can do that with things that aren't actually the real story. Like you could take an event, look back at it, and we could like pick an idea and then research from that point. It's called confirmation bias, right? You yeah. will find things that fit together. And, and sometimes it's pretty compelling. Sometimes it's a little bit stretchy, like, you know, like QAnon stuff where you're like, well, this guy has red hair. So therefore he's the guy, you know, like that's <laughs> kind of the stuff that that's the, the reason. like non sequiturs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but at the same time, it's like, there was some weird stuff. I mean, the connection alopecia and Pfizer and the whole thing, but I, you could make the point that Pfizer funds like damn near everything we're looking that's at right the now. thing right yeah the, you know? alopecia is pretty you know this large segment does suffer from that so i mean like you can you can find other counter narratives of like right. push back right. against that a little bit and the pattern is so, patternicity fallacy the confirmation bias apophenia all these different terms it's i think this, the real story we find the patterns we want then we fit them into the narrative that we think provides a sort of causative stream right. of and information it right. but it's, it could but that yeah. you know it's because it could doesn't mean there's enough information exactly that and that's yeah. what you just said that's where answer, you need yeah. to end up you're like well you know we where we don't have enough information that's the problem with today. and that's a decision there where yes. it's okay to say that it's okay yes. to say that yes that's exactly yeah. what i was going to say and it's yeah. it's so important really hear this people it's like we have to be okay to be like i don't know Yes. And that has to be okay forever. If you don't have enough information, you don't just choose to pick a side. That's what we're told we should do today. Oh, the authority said, therefore you're dumb for not going along with this. You know, it's we're, we're being engineered. I, I teach logic and that was a big segment I had on my recent course. So I do on Thursdays. I was like, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's a fallacy right. of adding your auntie. Just because something's possible doesn't mean there's enough evidence in the positive that people have asserted that there's enough evidence that you can make that positive assertion that that thing actually exists. 
Yeah. No, like it's okay to say, I don't know. It's also okay to say no. The negative holds the field if there's not enough evidence. It's okay right. to like stand your ground, have conviction, have confidence in standing your ground when there's not enough evidence presented to you. You should hear all the sides and you should, you should consider all the evidence if you have the time to do so for whatever you're interested in, consider a value, but don't just jump into whatever someone wants you to believe. Yeah. Um, so whether or not the, the slap was fake or not, not enough information to make Correct. that determination at this time. And do right. we need to look more into it? No, it doesn't no. matter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't however, matter. <laughs> however, I did get too much information about the entanglements in this August. What's his name? The 20 yeah. year old dude who's friends with her son. And that's who she slept. I got too much yeah. information about the family me. Smith. And then I found out they had round tables where they had talked about this. And yeah. then I found, I found that happening. I found the Ryan Long video from three months ago, a message to Will Smith, which we'll play toward the end of the show because it's a little more adulty. But if you just see, like, I didn't have any idea the cultural milieu, which was surrounding Will Smith at the time. And then oh, it's been going like, on for a year plus. Yeah, yeah like it's I've just watched, strange. Yeah, it's it's, weird. I mean, like, the fact that these conversations are being had at a legit, like at a legitimate med- Oprah level, level Oprah absurd. type level. Yeah, it's so silly. Like, I mean, like, and I like, for instance, my my somebody, well, somebody close in my inner circle was was like waxing intellectual about this to somebody else in my inner circle. And it's just like because I'm sitting here laughing about this concept. Oh, did you hear? Did you hear that his son did this? And it's like, this is the person that was 30 seconds ago, like invested in whether or not Russia was Tears. now they're talking about Will Smith and Tears his coming down. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but just think about how ridiculous that is. So yeah. you, you, you're in his mind. This is the same level of news as 30 seconds ago, whether Russia was going to start World War three. The yeah. fact that whether this person had some reason to slap this other person, like yeah. my God, they, the point is they're batting at the new dangly cat toy they put in front of them. And that's what they yeah. think they're supposed to be doing. The fracturing of consciousness. And then when people can't pay attention, sit down and pay attention to what you do, obviously so well, and what we attempt to do as well on these long form shows is, you know, give a sort of long narrative where you have to sit down, you have to pay attention, you have to invest yourself in your time to actually sort of extricate meaning from it. And it does, it takes a sort of reorganizing of your own mind and sort of what you consider to be valuable. And also some sort of, uh, you know, Joe Rogan sort of showed that a little bit. I know it's mainstream, but at least he showed that you can still have a long form discussion with someone and people will sit down and listen to it if they find it interesting and of value. So it's like, that's where we need to bridge that gap for topics that are a little bit more enigmatic. What's a good even, job of that? Well, I would even argue that 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 we get. Thank you for that. I, I would hmm. even argue that we get. I would. It's possible that most people would. The the broader audience would appreciate a longer show, and that we get kind of yeah. like shouted down from that. You know, like because here's the funny part is I get people. And I again, think they're starving. How it. you only look at the negative, like that stands out more. I hear people go, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's too long. It's too long." And I and I that I I internalize that more than anything else, unfortunately. And so then I think about the longer part of the show. But when I do a short show, it gets exponentially less engagement. So it, are they are they wrong? I think most people like the longer shows. And maybe we're being maybe there's a reason there's some sort of an agenda to stop us from doing that because it makes the most impact. Just a thought. Yeah, no. And I, a lot of times I think people say it's too long, but that's I mean, this is a little bit of the genetic fallacy. But I sometimes think that it might be related to the content we we mm. we go over. It's a, it's hard to have to say if you're not someone who's really steeled in your mind and your disposition to deal with the influx of the type of information we're dealing with, it can be extremely difficult. It can be extremely sort of like soul torturing, if you will, Mm. in regards to the information that's being covered. I understand that because for the years when I worked for Rich for many, many years ago and I was living with them, every day waking up and inundating yourself with this sort of like torrential rain of information that just is coming from all angles about how you're just being, excuse my language, fucked every possible way. And it's just like, 
okay. Like I, I can now deal with it because I've, I've dealt with it for the past 10 years. I've sort of, uh, sort of steeled myself against it, developed a disposition that can handle it, dealt with my own psychological demons as much as I could to handle that and have you a better tools framing and, and perspective. Now. It took yeah. a long time though. I mean, that's You're not easy for a lot of people that aren't, that's the you know, difference. Yeah, but it's it's on. I I feel empathy because I went through what I think a lot of people yeah. go through when they're just waking up. Oh, to yeah, this because I went through. I knew mean, you did too. I mean, it's not that yeah. we didn't, but sometimes I think we can not forget. But we're so we're so focused myopically on sort of moving forward that we sort of. I sometimes have to pull myself out quietly and say, "Remember what they're probably going through." I get messages right. from people in the community. Um, luckily, I'm able to respond to most, but some of them I can tell like they're kind of on the edge of their seat and they don't know how to find balance. And I don't, I give them my perspective. I try to help them through it, but it's, it's not always easy because it's going to be different for every person. I can give them sort of a general like process or flow they can consider, but you know, we all have different sort of passions. It's designed to be uncomfortable. I mean, it's, it's cognitive dissonance. There's a lot of different ways of this, this works out, but people are, it's, it is a wildly uncomfortable process to come to a point to where you are literally confronting two different thoughts that don't make sense. And your, your entire worldview is foundationally built on this concept. Like, you know, whether you trust them or you should trust these people, like it's hard. I mean, we have to, it is not something we should, you know, look at and dismiss like you're saying. I mean, it's a, it is a grueling process and people that will push through it deserve our respect. You know, yes. like that's the point about what you guys are doing every day. I mean, this is a hard grueling process that wears on you that's why i I've, i mean you guys have probably seen it yourselves i've worked with people over the years that come into this hot ready to i'm gonna work i'm gonna pump this out and then about three months later they're like i can't do this anymore i can't sleep i can't you know and and honestly the one that stands up to me the most was somebody that was doing this with me back when it was really focused around like pizza gate and some really dark terrible yeah. stuff you know yeah. and and they just can't do it anymore and i i don't know if that means that we're made for this in a particular way to where because like i gotta be honest i care about this stuff more than most people i know i don't mean care like i want to talk about it like it it pains me to watch what's happening to people in yemen to watch what's happening to children trafficked in different locations like it breaks my heart you know and i care about it but i'm able to disconnect from it i can break away at the end of the day you know lay down with my dog and watch tv you know whatever it is and somehow i'm able to differentiate that i've been doing this for years but some people just can't and they just they just kind of break well, I think yeah. the other thing that adds to the frustration that we experience is the fact that the people who are paid to do something about these things are the ones usually doing the things. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's Hard. it's like That's as right. adults, we should be able to pursue our life and do the things we want, but we can't. We can't right now because these other people are doing these other things that precipitate down to corrosively uh, abusing and, and like just deteriorating our freedom. And it's been so hard fought and won over the past couple hundred years of philosophical thoughts to independent actions to actually, uh, you know, sequester some freedom. Yeah, it's it's been getting spent really fast and we're almost out of it and we're going to need to renew it. And that's not an the easy greatest political philosophic achievement in history in less than 200 years, completely overturned and inverted as quickly and not as because it was broken, but because it worked so well, they had to undermine it. And it worked so well. It took them over 109 years to undermine it, even with their best laid plans and almost total cooperation from the public. Just think about what can happen if we drag our feet and get educated a little bit. Right. And to Ryan's other point, there's a Plato quote. They deem him their worst enemy who tells them the truth from Plato's Republic. Mm -hmm. But that's also that's also the, the motto of an organization that gave you an award for integrity and journalism. Can you talk about that? Oh, it's Rian Shim. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a <clears throat> I'm honored to, to be to accept that award. That's I a mean, good list. I know a lot of yeah. those the people on that list. 
you know, and it just, it's a list of people that are just willing to, to speak up for those that don't have a voice, you know, and that's really what it comes down to, you know, the story, Shirina Shim in general, or any number, I, you know, the, the sad reality is there's an endless list of stories like that coming from the Israeli side of this, or, you know, like, like looking at the, I'm blanking on her name all of a sudden in regard to the, you probably you might remember the woman's name there that got run over by the bulldozer. She was a big case that, you know, you remember that one? I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get off. But I can't remember her name. The audience will probably know. I'm sad that I forgot it, but it was a woman that was out there protesting and was standing in front of the bulldozer about ready to take over somebody's home that they, you know, are being forced to leave. And they ran right over her, murdered her right in front of everybody. And they acted like it was a mistake with the rule. I mean, it's just, that's the kind of stuff they used to be able to get away with. It's not the same way today, you know? So I, the, the award is being given to people that are willing to, you know, put their, put themselves out there. And of course the sad reality is that it's being framed as like a, like, because we got that award, we're like Assad stooges or something sure, or, yeah. or whatever it is like whatever you know because right a lot of the Serena shim awards focused around syria and has been for a while you know but it's it's about anything really but yeah I, i'm honored and I, I think that's a great group of people honored to be a part of it yeah it's um <clears throat> i think more awards should be given out for integrity and journalism and i, I thought that you know uh, when i look through the list it's like uh, gareth porter there's a lot of people that do really serious investigative journalism and they're not they're not uh, not even worshipped. They're not even respected by a lot of like the establishment. They're, like they're very much on the fringe, and that's why they have good because they're doing real opinion. journalism. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> Look at right. so they're always kept off. Bealey. you know these, yeah. these people. I reference them all the time because, in my opinion, they are some of the most honest, hardworking, legitimate investigative journalists in existence today. You know, there's a lot of people out there that kind of dance that kind of quasi mainstream line, and I don't fault them for it. I mean, people have their own agendas. Whether you know, like. In my opinion, for what I'm doing, I, I would sacri I would counter my profit model if it meant doing the right thing or making sure the truth went out. Maybe that sounds uh, uh, um, lofty and naive to some people, but that's, I mean, if we can't be better than them, if we can't like draw that line today, especially, then I don't know what we're here doing. You know, what we I mean? have to like, have principles. I mean, the yeah. one thing I think that COVID-19 has taught me, and I'm sure we can all relate to this for friends and family, is those who sort of have Fox principles. They 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 wear it on their sleeve, but then when something goes wrong and it compromises their you know, relationship with their wife or their coworkers or their extended family, they'll capitulate to anything. And it's like, no, we got to draw the line somewhere and understand that we have principles, we have morals, we're not going to deal with this. And it's like, it doesn't mean we're not going to be friends in some capacity, but I mean, I'm going to set a boundary up around this and say, look, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to, based on the information that's available in regards to the vaccine or what's going on with COVID-19 as, as a disease, or, you know, just got to have some, some, idea of self-worth and agency and value to the individual and like stand for that stand our ground in some capacity for that i think that's just so important and people sort and of those for, are all the things forgetting about that yes if you wanted to work at cnn or msnbc all or fox them. or one of those places you got to acquiesce all that stuff become Anybody the talking head who authoritatively reads the teleprompter you know? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and they're not writing their own scripts at those places most people sure. like talk, you know i don't think Alice tucker's writing his monologue yeah, seriously. Talk to Allison Morrow. She's somebody I've recently, uh, yeah. she, she's doing a great job on Rockfin, you know, and she, anybody that breaks away and like legitimately breaks away and it's like, look at, I just came from there. Here's what I'm willing to tell you. They tell you the same story. Yeah. They don't think for themselves. They're told what they can say. They, you know, and the moment she tried to be like, that's not accurate. Like, boop, kick her out. Can't talk about that story anymore. You know, that's the it's gist one of the healthiest story. things that could have happened to her though. Like yes, in a hindsight type of thing, she's doing trailer living, like, you know, all this kind of, you know, healthy 
out of the box thinking is now mm-hmm. like erupting, emerging, becoming her thing. She's getting her own platform out of it. Good. So again, even though they try to kick you out, like they can only kick you out once. And then yeah. once you deal with that, they can't ever do it again. And now you got your own site and you got your freedom. own audience and you got your own monetization yeah, yeah. and you got your own, you know, outside of their stuff. Right. It's a blessing in disguise. And I, yeah. I, I remember yeah. when I got censored from Google AdSense, like before I was ever doing the show, I, I mean, I was just doing the website, like before I even made up the daily wrap up, like it was still primarily cannabis focused for crying out loud. And we got booted off Google AdSense. And I was, I, I wasn't even making that much. It was like barely making anything. And I just said, you know, I was, I was actually kind of crushing at the time. And I was like, well, that sucks. Like how, what am I going to do? Like affiliates and like, you know, screw all that stuff these days. Like that's just like the wrong direction in my opinion. But I, I, I was like, well, I had to build a new direction. And I said, what am I going to do? And so I, that's what, for me, that what, that's what created the donation only kind of model. And I, I've never been more, I, this is talk about freedom and independence. I mean, I don't, the mainstream doesn't even know how to wrap their mind around how this works. Like, so you mean they're not paying you for anything? It's like, they're just giving you money because they believe in you. It's like, what? They can't, they don't understand how that works because they can't control it. You know, people are literally sending checks to my PO box because they want to support this platform, you know, because the people trying to do these things don't do those things. Yeah. Right. They They can't understand the freedom minded people that want to support and get get a little more. I want to make sure Ryan can keep doing his things. You know, they don't understand that and they don't understand that which they're trying to destroy, which is part of the ignorance of them trying to destroy stuff they can't understand or control. But we'll always be ahead of them. So it's going to ebb and flow through history. but, But I think ultimately the universe didn't create us to be slaves. And this is like, we have to, and we should rise to this occasion and get our brains together and like, you know, out learn. I think more people. people would, would choose to be able to finance what they're interested in, even if they're not interested in stuff that we talk about. Um, it's just that, well, the old, the old sort of cable model is obviously dying out with the boomers, but at the right. same time, like today with the emergence of technology, it's yes, they're getting people to like YouTube and it's sort of, uh, it's prevalence right now, but given enough time, I could see a situation where people more and more as they either wake up or find other platforms would probably prefer to, in some capacity, fund the things that they actually find entertaining or find useful or find informative. I think that's something that we would want to, I know I did 10 years ago when I found all these different platforms. I'm like, this is actually what I would want to invest my time and money in. So it's just, right. it's simple. Like it's not very complex. It's, it's sort of like for so long, we just gave our money to a cable company and then they, they had all these various channels and we got this, that's all we got to see. But now we actually get the choice because we all can kind of be our own producers instead of consumers all of a sudden, or, you know, or if we're consumers, we get the more, more detailed choice as to what we want to consume. At least I would like to think that if we can reach those people. So interesting. It's, it's almost like it's the same kind of, it's like a small example of the internet conversation. You know, I think that they, they made it this way because they thought they would have more control or more, more, mechanisms by which to influence you and they're like wait 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 too late (laughs) let the cat out of the bag and now we're just making new channels and we're talking about how they lied about this on that channel and you know it's like you get to the point to where i I think i always kind of bring this back in my mind it all comes back to why they're funneling this into the new direction they Mm -hmm. they, they're trying to recapture control over what i think they lost control of i mean that's what it seems like well it was a wild west it had to be a wild west for it to develop but to your point now that's it developed now they have to get control over it again that's that's brilliant well they were losing public trust so they needed to create a a new terror situation that got the fear up that made people trust government again and have to rely on them because we can't fight ukraine or we can't fight russia so we have to like do this thing with governments our proxy it's daddy character going over and making sure nato's okay and you know starting off world war three if they had their yeah. way 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I, you know, I sadly don't think, I mean, I wouldn't, I said, if, if it came to actual kinetic war on a major worldwide scale, I don't think these people would care even remotely, to be quite honest. But I don't think that's what they want because I don't think that, I mean, anybody could point out why a massive outbreak of war, whether nuclear or just, you know, just generally, you know, kinetics, I guess nuclear is kinetic, but just not nuclear would, would counter what they're trying to accomplish with the great reset in every possible way. That's what I say as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more about a means to an end, right? They're trying to scare you into control. I mean, look at what they started to lose from COVID-19 they've regained with sphere pushed from, from this and, and whether that maintains or not is up, up for discussion. But, and I also don't think that they're, they, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could look at it. I mean, the climate change part of this is going to come in at some point as well. I think it's just trying to keep everybody corralled in this direction and they lost control of it. I really believe they lost control of the narrative around COVID-19 because of people like you, because of the independent media. I, I believe that. And also because it wasn't what people were experiencing, there wasn't a one-to-one relationship between what they're being told by the mainstream media and then what they're experiencing, even with the disease or treatment options, all these different things, or the, or the vaccine. I mean, how many, there's like a six degrees of separation now with people that have been injured by the vaccine in some capacity, uh, friends and family members, I could believe. So it's just like, all of a sudden the narrative wasn't matching and there's too many on like too many experiences with people that fall into a spectrum. That's sort of pejorative, but the normie spectrum that like all of a sudden, like they just couldn't, and then Joe Rogan happens, but they know, have a dis- they have a, a decision tree. They have a decision tree. I can imagine some sort of software, right? And so they've got these goals, and these goals never go away, but they either shift them faster or slower, right? So they were growing really fast with COVID, oh, bumping into a whole bunch of data that goes against that. Let's slow that down. Let's speed up this other one to let this grow behind the scenes, mm-hmm. right? Because when I think back to like 1908. Carnegie Endowment in their minutes from the Reese Committee investigation, the, the first thing they figured out, is there any greater way to change a society other than warfare? And then they found out, no, there's no greater way to change society other than warfare. Then how to take, how do they take control of warfare? They took care of the State Department, then they educate people, right? But going back to this idea of great reset could be counter to uh, World War III, like World War III could wipe away their great, great reset. I see them as either way, they get their great reset if they if they continue unchallenged, right? Because um, H.G. Wells's "Things to Come," uh, which was the the movie version of his book called "Shape of Things to Come" from like 1938, right before he wrote "New World Order" in 1939. 1938, they came out with uh, "Shape of Things to Come," and in there, there's like a nuclear war, and it sends almost the whole planet back to the Stone Age. Yeah. And you think in this movie, because you're in like act two of watching the 1938 MI6 production of Things to Come, and uh, the whole world is desolate and it's gangs and rocks and clubs, right? And you think this is it until wings over the world comes flying in and technology has been preserved and there is a new world order and there's a big gap, like Elysium gap between the slaves on the planet and the ruling elite who have power of, of the skies and the air. So I could see either way, like, you're right. I don't think they care if it breaks out in a world war. I don't think they care really if it even goes kinetic and hot with uh, thermonuclear weapons in a limited warfare, Kissingerian type of way and not the whole planet, just like, mm. oh, Ukraine had some stuff happen or whatever. Um, and I think that they have a way to make their plans come about, whether we accepted the narrative without resistance on COVID 
or they switch gears and they bring this back over next season and it's got you know well, some part of COVID me wonders too. if they're worried about because they might lose control of a turn to nuclear warfare even like no matter how many bunkers they have like there are there are contingencies True. that could yeah. transcend their game theory around yeah. it and i think they're a little bit worried about that whereas with because the big the world economic forum one of the major policy things they want to talk about i remember this going back to when all of a sudden the covid narrative started to shift before ukraine and russia even no nothing was happening there Mm -hmm. and they were talking about the number one issue 2022 is climate change so they're going they're starting to transition back to the climate change thing now we're talking about russia and oil and all this sort of nonsense and i'm like oh wait this is a perfect distraction to then get people then they forced russia over to the credit system that's the chinese use and now they're trading oil and rubles that's russian currency so it's just like there's actually if they can keep the war to be limited, limited warfare mm-hmm. in the Kissingerian sort of Kissinger sense of things, that's sort of perfect because it helps uh, sort of uh, hasten more quickly pushing the world to not only CBDCs and also this this net zero carbon nonsense they're talking about, all this stuff they want to push the world to, which is Club of Rome. That's just the world economic form uh, actionizing sort of action, sorry, action, really uh, making actionable the club of the precepts of the Club of Rome. And what yeah. they talked about limits to growth. Yeah. No, I, what's interesting too is they talk about like supply lines and, and shortage infrastructure. This stuff is all being exacerbated by the war as well. You know, so yes, whether yes, you interesting, you see these things where, you know, like World Economic Forum starts like cold shouldering Russia, like, oh, we, we, you're not welcome at Davos. And it's like, okay, that may indicate that Russia's gone like a foul. Like, but in a way, it could be them perpetuating the idea of oh russia is fighting against the the whole thing and they're the good guy now and you know it's, it's like, controlling well, the good. dialectic and they're all german yeah. idealists the hegelian sort of idea which like they right. can control history metaphysics is tied up into history and that there's a dialectical sort of uh, this war of opposites going on and we can just like continue this waltz until we get to this sort of synthesis we want which is total technocratic control cbdc's top-down hierarchy like some sort of ai controlled communist utopian metaverse system i mean who knows what it can manifest as we've seen enough dystopian sort of novels and movies come about that sort of you know outline what it could look like and each one of them is not very promising for us i think us. the metaverse <laughs> is a great idea that we should plug all those people in we the plug world government summit yeah. yeah we plug them into it and we be the zuckerberg walking around while they're all plugged into it and then we can have this beautiful earth to ourselves and the technocrats can like have their wet dream kurtz viley and singularity all at the same time go boom I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's seriously it make it a, the meta prison. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. But to, to the point about the the um the the medical part of it, and I agree, mm. Richard. It, it, totally an interesting way to look at it. That it's about the way that they perceived it then. Like, how do we control the the, the population using warfare? And obviously, mm. that's been something they've used and almost perfected to a degree for a long time, as long as they don't care about the casualties of civilians, which clearly they don't. But what's interesting is you can look back. I forget the date I was actually just looking for. I think it was early 1900s, the Flexner report, right? Yeah. And, and and the Carnegie's and, and the Rockefellers and how it's very clearly, in my opinion, they were aware of how this could be utilized, but I think they recognize that we're not there yet. We don't have the technology yet. We understand it though. So we need to ran, wrangle in the medical side of this. And by the way, and as Corbett points out, the you know how and why big oil conquered the world and how they fractured Rockefellers and acting like they were breaking them up, it really gave them more control and more influence, more money. And then ever since then, what they do. They drove the, the entire medical industry into the petrochemical pill form kind of idea. I mean, welcome Pfizer, welcome everything else. Like that's that's the beginning. And now once we get to the point that they can start 
realizing what they wanted, the nanotechnology, the implantables. They're like, okay, security state becomes biosecurity state. What do we yes. need? Some kind of action, some kind of pandemic. And maybe it was just organic and they go, perfect, we'll use it. I mean, who knows? I don't think necessarily, I think there's much more obvious manipulation, but you know, this is just my theory, obviously, but I think it's interesting to see how there's been planning for this for a long time. And so it really just becomes one in the same. It is still the war manipulation, but it's a war on you. It's a war on a virus. The right? psy war. Yes. It's a psy war more than anything. And what it really spells out, I mean, uh, and I it's agree flexible. with the elements of your theory, but long term, that means they've been talking about this. They've been they've they've designed and sort of like planned for this over uh, over a century. Yeah. If you think about it, oh, that's yeah. the key is like they're not thinking in short term um segments of time here and that's yeah. that's really point, like, that's at, what we try at, to get through to the audience like these are long-term plans bernard like, flexner for the long haul the least famous of the flexners he did the palestine economic corporation part of colonizing what would become israel then you got abraham flexner and he's also working rockefeller foundation projects he does the american medical schools project and that's the flexner report for medical right. and then there's simon right. flexner I'm pretty sure he did the, yeah, we mentioned him earlier in the show tonight when we were talking about Cornelius Dusty Rhodes. A lot of synchronicity. Right lot of synchronicity. Yeah, I don't believe in coincidences. I think the universe wants people to know about Rockefeller Institute and Carnegie International Endowment for Peace well, and you, globalist argue, agendas. Th this is a good point to argue the logical potential. You know, I, I, I want, let's put it this way. I 100% believe that family lines and history play a huge role in these people or the way they think with the way they're very cultish kind of a cult a, a collect a cult level kind of mentality from you know whether we're talking about the groups they grow up in from their colleges or whatever else that the family line means something to them you know I mean, you could even make the that valid conversation i mean i don't know why this doesn't get discussed more the whole uh royal line president theory that's yeah. not a theory i mean it's damn verifiable i mean it's an obvious thing that somehow they connect back to charlemagne and a couple of other royal lines and it could be coincidence i guess i don't know how that's even possible mathematically but i think it's interesting to see that you know flexner line you know maybe it's because they want you to see it and i do believe there's a level of that too like they kind of want you to see it so you're sort of giving permission but i definitely think it's more than that i think there's more of a you know there's a, a society like george carlin right it's a big club and you ain't in it i really believe that i think that they keep these things going that's why you see like the mika brzezinski on the morning joe when yes. mr brzezinski is the beginning of all this from the 70s in afghanistan you got it. And, yeah. you know, it's yes mujahideen yeah. operation exactly. cyclone operation yeah yeah, yeah look, even if you look at the dulles family, i agree like, i mean it goes back to guys... the divine right of kings going back to the achaemenid empire in ancient persia well I mean, they've you served can, you the can kings. see how they well, I mean, this idea that they have a divine right to rule eternally. And so they right. intermarry, they intermarry other aristocratic families, they keep it in-house. And that goes back even to the ancient Indian, Vedic Indian caste system. So, I mean, it's, yeah. there's something about the human mentality and psychology where once they, they gain a certain amount of power over individuals and have a certain amount of wealth, they, they sort of, they come up with this idea that they're a god. And well, they... And they got family backing them up on it, whether it's the Roosevelt's or the Delano's yeah. or the Forbes family or the Dulles family. Like I, my asked the question a long time ago, how did John Foster and Alan Dulles, these young wall street lawyers end up at the per Paris Versailles peace conference, basically controlling like the allies side. Oh, their uncle was a secretary of state up until I think he died. He died in 1928. So he was still alive when they were doing that. So they're acting proxies for him. And who's he? Oh, he comes from this famous Lansing family. But also John W. Foster's up here. And you can uh, see now John Foster Dulles is named after John W. Foster. And they have a long history of working for U.S. State Department and Woodrow Wilson and, you know, these other things back 
Colonel House up, you know, very influential over Robert Lansing. So these other things that came into like our purview, like we know about the Dulleses and the Colonel, like uh, Colonel House and these sort of things. But to see like, you know, who was Colonel House's the continuity, dad? right? Yes. The continuity. Yeah. Like Colonel House's dad was to mention like that Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. He was like a Confederate bootlegger yes. dealing with the British. And that's why Colonel House was a guy of power from Beaumont, Texas. Who wasn't? A Let's colonel. not forget about Louis Brandeis too. I mean, I'm not talking about the. Well, he's friends with there. the Flexners. He's friends with the Flexners, and yeah. he's also a Zionist, and he's sitting on the Supreme Court during Woodrow oh, Wilson's geez, tenure. You said the Z word. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, Z that, word. It's a, you have to. I mean, the, the Zionist element of this is damn near everywhere. I mean, it, yes. we, and this is the thing. I'm so glad today that people are finally beginning to kind of break this kind of like narrative control around like anything negative about Israel is somehow racist or anti-Semitic. It's, I mean, are there people that are anti-Semitic and racist? Yes, of course there are. But does that mean every criticism of Israel falls in that category of any, a child would see that that's ridiculous, right. but it, it's being broken. Like remember, remember the days when there is no Palestine or everyone in Palestine's a terrorist, how those narratives even were allowed in an honest discussion is beyond me, but we're, we're past that now. And I, I just came to the point about um, who was it? I was just talking about this. Oh, it was it was uh, Kolomoisky. The, the the he's the primary backer financially of Zelensky. Funded his campaign, gave him security, oh, cars, yeah, yeah, everything, yeah. Yes, and he's also yeah. the guy who owns the TV station that used to work with Zelensky and then became the cabinet. It's, this is no joke, by the way. His cabinet and his presidential cabinet were the people that worked at the TV station. Yeah. You can look this up on Wikipedia. No, no, Let's it's go. true. Yeah, we have, but, so but, that's all Yeah, so but so it's how uh, they can have a president who played the piano with his dick and also dances so well in those high heels. <laughs> Because like, whereas Trump owned, like he's a billionaire and he was the star on the show where he makes the decisions like this guy proxied it out to Zelensky and then was like, hey, maybe that Robin Williams movie where he becomes president as a comedian could, could work in Ukraine. Like it flies over there. It didn't fly. But no, not many. It was good part reviews. of a documentary called uh, Star Suckers talking about how we're going to move that direction. I mean, it already had happened with I mean, we already had Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Right. So it's not right. Like, yeah, the first one. Not, yeah. Or Ronald, was he the first? I think it was at least the first. I think he right? was at least yeah, from Hollywood directly. In some right. Past, and yeah. prominent actor. I meant. Yeah. 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 Well, what's interesting, though, is, I mean, you, you can see the, the need for this, like the, the influence that these actors have over the mind and the individual from a young age, like, because, you know, children don't care about politics, but they sure as hell care about that person on the TV. Yes. You know, it, it resonates <laughs> with them. And so you can see the Zelensky part of it where they primed this. Like he literally played the president and like you, you, you could say this on Twitter, like a couple, like a month ago and people would have called you fake news because they just can't believe that actually happened. He literally played the president and then became the president. It's like, really? It's like, that's ridiculous. Nope. It's certainly true. But the, the point was Kolomoisky, who not only was the primary backer of this guy, who is, you know, openly sort of like an extremist himself, but he is an open Zionist. He now lives in Tel Aviv. His son's name is Israel. And guess what? He's also one of the primary backers and funders of the Azov Battalion. It's all on the record. I was just going to say, yeah, that I saw some news about that this week, how he's back. That's what makes yes. people's heads yeah, go I Jimmy boom, Dore dude. About that, because I was like, you know, yeah. uh, of you course, know, Jimmy Dore talks. You probably watch my show and then give me, give me credit for it. It's the modern <laughs> version. It's the modern version of using Reinhard Galen to train the Mossad in the early days when you're like, why are the Nazis training the that. new Israeli special defense forces and stuff, right? This is the same thing, because like even my dad said, well, how can they have Nazis over there when their president's Jewish? And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like it's a complicated situation, dad. <laughs> like they, they work really hard at you know, making it all confusing for people. But to but Ryan's point, that's so frustrating to me because I don't even think that's a it's not that complicated. I know. I was just going to say it's not to recognize that someone Jewish can work. There were Jewish collaborators during World War Two. 
I mean, why if that should be the end of that conversation, you should laugh at for making that argument because it's subjective yeah. and it doesn't even make sense. A minority of the Jew of the Jewish people also made up the uh, the um, the German army, not part of the SS, say, but yeah, more part German, of the German Hitler army. Had German right. officers. So it was Jewish not in well, German yeah, officers sure. as well that were SS, actually SS. That's a whole separate. So I mean, like let's people need to take a step back a little bit. No, people right, do. Right. To Ryan's point, they do get incented or incendiary over any mention of Zionism. But I want to show even yeah. an official story. This is Paris 1919 by Margaret oh, McMillan, yeah. a good book. the granddaughter of David Lloyd George, who was uh, prime minister of UK at that time, of England of that, at that time. Paris 1919, the last chapter is all about Zionism, the Balfour Declaration, Colonel House, right. British Israelism. Like it's here in the official story. So, right. the, you know, the people who make those arguments, first off, you're not even acquainted with like the official story in our culture that's out there on these topics, it let alone the authoritative texts that underpin and the other people who were there and their testimony to what happened and why. Yeah, it's it's been socially engineered over the years. I mean, this has been an agenda. That's what we were kind of just talking about. It's kind of ebbed and flowed, right? Like they got a really successful push with this narrative like where oh yeah there was never even a palestine well here's gold of my air one of the founding members openly saying she was a palestinian oh you're fake news you know it's like they don't even care but now we've gotten to a point to where people are more open to it you're realizing there's more behind the story you know and it's it's really frustrating though because it's such an obvious sidestep you know that and i mean i always point out that there's there are gigantic orthodox jew organizations in israel that are openly saying zionism has stolen our religion and is yes. literally hijacking this and using oh, it yeah. and so i'm not saying i even necessarily agree or don't agree i do have my opinion but that's not the point they are jewish people and they open orthodox jewish people and orthodox. they are screaming and I, there's videos of that those kind of groups getting beat up by the idf because they don't say the right thing like how does that even make sense in the and then it also thing? went on under covid where they cracked down on Orthodox right. Judaism yeah. in Israel. Cause what I saw was Israeli police beating Orthodox Jews. And if you would have turned it black and white and said, this is world war two, people would be like, that's world war two. It's the same situation. It's very ironic by the way, after, you know, the history that had been suffered that it's like turning turn around and do it to power because the, police the aren't strip. different just because they're in Israel. They're following order, orders. Well, how, how about this? How about the idea that you can we can talk about the Palestinian situation for for decades and decades, and then suddenly the Israeli people themselves become the very thing that I mean, COVID nineteen. I mean, yeah. you, did you see how the many boosters. Israeli people yeah. were outraged about this? I mean, well, they have a right to be. They they yeah. were like, go ahead and use the Israeli people. Use them. Right. As their, Pfizer's as their like, Israel. we have a whole test group. It's called Israel. They, they yeah. openly said that they called it five, yeah. they called it the world's lab. That's right. their words. So Israeli people were rightly outraged. I think they lost a lot of control right there. I really do. They also yeah. were one of the first ones to institute that green pass. I mean, I was seeing yes. video going back how they already had it uh, sort of in place and in institutions like McDonald's and just your everyday like places that people would frequent. And yeah, you literally could not order from the kiosk unless you could scan your green. Right. I mean, and then of course, three, four booster shots and this stuff being just completely belligerent with their activity in regards to what they're doing to their own citizenry. And so it's sort of like they, it's almost like they imported the Nazi model you know, into, yes. uh, into well, look, Israel I mean, and then is, sort of the gaslit heart. the public by saying, Oh, you suffered under the Nazis. So we have the right to do this to you or some, some crazy oh. sort of contradictory premises of that nature. And they just go, Oh, but they're Jewish. So you're wrong. Right. That, yeah, that's right. that sidestep right there. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, right. well, that's not the point. I mean, yes, I, I tried to show this in the conversations of the Aza battalion and the CIA fascism building is that it's like, right. look guys, the government of Israel 
has openly been called out for funding the Azov Battalion back when they were openly calling them a neo-Nazi group, right? Even because they still are today, they always have been, but there was a moment where the Western press, like right up until 2021, the end of it, were still going, they're bad and dangerous. And then it shifted. They're like, no, they're on our side. You know, it's like yeah. just this child shift, shift just happened. If yeah. I'm understanding. That's the thing. Yeah. Go but ahead. my point is that Israel, it was, it was caught funding them and their own people were like, are you funding Nazis? And the point is even the Haaretz wrote about it. Well, it's not the first time they've done this. They've done it here. They've done it here. The U.S. government. There's declassified documents where the, the U.S. government was openly working with Nazis, not working with like Project Paperclip or Dr. Ishii after the fact, but during and collaborating with Nazis. So why are we even having the conversation like we shouldn't be able to point at history that they told us about and now we're not supposed to talk about it? It's just it's everything means nothing today. I mean, there was have- a shared ideology. I mean, I, this is a, to- a topic I, I run town hall every other week for the GTW community. And a topic was brought up that like for how as great as someone like Nikola Tesla was, and he was certainly an incredible figure in history, he was also a eugenicist. And so we brought up our articles about eugenicist, about how he saw society at 2100. And I think it was from the Atlantic Journal or something like that. I forget. I have to look up the publication again. But it was back in like 1935. July something 1935, where he's talking about sort of the vision of the future. And I, I had to tell the group, I'm like, look, I have a lot of respect for Nikola Tesla and uh, his sort of Oregon Einstein and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and also giving us the modern world, literally the modern world. But at the same time, use this as an example of just how rife this was in the culture. Among any, most of the intellectual elites of that day, this was just commonplace. Eugenics was a commonplace idea. This was not, it was out in the open. You can go back and find posters about it. And it's sort of the positive eugenic sense, not the negative <laughs> eugenics. They had literally, I forget who coined that term. Uh, it'll come to me in a little bit. That's from the 19th century, but they talk about positive and negative eugenics. I want to say it's Colton, but I'll have to go back and look that up. Nonetheless, but, they, but to the point, it's just like, this was popular to a certain extent, at least amongst the intellectual elite, the intellectual intelligentsia across the world, not just in America, but also in Germany. So they had a shared ideology. Now they also had a shared ideology. The new thing. Like, he, you know, experts yeah, right. out of their area. What is it? The Gell, the Gell man effect that the Michael Crichton yeah. coined. Yeah. You know? And he wined and dined with elites because he needed funding from private entities oh, yeah. to do his project. So it wasn't anything like out of the ordinary. For me, it was just like, I can I can separate out his genius from the fact that he's also human and understand the tragedy that exists there and that we should we should use him as an example of making sure we 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 hedge against really bad ideas. He didn't have the internet to know that JP Morgan was a pit viper. Yeah, we didn't, he had to find that out later when he stripped down the warden clip town. The, the, yeah, yeah. the interesting part about this is it goes, as to your point, it goes very recently. I don't know what the date was, but I mean, the Galton Institute was literally called the Eugenics, yes, Eugenics Foundation right. or something like that, like right, very recently. You know, it's it's like, and these are people that are involved in COVID right now, you know, Dude, it's, it's right up to a, right up to the turn of the century. It was, it was 1990. Like the, they changed it or something the like Bill that. Bill Gates That's how thing, it was crazy. called the Population Control Council. <laughs> it was straight up like, here's Jeez. Bill Gates and popular, you know, it was his family, I think, that was speaking at it. But. So crazy. And then yeah. you see what they get into, which is the sort of the envisionment or the embodiment and manifestation of what was talked about in the Flexner Report and sort of yes. this new oil-based exactly. medicine, this sort of institutionalized Playing medicine. God. Yeah. Just playing God. Them. Now it's now we have what gene therapies running around. Oh God! And so it's, it's like it's getting yeah. it's getting so I, the, what's going on behind the scenes is what scares me right now because we don't me know too. like exactly like we didn't know this was really happening the way it really is and we we theorized but it's like God it scares me. Same with in space by the way. I bring that up all the time. I mean, it's like, we're so distracted with what's going, who knows what's going on up there right now? Like they, they could have, I mean, it's not, this is not crazy. They no, I, I have a friend that works in aerospace. 
yeah, that he tells me some of the stuff that goes on. Like they're they're 50, 75 years in advance of anything they would tell the public. And the yeah. big thing that really bothers me is it's not it's not what's in like the sort of lower atmosphere, just like outside the Earth's like sort of uh, initial layers. They have like the stratosphere, the tropopause, all that stuff. Like they have these satellites that can take like high definition resolution. That's just constantly photographing every single aspect of America and other nations. Mm. They're cloaked. They sort of sort of like the ability to bend light around itself. So it's just like there's really advanced technology going on in regards to being able to it's spy on their own citizenry. So when people think they're just going to hide in a forest somewhere, good luck. Yeah, uh, especially yeah, sort of the infrared yeah. technology and stuff that's going on, ability to cloak itself and do like 4K high def resolution stuff. And this is from he said these are army men and sort of uh, that went to work at what Je- is Jeff Bezos is. Um, Blue Origin. So he was telling me like what he talks about from what they were doing in the army and all these like special uh, special projects. And these were like his managers. You know, he was tasked with like the, designing a, a network system for a rocket ship. And he left recently because he couldn't stand the sort of bureaucracy involved there. But he was just telling me like this, these are the type of people that are already telling me like this is what's up there. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like that's kind right. of so you good luck hiding. It was his point. <laughs> yeah. And imagine imagine that level of advancement, but in like bio nano research, you know, like right. smart dust was around. I keep talking about this smart dust, this, the, the, the size yeah. of like the eighth, the size of a grain of salt or like the sheet of a paper. Like these things were around in 2007, 2009. There's these just discussions about smart dust that was literally so like it, it would it could blow it like dust it could land your skin and your own your body's own motion would would work i mean this was being discussed i've seen i saw there's an open discussion like it was like a wearables kind of like a, a symposium and it was like yeah. 2014 and he was pointing back at this research from like 2007 he's like you know imagine where it is now it's probably being used i don't know why we wouldn't think about that you know it's such a crazy ex- escalation that we have no control over it really is alarming we're in a a dangerous time right now, especially when they're sort of backed into a corner. Yeah, that's the thing. If they get back into a corner, and that's one of the sort of harrowing, sort of pretentious warnings of people like Carl Sagan and, and like even Carol Quigley, which obviously tragedy and hope, and what we talk about all the time is that at periods of time, paradoxically, when there was the greatest amount of freedom, we had equal armament, equal technology between the population and the government. Now we have the, maybe the greatest gap in all of human history. Oh, yeah. And that's then we have the greatest amount of slavery in all of human history. And I just, I, I always play with that or ruminate on those, that idea in the back of my mind. I'm like, I wonder if there's some sort of, it's not just a correlation. There's like something positive there is like mm-hmm. when we have such a huge power gap, which is a knowledge, a knowledge gap necessitates a power gap when the knowledge gap is basically a few it's also a wealth gap. engineer it's also it's wealth a technology gap, gap. they're all you the same it. thing all the same thing it's all eugenics. and that's, that all falls in the same category yes right? i mean right. you're, it's it's a it's a tiered society but it's also based on that exact fact they're deciding who is and who is not you know the haves and have nots i mean it's the same idea so yeah, it's that, part the island it's part elysium it's like luke radowski t-shirt with the venn diagram <laughs> of all the dystopian movies <laughs> what what's uh yeah what's uh, the time machine world called the more murlocs and that's what and I the eloy the morlocks and the eloy that's what i always think about that's yeah. i mean there's that's actually the best analogy for where like an organically divided society would end up i mean you're going to become yeah. like different entities that's what we talk about like the genetic manipulation yeah. this isn't even like a hypothetical like if you literally create the ability to engineer yourself and it's only going to be given people that can afford it it would be a matter of generations before you're like literally different species because you're going to make yourselves smarter, faster. It's just going to exactly what that is. 
and they would separate themselves to keep safe. Like that's sort of what Dune talks about with the spice trade a little bit. Like we'll get whether it's whether it's technologies or there's a special drug they develop. Like it makes Mm -hmm. people there's there's a this was from New Scientist in June seventh. Let me bring this up. Oh no, that's not it. There's a so there's a I remember it was either in the BBC. It was one of these scientific journals talking about in two hundred. 200,000 years or something there's there's or 20,000 years they're talking about how there's going to be a genetic divergence between human beings there'll be a different species emerging so they and they're looking to percent like whether that's true or not they want to seemingly want to manifest that well, my joke is going to be that, which means it's probably going to happen in like five years. Right? That's <laughs> right. what they do. They're like, this is like, like I always make the joke about like fourth, like Klaus Schwab joking about the fourth industrial revolution, right? They, they play these videos that were like from like five years ago where he's talking about the fourth industrial revolution of the implantables and all this stuff. And people right. listen to that and they think, oh, that's like way, that's like, like reading boys life when you're 10 about flying cars. You're like, wait, that's yeah. like forever. Yeah. forever. Yeah. But no, that's being built right now. And you didn't know that, you know, it's like, that's what that really means right there. Here it is. I found it. Human species may split into human humans. Humanity may split into two subspecies. This is from October seventeenth, two thousand six. Bottom picture. That's, that's subspecies on hundred. Right. I know. Look how they. This is what they view it as. Right. A hundred thousand years time is predicted by H.G. Wells, an expert has said. The so London School of Economics. London School of Economics. <laughs> the Fabian Socialists, sponsored by a, the Rothschilds, unreal, had to say man. that it's a genetic upper class. So it's not even like a story about different group of people. We call it manifest. It's destiny. like the people who bring you that story are the people creating the World Government Summit and the World Economic Forum and well, these other things right. we see it's today. It's probably not true because we can't account for speciation evolutionary theory. That's a whole other issue. But they're trying to force it through these new strange technologies they're developing in some capacity. Yeah. So. They want to crack the code on life to have command and control of all life known in the universe. Didn't they see yeah. the alien, the Ridley Scott films? Like every time you try to do that, you just create a more sort of rapacious demonic creature in the process. So right. maybe they're into that stuff. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I play a clip all the time uh, from a great documentary. I forget what it's called. I think it's something Inc or incorporation or something. It's, it's about the genetic, you know, mapping and, and the way mm. that this has been like a wild West for a while now where like the moment they got this certain lawsuit, I forget the name of it. It just kind of opened these doors and it's just this endless map, every single new life form they come across. Now, technically it's not supposed to apply to humans, but there's like loopholes to how this is working even now, but they've basically mapped and like patented almost everything they can. Yes. And that's crazy alarming. And that's they've sequenced practically everything. That's the scary thing. The patenting part of it. Phylogenetic tree. Because you get into the idea of whether or not the injection they're giving people, and this is not, I, look, this is not whether or not. They just don't want to admit the fact. There have been at least five or six peer-reviewed scientific articles that have come out that said this does alter your DNA. So the yes. point is, does that then make you something that they've patented? And that's not some conspiratorial concept, like legitimately. It, it a, exists a as a precedent already exactly. in, in, in regards to grain, like GMO crops and corn or soil. I mean, that's already been determined. And that's something that when we had Patrick Wood on, he was talking about, he was talking with Steve Bannon of all people who was, you know, advisor for Trump and sort of policies. And he thinks the next big policy push is going to be this exact issue. Like uh-huh. what is identity? What is identity? And like, that's scary coming from someone like that. who has been on the inside a little bit. We're if he's pushing that it. much, because it's like, oh, that's, that's very ominous for what's coming in the future then. Because to your point, you're exactly right. There's already precedent set in the world of agriculture. Is that just going to transfer over to human beings as such? It's, yeah, that's it's scary crazy to think about. Hey, LD, I, I, do, we have, do we have that other clip from the World uh, Government Summit? There was like a five-minute clip that we were looking for. Did we ever find that? 
Because what I wanted to do was I wanted Ryan to showcase uh, his publication and where people can get his links. And then I wanted to bring Derek on and maybe have Ryan stay and hang out because we're going to talk about an article published on his site. But I also wanted to get that clip on the record so we could talk about it together. Did we find it? Uh, Which whose clip was that? I think there's hours and hours. So I was like trying to look through, but it's difficult. Yeah. I don't know. Like without a more like detailed. Yeah, okay. I, I am so probably going to have to get out of here in the in the next ten minutes or so. So I'm, I'm, I'm all right, right on. All right, so let's let's do this. Let's uh, let's sign Ryan out. We'll do, go to a clip, then we'll bring Derek on. Ryan, where can we find your fu- your fine work that we abbreviate all the time so carelessly as T Lab without telling people the whole URL? Can you? No worries. The Last American Vagabond. I'm down to hang out for a little crossover. If you want to ask yeah, cool. us questions together, that's fine. But yeah, the LastAmericanVagabond.com. As always, that's the the best place to go. And so don't, as I always say, don't let if, if i made a conduit between us them you, you and our information essentially right go directly to the source always we have a lot of members of our community that was we're very excited fantastic thank you for coming on and sharing you know having a conversation with us they My really pleasure. love your work and they thank promote you. you all the time within our community and so we try to that's our future is because i can't go through all three hours because of how busy i am during the week i'm trying to get people Likewise. on the inside of our community to get, get us clips that we can show throughout our show so that's the thank future you. project the other thing is um uh there's this are you aware of this truth art show ld did you see that comment about uh oh yeah ryan Rich, got Richard that ryan may include his music in the truth art show au client gtw i don't think ryan knows the truth art show is connected with richard is there anything you want to say to that or i just i want to get done right before we let ryan go so he's a oh the blowback gallery july uh truth art uh festival yeah i got a I got an installment, installation. About including Ryan's music or something like that. I mean, we have a yeah. conversation in the background or, or you know. Yeah, that's so. awesome. I I don't think I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I knew it was connected to you guys. That's awesome. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. So it's a it's an art show, I guess, where that music will be playing. Is that is somebody reached out to me about that? Yeah. Okay, so good, good. Uh, Stephanie probably that. reached out to you. The guy who owns the gallery, his name's Jeff Medine. He's in Pueblo, Colorado. His art his his gallery has featured like truth 9-11 truth type uh, art over the years these sort of things so he's having a, uh, a get together this summer uh, an art gallery kind of in person get together but I'm I'm submitting a virtual exhibit because I'm doing one on uh, Mark Lombardi and how he influenced my creation of the history blueprint and kind of so you know it doesn't have to be painting on a canvas on a wall you're a right. musician music's good for me kind of educational art like i've done and uh yeah i'm looking for other people i was trying to round up anthony frida and a couple other people i knew that would be interested in a gig like that but that's good mentioning tony good thinking good looking out yeah, for jeff very cool oh that's actually stephanie that messaged us and oh right on yeah, good because so i'm not thank looking you, at, i don't look at messages during the show stephanie so you got to hit tony up <laughs> it's honestly thanks to the fact i can't stand the way zoom does it and has this little Q and A box and yeah. it just sits there. Anyways, well, so. but to what you said in general, Tony, I, I really, I, I really respect what you guys do as well, and I'm so glad that you're doing the same thing in long form in the same way. You know, it, it's just so invaluable today. So I just, I'm thank you. And the crossover is perfect because we focus so much on history, and then you also bring in history to current events, and so there's like a there's a, it's, it's a likeness, a similarity, it's sort of an analogy there where it works together so seamlessly. So we super appreciate it, and we hope to have it on again. This is fantastic. So yeah, first time you. I got to interact, so I really appreciate getting to meet you. Yeah, me too. Nice to meet you, Tony. Yeah, nice to meet you. All well. right, so Ryan, you're welcome to hang out until you have something better to do. Derek, how you doing tonight, man? Good to see you. Hey, what's up, brother? Can you guys hear me okay? 
Yeah, we can hear you, right? You're a busy good. man getting stuff done every day of the week, in person, online. You're like a man of many spaces all the time. How you been? Well, I was I drove for seven and a half hours today and just got out of the car a couple hours ago. So having my midnight smoothie before bed and uh, <laughs> got a, another seven hour drive tomorrow. I'm on the, the last couple of days of the Mexico activation tour. We've been on the road for five weeks now, spreading the message around Mexico. Yeah, I've been seeing your post, man. I think it's amazing. You, do, you get to do so much in person doing the work, whereas a lot of people are tied to just like their outlet is online but you do it online and in person. And then this past week you wrote this incredible article, but I don't want to talk to you about that article. I want to talk to you about the article you wrote in November about, uh, uh, wait, no, it's this one. It's this one. Cause I thought this was awesome. The great narrative in the metaverse part one. Yeah, that one, the, that was a fun one. (laughs) <laughs> Let me put it on the screen because I think it ties in. It's Klaus Schwab and Dubai and UAE and all the sort of stuff we're seeing in this past week and the other article that we'll get to in a second. But there was a lot of good parts in here that I thought, you know, I just wanted to put it on people's uh, radar about this great narrative conference. And then the the criminal, the human rights violations of the UAE that's hosting the current world government summit, right? It's all, so like six months ago, some of the problems that they were discussing about, Hey, this is kind of baggage is now uh, here's the new article. While you were distracted by Will Smith, the international elitists met at the world government summit. I didn't see the article right away. I saw you tweet about it before you published it. And I was like, what? Cause all I had seen is the slap, bro. All I was seeing was Chris Rock and Will Smith. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's a world government summit. And then when I get into your article and I dig into it and I get into the source material and watching these videos, I'm like, these people have done this before. Why didn't I know about this? Did you know about this? Have you covered this in past years? Oh, you're muted. Could you repeat that again, Richard? I'm sorry yeah, if yeah. I cut in and out. I have an unstable connection. Not a problem, bro. And I won't keep you too long either, but I did want to plug this fine work because like sometimes, it. sometimes, you know, internet doesn't really get to read all the stuff that you write. And uh, I wanted to point out this is hey, this hey, the Richard, first year. Can of- I jump in real quick? I'm just gonna go ahead and say because I, I want to let you guys talk with Derek. I just, I know yeah. I thought there was gonna be an overlap or whatever, but I, I'll let you guys get into it. Derek does such great work for T Lav, and I hope you guys check out these articles because they are out out amazing like they really are like this has been blowing up t-lab site for the last couple of days and it's exactly what you guys missed if you were focused on the slap we were just talking about that derek the, the slap so it's kind of a funny crossover but i'll let you guys chat hey thanks for having me on guys and nice talking with the audience and everybody else so have right a good on night. ryan yeah we'll catch you later have a great night ryan yeah so my question was like i didn't know about this world government conference and i was a little incredulous i saw your tweet i was like because it was april 1st and i thought maybe derek's got an april fool's joke and then I saw it was a real thing. I was like, oh, geez, I got to catch up. So did you know about this conference in years before? No, actually, I feel for me I, because it's it has been happening for, I think, five, six years at least. Um, and I thought Musk spoke at it before. You know, definitely been some some power players involved before. But I felt uh, like uh, I was slacking a little bit for not knowing that it was happening at this, you know, in, in years past. But it seems like... Um, with everything going on and like you were just saying in relation to the great narrative summit it seems extremely important and you know not to jump the gun too much but for me one of the insights that i didn't really include in the article is i think that the great narrative meeting at in the uae and this are indicative that in the new world order the uae is going to play a major role for sure yeah i thought that was very telling uh because i didn't um 
I didn't know about the world government summit. I didn't, I didn't catch your article on the metaverse until I think I finished reading the first article. And then it's like, Oh, there's the metaverse article. And I clicked that open. I went back and read that one. Is there a part two to that one yet? Yeah, there is. Yeah. They're, they're All both right. listed on, uh, on, t on the last American vagabond. I think Ryan has a page for my articles and there's actually a page for the, there, there's a few articles that I've done, you know, two or three parts. And that one is one of the most recent ones I've done. I think it yes. was Kemp that was saying that Dubai would be this, like this technological industrial center for the world economic forum or something that affects it which is well, in it's the like UAE, a place which they is built interesting. from scratch yeah. to demonstrate future cities and kind of what you can yeah, do you with narco-terrorism money if no one's looking at the books major from bcci <laughs> <laughs> before yeah. dubai there was bcci and a bunch of money went missing from a bunch of people who are still players today so i don't know but yeah they do they seem to have that because when they showed there was a presentation they did in the source material about designing cities of the future and they have a heat map of where populations are condensed and they're right in the middle of like two thirds of the world populations in Asia, like in that one quadrant and they're like in the middle of it. So they make it like the London or DC or Paris of the future yeah. because these other cities are going to have to be renovated in the great reset and get smart cityed up. Like they're going to do in New York. I mean, part of what they did in COVID was, you know, get a whole bunch of people. Like they've out already so they done can, a lot of that infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Bezos bought up tons of land Schmidt from Google. They bought up tons of land in, in New York city. So yeah, I, I see That's the trends guy. you're pointing out. And um, they, they're consistently like proving you right in what you're saying. Yeah, I think that so I definitely do encourage uh, you, Richard, as well as anybody who hasn't read it to go read both parts of that great narrative article there, because it just, you know, it outlines everything that they were talking about. And it's already we're already kind of seeing it come to fruition. And then in relation to the World Government Summit, you know, I, I it's it's um, it's fun whenever you get an opportunity to take a pop culture pretty meaningless like oh will smith's left and use it in a way like this like ryan said right now it's been it's definitely been i think on our on our website alone not to mention you know uh aggregation and and uh reposts from other website i think we're pretty close to surpassing 100,000 unique views of the article just in the last few days so it's getting out there it's being reposted to other places and that's part of my strategy was like you know what i see the moment everybody's talking about this thing that i barely heard about because i've been on the road and, oh, there's this world government thing. Well, let's just put those two things together. You know, I only mention it in the first sentence. It's just the, it's just the pull in for people who might not read it otherwise, right? To see like, oh, what's this all about? It's like but reverse clickbait like, from an yeah, authoritative exactly. position. <laughs> You're like shaming us. You were shaming. I had shared some Chris Rock funny ha-ha memes and, and Will Smith. And then I see that. And I'm like, oh, I got work to do. And it was like a good call to action. <laughs> I like good, that reverse clickbait. Yeah. yeah. I think that's powerful. It's it's as powerful as the idea of the you know the uh, the the great reset or the greater reset, right? Like circ like circumnavigating their ideas. So yeah, let's let's use that. Let's let's yeah. move that idea. Before. Well, I think that one of the things to take away from not only my article but just from the meeting for one for anybody who hasn't read read it, please go take some time. It's not extremely long. I tried to. I tried to just squeeze it and it was really like, again, a spur of the moment. I'm like, I have a day off on tour. I'm writing this article. This is a moment I could tap into the, you know, the, the zeitgeist for the moment. And people will share it. Um, but I mean, I don't think I've seen other than we all have seen the clips of George Bush and all the different presidential figures and prime ministers kind of referencing New World Order. But they're literally saying, are we ready for a New World Order? And, and like the panel right after Klaus Schwab and just the 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 kind of out in the openness is is. It's astounding. I mean, it's not really surprising for those of us who've been paying attention, 
Um, but I do think, again, you, you mentioned some of the uh, smart cities aspects or the future cities. Mm-hmm. I included in there, one of the panels was about human meta cities, um, which is a thing, a term we're gonna probably hear more about. And I did a little bit of research trying to find any other references to it. Um, I did see a couple of like UN documents on uh, the United Nations Habitat website where they talk about like a meta city is basically like you were saying, a future city, a city of the future. It's a metropolis, but it's kind of can bring in the technology and it's a place where there's going to be industry and commerce, you know, commerce and all this stuff. And they try to make it sound like, you know, the, the best thing anybody would want to want to live in. But I think to those of us who know what's going on, that it, it's going to be a digital prison. Um, and yeah, and I think also the in relation to the UAE, the younger generation of you know his holiness his highness as they like to refer to themselves they are trying to really play themselves as the young progressive generation of you know this human rights abusing regime that has been around and so they're totally trying to spend themselves as we're the the young global leaders we're here to bring in technology they had a whole day dedicated to how can women you know be a part of this agenda and how do we you know bring the kids sustainable development goals and how are women going to accomplishes full development goals. So it's, they're definitely trying to put the veneer of progressive, you know, uh, social justice, et cetera, on top of their, uh, their plans. Yeah. It's a good rebranding for them. <clears throat> and Klaus is like, he's into it. Cause he's like, look, everything here is new. The whole, everyone dresses in white. This looks really good with the blue background, these sort of things. Like it's, it's totally globalism 101 from like the you'll own nothing and like it 2030 kind of agenda that they're putting out there. So um, I, I didn't know. Um, I didn't know the Atlantic council had anything to do with it either. Cause I kind of follow what those dudes are up to. And like Kemp's like, Oh, this is the eighth time I've d- given this talk. And I'm like, Oh, like, how are these guys off the radar? They're neocons. They're hanging out with Kagan and Victoria Newland. Like they're known as far as they exist and what they're doing. But I just didn't see how it was off my radar. So I'm glad it was kind of like not on your radar too much before I got to your article. <laughs> and it wasn't like something like it's been going on. We've been going to the conference and covering this for eight years, Grove, and you didn't, you didn't pay attention to it. No, no, I'm glad. No, I, I think miss. maybe, uh, maybe more of us were slipping on it and sleeping on it because I honestly hadn't really heard anybody else mention it either previously. So I think it's just another thing that we all need to be paying attention to. In addition to the, you know, cause as you know, Richard and Tony, like that they'll, it's like the Bilderberg or the Trilateral Commission and you get your energy onto one little group, but then over here, they've got new groups forming a new, you know, round table front groups and things like that. So it's not just the WEF that we should be paying attention to. It's the World Government Summit and it's the Atlantic Council. It's all the different groups involved in there. And um, they're clearly making some plans for this year. Like I mentioned in the article, they talk about Ukraine. They talk about, oh, the world after oil and net zero, sustainable development. And net zero is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. That was huge. And that kind of, because like one of the things you to to, to sort of the piggyback, what you're saying there, Derek, is there's the trilateral, there's the WEF, there's the Atlantic Council, there's all these disparate groups, but like, what are the common themes amongst those groups? So I think that's the important thing that why we should be aware of what, what are the general themes they're all talking about and where do they sort of overlap? Because then we can get an idea of like what's the major sort of like uh, meta theme that's not, not to bring in the whole metaverse con, but meta theme that they're they all are aligning to, and that the thing I see is sort of this like future development through technology based on the sort of like impending climate change narrative they keep like you know uh, bolstering and, and perpetuating forward, and so that's something I've been noticing. Whether it's you know bringing in different 
blocks of countries that talk about it. That seems to be somewhat of like what the you know, World Summit is talking about, the World Economic Forum and Davos. So they they have like a positioning geographically in the planet, you know, getting certain countries to come together. It's like seemingly getting everyone onto the same page under these different summits, different groups, so forth and so on. Have you noticed anything of that nature, like any sort of like meta theme or general themes that sort of span over all of these different sort of organizations? Well, I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head that more people need to be paying attention to ESG. Um, people yeah. have become familiar with the sustainable development goals over the years. People are familiar with social credit scores, um, but the ESG is a big part of that. And right now, the way we're hearing about it is ESG in terms of corporations. How are the corporations going to um, you know, have their environmental, social governance criteria, et cetera. But I am one of the people who is of the belief, and maybe you guys are as well, that it's eventually that is what will be applied to people, individuals, and that'll be mm-hmm. part of the social credit. I actually have an example of that. That's right. Uh, I have a friend that works in the corporate world, and there's, so she's being pressured right now uh, in order to see she runs her own business and she interfaces with Fortune 500 companies. And she was telling me like the big pressure she's experiencing right now is ESG to adopt ESG principles. And that's just going to be a slow drip, a, you know, sort of frog and boiling water analogy or cliche at this point of what's going on, because it's going to force us all to engage with these, in, in, you know, these uh, sustainability goals and governance and whatnot. So, And little companies aren't going to be able to afford to do that. And that's how they weed out the non-globalist companies to have only globalist homogenized future, the same way that you put weed killer on your lawn to have only one type of grass grow on it. ESG. Uh, guys, I hate to burn off so quick, but I, I am going to have to get out of here in a minute, Richard. No, nah, that's good. Um, I was about to let you off the hook because I know you got to sleep before you drive again and travel and all this stuff. I, but I, yeah, can I mention one more thing to you? Yeah. I just, I just want to plug this because Richard, you and I got to speak recently and uh, do an interview that is for the Pyramid of Power series. And I just want to mention, because we're, we're working on that right now, we're actually going to be releasing our trailer for uh Season three, for those who are unaware, um, halfway done with a 16-part documentary series called The Pyramid of Power. You can find it at thepyramidofpower.net. We can watch season one and season two for free. And uh, Richard is going to be featuring pretty heavily into season three and season four. We're doing four episodes at a time. So I'm actually just finishing kind of reworking the script and working uh, our interview into the chapter on um, the foundations, the roundtable groups, et cetera. So you'll be in that that episode as well as the uh, banking cartel. And then there's probably a couple others that I'm going to end up getting you in. And I might come back with you for a few questions. But yeah, so I'm excited to get that out that we're hoping if everything goes well to start releasing the new episodes by May, the first week of May. And uh, every Friday in May, we're going to drop four more. And uh, yeah, so you'll be featured in that. And if anybody wants to check that out. Outstanding. I'm glad. Uh, hopefully some of the clips that I, you know, contributed uh, weren't too hard to edit because I know <laughs> it's not so succinct. I, it's a struggle, I'm sure. So I appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And uh, that's wonderful, man, because I think the the like kind of docu-series format where, where I get a continual pulse on a topic over a couple weeks, right? Like Aaron and Melissa just did the trust game. And when I got early access to that on Vimeo, I didn't get to see all of it. I made it through like the first four episodes, but then my schedule took over and I lost the tab. Right. But then when they put it out, like once a week, I can hit it up after my Friday night lecture. And I'm like, oh, I got a new trust game. I can check out. And I'm looking forward to getting more pyramid of power under my belt. Uh, as you come out with this new season. And again, it's just another thing that you're doing besides the writing and the traveling and the in-person activism and hosting conferences and being an inspiration and not like dragging people down. Like these are dark topics a lot of times, but you bring intellect and you bring soul and, and courage and charisma and a whole bunch of inspiration through your work. So 
on behalf of me and anyone who needs a voice in this conversation thank you dude thank you for what you do you i should have thanked job. ryan like that too i owe that yeah. to ryan too because you do a great job transmuting the negativity and finding practical solutions and trying and attempting to instantiate them so it's like you're deionizing you these polar kind of radioactive topics so and when you guys hand them to us it's like no this is this is safe and palatable and it's useful i appreciate that i appreciate yeah. that guys both both of you i appreciate that and i know ryan appreciates the support as well and i i can just say again i'll second uh, that ryan's amazing work and honestly whenever um i've been working with ryan almost for for two years now coming up in this may uh, Ryan reached out to me a couple months after the pandemic uh, pandemic began. We had kind of crossed paths a little bit here and there, but Ryan and his amazing work, he just wanted to support what I'm doing and basically said, I want to hire you. You can write about anything you want, whatever you want, just contribute. And so it's been great collaborating with The Last American Vagabond and you know, just continuing to do my work. Appreciate the opportunity to promote the article. And again, anybody who hasn't checked it out, if you've got some friends who are trying to talk to you about Chris Rock and Will Smith, especially now, I just saw that Saturday Night Live just did an episode, you know, a skit oh, about geez. it. So I'm sure more people are probably talking about it. It's it's a good time to share that article still. So I thank you for Fantastic. Get some rest, safe travels. We'll catch up with you soon. Thank you, Derek. Yeah, fantastic work. Yeah. All right. So now it's oh, back well, to me okay. to find that that World Summit clip. So we're going to play another clip. I'm going to go see if I can find where I saw that clip. Where I, I know I heard a person at that conference say that they were like, we're about to clean slate the whole financial system and make a new accounting system. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. But now I got to go find the clip. And that was, uh, it was good because uh, I do need to go make more tea and it's good. Like Derek's on the road. So we are able to let the audience, you guys know about these articles. Now go to the last American vagabond. They're very digestible. Like this is like, he does a good job of writing and making it sort of, it's not sort of recondite material. It's not even um, Bedmore does a great job here, but even it's not of like, you have to sit down and dedicate an hour necessarily. You can, he'll, you'll get to the meat of what needs to be done. This is a different style. He was like, he's, as he said, he sort of crafted it while he's on the road in between wanting to get this done. So it's not like overwhelming, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's like, sometimes I like mean, with, with web and Bedmore, which I love to death, but you do have to sit down and dedicate a little bit of time. Look, to, if you're you know? trying to read these things on your phone, I empathize with you. But like how I do it is a couple things I need to read every week that are good enough and worthy enough to print. It's yeah. like, I take the time, I print it, I sit down, I actually spend time analyzing it. So Vedmore on that article on unlimited oh, yeah, you have to print that. it said 30 minutes that. right and i spent an hour and a half with that article the first time when i printed it and then oh, i had to reprint it and highlight it last week for the show i do the same with right? Whitney's articles too yeah so yeah. um anyone that ryan's got on there that's a writer they usually do multi-part series a lot of times mm -hmm. these sort of things they're all good to print it like anyone it's, yeah. if you want to start with derek's articles that's a good invitation it's timely and jump in and then read his metaverse part one and at the bottom of the one i read That's it didn't one. have the part two yet but i'll find the part two and get you know so and then you might want to have these in a folder like this is important information about this time what we're going through and they're only going to try to censor and deep six this information as we go into the future yep. so i don't i don't read newspapers i don't read you know so i do read uh, important articles by people with intelligent, substantial, uh, investigative, journalistic integrity that are putting these things together because they need to be read and they need to be read by people like us to circulate this information and understand what's going on. Because the reason they lie to us is so that we lose our power in any given decision-making scenario. 
That means if we had the truth, we'd probably make a different decision than we are coaxed into without that, that information being available. That's life-changing stuff for everybody every day on any given topic, right? So I think it's worth our time and respect of ourselves to every now and then print something out or at least sit down and look at it on a bigger screen and consume it. Not with like the, okay, I got to go check Twitter or something like put down the unsubstantial and pick up the substantial and start internalizing it. You're going to see improvements throughout like your day. And that's going to continue into the next day. And you're going to build a more positive future with uh, better information in between your ears. All right. So that was, uh, uh, we don't usually have two guests on a show, but since Ryan was already scheduled and Derek had published on Ryan's site, this wonderful article, I thought, why not try to get Derek off the road for a couple minutes and uh, blend the two together. So That's yeah, Ryan, yeah, Ryan, thank you for, uh, for hanging out and um, we'll get all the links for both of the, uh, the gentlemen who were on here tonight. We'll get them in the show notes. So anyone listening, you don't have to go looking too far, or typing too far to find how to get in touch with Derek's articles or with, uh, with Ryan's T lab overall. Cause I really like the, like the, 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 uh, the wrap ups, the reports, I look at them as like briefings, right? <laughs> he's got something like Radowski does a good briefing, but it's a 15 minute briefing and Burmis will do like, Hey, he'll do a 45 minute deep dive and let's check this stuff out. And I'm right there with you, bro. Right. But when I'm going to Rockfin sometimes and I'm like, I don't want to touch the phone for a couple hours going to Ryan and saying, okay, brief me on what's going on here. And so it's like decentralized intelligence, open source briefings that are going on Rockfin, Odyssey float, these types of places, not so much on the YouTube anymore which is making that YouTube audience like dumber and dumber. The, the people that are like hundred percent hanging out there and not seeing outside of that. Cause the censorship keeps whittling down what they can actually see. And it's getting pretty unsubstantial. There's like, you know, interesting. It's funny just things. an entertainment platform now. Like there's nothing really substantial. Well, I don't want to say there's nothing. You go there for your Kyle Dunnigan's. But yeah, you go there for, yeah, your, your basic entertainment. Um, but like, you know, sorts. Jimmy Dore is an entertainer. He's on the rock fin doing news. And making fun of the news. And that's a pretty good gig for him. You know, think if Rogan had a show where he went over the news and made fun of it. Cause he's a comedian too. Right. If he ever saw, if he ever decided to do a that. side job beside the interviews is what his like forte has become. Cause he's a good listener. He, is he has listener. smart that's questions his, and he's yeah. a curious individual who's done a lot of interesting things. And now he has a modality to meet anybody he wants. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. And uh, you know, anyone, yeah, you guys can do likewise, learn how to do an interview skill. Uh, that's a good thing to access information in this world from other human beings who are walking around living with it between their ears. You ask them questions and you sit back and listen and take in that wisdom. It's brilliant. All right. So uh, let's wrap up world government summit with one of the other clips that you guys have there. And I'll see if I can find. Um, Okay. Was it Kristalina Georgieva? Was she the one that was talking about? Quite possibly. What you're talking about. Um, Okay. We had, yeah, we had, and and uh, there's a journalist that was in that uh, Das Forum film is actually the the one talking to her. But oh, we the were, CNN lady? No, uh, oh. CNN guy. Oh, British, okay, from the British Das guy. Forum documentary. That was the World Economic Forum documentary. All right. But and uh, so yeah, you found can, a, a potential clip. Potential. How long is it? Uh, it's just queued up in the middle of day one. So I don't know. We oh have, yeah, you're talking. That's she's the, the third one down. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. There's one on digital currency right after that too, which is five. Well, shout out to SWR002 for providing all these timestamps, by the way. Christian and Georgieva. Um, 
Then there's one after that, maybe skip to about five hours, 10 minutes. Yeah. I don't, digital currency. There's one about digital currency part two. There's, well, I could play this with her queued up and then we get rich if it's. Yeah, let's one. get you it could, started. Let's figure out what, what it is and then we'll move forward and see more. We're going to learn some stuff. Let's do it. And thank you for the time codes. Unfortunately, the common framework for debt resolution that the G20 embraced in 2020 has been still slow to deliver outcomes. Three countries asked for it. We haven't yet finished even one. On good path for Chad, on reasonably good path for Zambia. But hey, if we have 60% and only three in this restructuring, we have a problem. Why? I, I mean, I know how the UN works, and I know the IMF has... You can move very fast when you want to. Yes, Ukraine's and we do. A, Ukraine is a good example mm -hmm. of, of, of this. So as you now look to the next 12 months, mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to do this, isn't it? Because there's so many exogenous uncertainties. Yes. You just have got no idea. But what's your priority? Number one priority to clearly identify countries at highest risk and be ready for them. We have created virtually on the first day when the war started a crisis room at the fund to do exactly that. Be ahead of the curve and be able to act swiftly for countries that need us. But for the world community, for all of us in this room, my biggest hope is that the war ends. The sooner this war ends, the better for the people of Ukraine, for their neighbors, for the economy of our world. And your home country? Mm -hmm. Well, my, my home country is highly dependent on imports of primarily gas from Russia. Uh, inflation has started climbing. It is now 7%. People are anxious. And they're actually more anxious about the risk of a war spilling than anything else. My granddaughter, 11, she calls me and asks me to explain to her why are children dying in Ukraine, why there is a war. So again, we, for many of us in Europe, a war is an unthinkable event but it happened. Are you the right person in the right job at the right time, specifically <laughs> because you come from Central and, and Eastern Europe? You have a background. You remember communism. Mm -hmm. You grew up in that, yes. in that era. Your family is still there. Mm. You're on the border of the countries that are protagonists. Mm. Are you the right person in the sense that you have an understanding? Uh, Richard... I, I feel very uncomfortable to praise myself for anything, but the answer is yes. Um, and let me tell you why. In the mid-90s, I lived through hyperinflation in Bulgaria. My mother's savings evaporated in 48 hours. And I had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to kill for milk for my daughter. 
I know the pain people are experiencing now in countries where food is becoming scarce and too expensive to buy. Secondly, I am the right person because I know how devastating a Cold War is, how much it reduces the world's productive potential, and how terrible it is for people living on this other side. So I am very committed to cooperation that may prevent, after the hot war, another Cold War to split the world into two. And the third reason I'm the best person for the job in this time is uh, because uh, I was a humanitarian commissioner. I worked for five years on the front line of humanitarian crisis. And I know that acting is important. Acting swiftly makes a difference. Uh, so the fund acted swiftly when the pandemic hit. And I promise you, we are there for our members who need us now. Ladies and gentlemen, the Managing Director. I'll try this next link uh, about digital currency. So you've got the... As I pose on. questions to each of the members, I would then ask them to introduce themselves as well. So I, I, think, I think for us to get into it, it's, you know, CBDCs have become, and stablecoins, have become quite a hot topic with monetary authorities and financial institutions across the world. We, fought, we saw the first synthetic CBDC come out of Barbados, the first official CBDC launch out of uh, Bahamas, and since that period, uh, the, it hasn't stopped. We've seen the likes of, of Tether in the very early days. Um, we've seen some new stablecoins like USDC and Circle, uh, Paxos and a few other key areas uh, where, where uh, central bank digital currencies and stable coins have given rise. So I, I think my first question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to target this to, to William, is uh, can CBDCs and stable coins coexist? Yeah, hopefully you can hear me. Can CBDCs and stable coins coexist? I think uh, not so, only... Sorry, William. Can you, can you introduce yourself for the oh, audience? Sure. So I'm uh, William Quigley. I co-founded uh, Tether, which was the first stablecoin and, uh, and remains the largest stablecoin with about $30 trillion annually uh, traded. It's actually the most traded crypto on Earth. 50% of all Bitcoin trading pairs are, are paired with... Uh, with, with, with Tether. So it's actually been quite successful. Uh, but to your question, can CBDCs and stablecoins coexist? Uh, I would say not only can they coexist, but they will exist, whether or not any of the G20 want to or not. Because uh, uh, while you do have things like Tether, and Tether, of course, is backed by a dollar or dollar equivalent for every token, uh, you also have algorithmic stablecoins, which are all on-chain, backed either by a piece of collateral, like a, a, a crypto, or uh, some algorithm that manages supply and demand. Okay, so, pull him. Because uh, I found the clip. It's in the uh, production chat. And I found the time code, and it was in 
it was in a clip we were already in because it's in that first talk from the first day, but it's further into that talk. And what she says ties into what you were just hearing about, about the uh, cryptocurrency and their desire to use it uh, for maybe a great reset type thing. LD, do you have that uh, clip? It was 18 minutes, 22 seconds into that. Yeah, yeah, I've got it. Got it up now. Uh, here we go. Of money. And then here's another one of them uh, talking about their new world order at the World Government Summit. Here it is. We do not yet know the full extent and the systemic and structural changes which will happen. However, we do know that global energy systems, food systems, and supply chains will be deeply affected. What underpins a world order is always the financial system. Mm. Uh, I was very privileged. My father was an advisor to Nixon when they came off the gold standard in 71. And so I was brought up with a kind of inside view of how very important the financial structure is to absolutely everything else. And what we're seeing in the world today, I think, is we are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting, is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having a almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of the balance of power between states and citizens. In my opinion, we're going to need a digital constitution of human rights if we're going to have digital money. Uh, but also, this new money will be sovereign in nature. Most people think that digital money is crypto and private, but what I see are superpowers introducing digital currency. The Chinese were the first. The U.S. is on the brink, I think, of moving in the same direction. The Europeans have committed to that as well. And the question is, will that new system of digital money and digital accounting accommodate the competing needs of the citizens of all these locations so that every human being has a chance to have a better life? Because that's the only measure of whether a world order really serves. And the title of this session... Are we ready for a new world order? Go ahead and pull it. Oh, but you hear them. All right. So <clears throat> what I was trying to find and two hours ago, we just heard it. She just said, you got to prepare for a new type of money, a new type of accounting. They, her dad worked on Bretton Woods when they did this 50 years ago. That's probably why she's sitting on that stage. You think that qualifies her to sit on the stage? You think it's accidental? Is she just like dro name drop? She's like, oh, my dad worked for Nixon when we decoupled gold from the American dollar and just let the uh, engine go off with all the gold and the American dollar is like the train that's like no longer being pulled and slowly coming to a stop. That's what our economy is right now without any backing and without any petrodollar and without Russia using the dollar. They're, they're, speed, they're putting the brakes on to stop the rest of those train yeah. cars. Right. So there you heard it in the conversation of day one, presentation one, how they create a new world order. They just said blockchain, but it's not going to be crypto. It's going to be sovereign, which means they have what a transparent, you know, idea of every transaction in the market. 
Now, why do they got to do that? Well, there's criminals out there doing untoward things with cash, and they need to be able to track all these things with their little uh, crypto balance sheets that they're going to have with all these, uh, I'm sorry, sovereign balance sheets, right? The public uh, ledgers. But uh, it seems to me that the people doing this are the exact same narco-terrorist group of people who use the existing banking system to launder ungodly amounts of money. For like the past 50 years, definitely this is a thing going on. BCCI, I got like six or seven books on. I could stack on the desk like this and be like, there's proof. They, they, I mean, here's they do the these irony, things. right? They want to hide their transactions, so then they want but they want 100 public, they want a public ledger for right. all of us. I mean, it's right. just absurd. The only thing that could go against that would be some sort of pirate pirate coin or some sort of utilizing and they would hunt down pirates like they're creating a slave class what and she doesn't even understand anything that can hide transactions that ain't helping her family uh, you know in the future these people get sacrificed first we played that clip of john mcfee however months ago talking about the thing they're concerned about the most is this whole like pirate technology pirate coin technology using the blockchain but hiding the digital ledger instead of making it available and that's the thing they're most concerned about and they will not allow that to go forward no matter what um, that's why the original blockchain and Bitcoin and Tether and all these sort of things, it's so funny to me. I, you can see it a, a million miles away. It's like, what's totally transparent. That's the problem. And the idea is that completely, uh, compromises, uh, it compromises identity ultimately. What do you got there, LD? He's got something on screen. Yeah. Just, <clears throat> just to point out, she is council on foreign relations, Chatham house Institute for international strategic security and Royal geographical. Oh, she straddles Society. both sides of the Atlantic in the Anglo-American establishment, Chatham yeah. house and CFR. And her father, Ooh. father was a Yale graduate studies at Oxford worked uh, with Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford administrations. Jeez. Anglo-American multi-presidential <laughs> administrations, real wise man. We got there. Right. Elected rulers. Pippa. Well, transcends presidencies and people. Yeah, she seems like one of the, you know, you know, grown up in the establishment, but unwitting to what the establishment really is. Yeah, that's a lot of Daddy probably didn't tell you it's about narco-terrorism, sweetie, and they kill little kids around the world all the time. Drop them bombs. They don't just kill them. They traffic them. They kill them. They they actually sacrifice them. They do a lot of fucked up shit that she, yeah, she's like a con in that regard as an analogy, like where it's just you know, she yeah. sees some of it goes on the inside, but she's she's not even playing cover. I agree with that. I don't know, we don't, but I would suspect that she doesn't really know the deeper inner workings of what's really going on in many respects. But she's Anglo-American enough to sit on that stage. Oh, yeah. She's well-groomed for that position. Yeah, yeah. Those individuals are well-groomed, and they sort of were brought up with the flowery language that we alluded to earlier, um, believing this ideologically possessed sort of viewpoint that like, no, this will be good for the world. I mean, well, like at the is- beginning, I remember her beginning of the conversation where she said, like, we have to bring the Internet to these people who don't have the Internet. It's right. like, that's another liberals killing them with kindness. Yeah. What do you, you think it. it's going to bring? Oh, you want to bring Pornhub to that little the little place in Africa that doesn't have the Internet yet? What do you think you're actually bringing in there? You're not oh, you're bringing in the United Nations Common Core program to brainwash your kids away from the parent. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff you're bringing in with that Internet that those parents are not prepared to protect their children from. Yeah, they have no and, idea what it will do. And I'll tell you this from my sort of sojourning around the Amazon jungle. Those kids that, you know, from those little tribes that work with the shamans, they, they don't they see what their their parents go through as far as being shamans. It's not fun. 
it's not entertaining. Like they don't get why they have this, like why they sort of preserve that type of technology. They like computers. They love to see Westerners bring their phones down. Like, what is this? They like to see laptops. They've never seen anything like that. So while their kids are completely fixated on our technology, we realize our technology is being used to control we're us. Fixated we're, like, we're, the, we're fixated on their hey, technology. And we're fixated on their technology. How do you use this from our technology? So it's just like, what? what an unbelievable sort of paradox and irony that's, you know, I experienced when I was down there because unfortunately I remember a couple of people telling me like, this is the number one issue. And I could see the kids absolutely fascinated by my shitty smartphone back in the day. I forget what I had back then, but it was an old, I would say that the universe has a sense of humor and we, we interpret that humor and our interaction with it as irony. There we go. Irony and synchronicity. Universe likes to make us go. Wow. Wow, you know, <laughs> well, when you point how break, big? wow, yeah, oh, no, no, wait, no, Bill Whoa, and Ted, dude. Bill and Ted, well, I take the sick. skin off of chicken. Someone go get so crates. So, what <laughs> it makes them Keanu Reeves movies? I know, yeah, I'm gonna have uh, point, to like... point break, and then you have, you know, no, he, his ben best ben. role was when he played the goalie in Youngblood. <laughs> I'm serious, man. He had a, he had a good line in that movie that too. Oh yeah, it was Rob Lowe. They're hockey players, and oh, Keanu Reeves. I'm pretty sure was the, the goalie, and he had, he had like a French accent. He's fucking an animal, man. Something nah. like that. I'm pretty sure I was I'm pretty sure it was one of his lines from that movie. That's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Before we get into Point Break references, um, Point Break and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, Isn't that excellent to each other? Be excellent to each other is actually a rule in autonomy. Did they go back in time and they get all the famous people and bring them back? And they, oh, wait, they develop world peace through, you know, electric guitars. What if they hadn't adopted technology? Could they have gone on Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? It depended on the phone booth. Phone booth was made by Bell Telephone. They're like a new world order company. Should they do it or not? I think they should do it. Let's see what happens. All right. So I watched the H.G. Wells documentary earlier this week. It was only like a half hour. But what I got was, dude didn't have a good upbringing very kind of poor challenging upbringing but then he because he was poor and had a fire inside to learn things he got around some people with library started reading books and i think by the time he was 24 he made uh wrote time traveler and by then he'd already been like married and gone off with his lover had an affair then got divorced and so yeah then he wrote time traveler i'm pretty sure what year is time traveler I always thought he was, it was like 1895. It was one was of his really? first books. That was one of yeah. his first. And yeah, I get that. Confused. And he wrote when Dr. Did you know Moreau when he started, also uh, in the 1890s, I think. So like, I was trying to just understand uh, yeah, like really, where he's Dr. coming Moreau, from. That's but I think he was just like into science and eugenics and the things no, I at think the that, time. Yeah. And then right. that popularized. And then he saw that that was a route to power. And by like 20 years later, he's in charge of psychological warfare for the British military during World War One. Yeah. Right. And then going in with the the Huxley boys. Yeah. Yeah. Literally mentors both Julian and Aldous. So, yeah. Yeah. So that dude had, he had a wild trip. Herbert George Wells did. All right. So, uh, what, what clips we got to get to? Uh, let me get, let me get this on here. No, we don't have to get, I mean, I'll just go through a quick breakdown for people who are interested. The show card is posted for GTW subscribers and the GTW Discord server under announcements. Um, the vaccines, lockdowns, and therapeutics, mostly the same. If people are interested in getting sort of a general sort of panoramic overview of what's going on, um, obviously the Jackson Report is what I recommend in that regard. There is uh, there is this. Maybe we should just... There's like a couple like 30-second clips of what's going on in China, like or just a remembrance. Like, that's kind of crazy. 
on LD if you want to bring those up real quick because they're they're worth just like reminding us of like the sort of tyranny that's been going on uh, in regards to what they still have a zero COVID. Do policy. we know if they're authentic or are they to scare? I us? haven't been able to verify that. I mean, it comes from Senna, and she's usually pretty very good about those stuff. But at the same time, like one of the clips did make me. Some of them seem very absolutely authentic, but there's I mean, just one. Just think in about there Ukraine. That, We've already seen people like yeah. staging body bags and doing a whole bunch of stuff recently that we didn't really get to see those types of things. One of the other often. problems is a lot of them are out of context. Like they could be legitimate, but the context could be missing um, around it. But some of them seemed, you know, there are so many of them that it's certainly right. many of them could have been. Right. So there's those, a fog of war with out. these things yeah. right now. So are we better? Uh, uh, should we cover the Jackson report? Did you did you review it? Do you know what's in it? Oh, it's fantastic this week. I mean, I got like glimpses of it by just like skipping around. Um, but it's you know, it's like. We could do like standard. 20 minutes. There's like 30 minutes. So however long you wanted to play of that. Yeah. Just going over what what reason why it's sort of important is it's just like reminding us that they haven't stopped the COVID narrative. Yeah. And that's I think like it's important sort of for people to understand that. Because I think a lot of them don't. They think they won. The places are kind of open. They kind of have freedom again. You don't need vaccines to go to like New York City or something like that. I don't know. Haven't been there yet, but prepare for like lockdown part two and they're going to integrate everything they learned from all the people resisting lockdown one and trying to get your religious exemptions all this stuff like they they're not going to stop that's the what's the quote from Catherine austin fitz when she told us about yellowstone you know uh the quote was like now son it's time for your last lesson uh evil wants what it wants and it's not going to stop until either it kills you or you kill it so that's the last lesson son to be able to be meaner than evil and still be able to go home love your family and enjoy a sunrise be a warrior in a garden solarireport.com there you go there's there's a plug and spontaneous clip remembering of uh, that quote see there you go it was a good page and i could see it on the page and i'm like here's what that that quote from that issue said all right and then i watched yellowstone and then i watched 1893 1883 uh those are good if you got to have a little downtime to think about non-new world order stuff <laughs> go check out the ponderosa of the modern age yellowstone it's like watching big valley back in the day hmm. no that's too old a reference for the watchers of this show probably lauren green he was an actor once back in the day all right, so uh, let's go Jackson Report. Let's get our catch up on the uh, COVIDian situation of the week. And uh, then we'll come back and see what we got to squeeze in before intermission. And intermission kicks ass as always. So we'll get to it at some point. But we are having fun talking with Derek and Ryan and, you know, unfolding this world government summit all over the place. Because people are like, it doesn't go on. They're not doing it. I'm like, now you got, you should pay attention. They're doing it. You should maybe know about it. Jackson Report, highwire.com, Thursday afternoons. All right. We got to play for a minute or so till it till it rolls. But yeah. Oh, so cool. load it up. I was going to say, it might be uh, worth playing um, the Greg Reese one. The hamsters are spinning as it well, up. Because there's like a three-minute Greg Reese report right before it. Because there'll be a context. As well. We can come back and do that afterwards, too. It's only two minutes or three minutes. Anyways. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Jackson Report. Yeah.
children's schools and doctors. Uh, he's coming up. And then, you know, one of the great um, uh, marching advocates, you know, uh, out there, Joshua Coleman, is joining me. He's, he's given the look to this movement, the signs, the power, the presence. He's going to join me and talk uh, about, you know, what it means to stand up for our freedom, how important this is right now. But first, it's time for the Jackson Report. All right, Jeffrey, got a lot coming up today, so let's get to it. What's going on in the news? <laughs> All right, Dal. Well, just like you mentioned with Amy, it's booster season again, booster mania yeah. um, at the Highwire here. We uh, reported on this story as it was breaking uh, the Highwire.com news section. FDA authorizes fourth, fifth booster doses for various groups and ages, bypasses expert vote. What they did was they allowed what they called a second booster of Pfizer and Moderna for 50 and overs. They allowed a Pfizer booster, a second booster. I should say this is their language wow. of, of Pfizer for 12 and over immunocompromised and a second booster for 18 and overs for Moderna. Now, what's interesting about this um, was the, the, the science and the medical community has already been in an uproar. We've reported on this since uh, basically eight months, since August, since the first yeah. boosters began rolling out. They continually bypass this committee, and it's been no different this time. Johns Hopkins, Marty Makari, he's a, a surgeon public policy researcher at the university. He took to Twitter and just blasted the CDC and the FDA. There is zero clinical data that a fourth dose reduces hospitalization risk, he writes. There isn't even any evidence that a third dose reduces hospitalization risk in young people. He goes on to say, political interference over boosters was the issue behind two high-level FDA departures in the fall. There is no greater slap in the face of science than bypassing the customary FDA external ex expert voting process over an authorization with insufficient supporting clinical data. And what is he talking about? Well, on August 18th, 2021, the Biden administration during the first booster push uh, unilaterally announced boosters before the CDC uh, ASIP committee, the advisory committee, even met to talk about them, even met to go over the science. They just unilaterally did it. And what happened right after that was this headline. This is what Marty McCarry is talking about. Top FDA vaccine officials to leave agency as decision on COVID boosters looms. This is Marion Gruber, Phil, yeah. uh, Philip Cruz. At the time, we talked about this. These are the two veteran vaccine researchers, decades of experience between them. They unexpectedly, unexpectedly left at the time. Now we know it was over this booster push with insufficient data. So now you know what's, you know what's right really terrifying to me right now, and, it, and I just made this connection after talking to Amy Bond about you have the bill that's trying to, uh, you know, uh, bring back the vaccination for children. It's trying to get rid of informed consent. But what she was discussing and, and using the, the, the bill, using law enforcement to work for the health department. But what she's saying is they want the right the, in California. They're trying to give the health department in California the right to override legislators, that there will be no more legislation involved in future vaccinations vaccine decisions, that the vaccines will just be decided, everyone, by the health department if they want to add a booster, and by saying whatever the FDA or CDC recommends, we could go with that, even if they didn't speak to the vaccine uh, data, you know, group or, or ACIP. So what you're seeing is there's a line being drawn straight from whatever globalist power system of the, the medical establishment right into our bodies without any interference. There's going to be no legislation inter interference is what they want. They don't even want to 
have the emergency use authorization standing in their way. If the if someone inside the FDA overrides all of the panels and groups, professional groups they normally relate to and say, hey, we're going with it because I work for Merck and that's that's what we're going with. Or I used to work for Moderna um, and I'm, I'm pushing this thing ahead. I believe in it personally. No professional groups, no EUA, straight to whoever wants it. The health department in California and other states just say, there it is. No legislators can get involved. You see how terrifying they're just creating a direct line from pharma straight into our bodies with no ability to interject any legislators. And then if we stand up and complain about it, we're censored. If we actually walk down the street without it, they're going to use the, the, the law enforcement like military to like kick in our doors and arrest us. I mean, these people are freaking crazy. And a lot of the commentary out there right now is saying, well, how can the CDC and the FDA gain back the public's trust? They really lost it here. But no one's really talking about what's happening right now and saying that about this, like you said, these lack or complete loss of uh, medical checks and balance, medical yeah. lawlessness, if you will. Well, let's go to the FDA's press release. So again, they bypassed their Verbat committee, their expert voting panel. This is the independent panel of experts. They just didn't even care to consult them. They gave us a press release. Here it is. March 29th, FDA authorized, authorized a second booster. So they're calling it a second booster dose. And this starts to get confusing. We're going to break it down of two COVID-19 vaccines. That's Pfizer and Moderna for older and immunocompromised individuals. And it says in there, the FDA previously authorized a single booster dose for certain immunocompromised individuals following completion of a three-dose primary vaccine vaccination series. Hold on. I thought it was a two-dose series. Yeah. So they're saying in here, three-dose series. They go on to say this action will now make a second booster dose. So that would be number five, if anybody's counting, uh, <laughs> of these vaccines available for other populations at higher risk for severe disease, hospitalization, and death. When, so did, when did three be, end up becoming like the, the, the standard? I mean, like you said, when we see fully vaccinated, that was two. It was a two-dose program. Right, right. And so let's bring it back to that that fateful time where Marion Gruber, Phil Cruz left the agency over the booster decision. There was this vacuum that was, that was created. A couple of days later, there's an ASIP committee meeting, that's the CDC's ASIP committee. And Stanley Plotkin, the godfather of vaccines, we've covered him here so many times. Yep. He called into that ASIP uh, uh, meeting. And this is what the article, it's actually an article at Stat News that reported on this, the debate over COVID-19 vaccine boosters, what to call them and whether they're needed. So he he interjected here via a phone call and said this, calling the third dose a booster is immunologically incorrect and also gives the wrong impression that somehow the vaccines failed when they could not really have been expected to give a long lasting immunity from the first dose, Plotkin said. So that is where this thing really started. It's kind of weaving around there in the background after he spot that out there. And then it pops through the surface here in this FDA newsletter release. So now we're talking fourth and fifth boosters. And where did the CDC rely on this data from? Well, it says in their own, in their own press release, the immunogenicity data they took from an ongoing open label, non-randomized clinical study at one uh, healthcare center in Israel. And what did that look like? Well, here's the actual study. Let's take a look at it. Fourth dose COVID uh, mRNA vaccine immunogenicity and efficacy against Omicron variant of concern. The authors say breakthrough infections were common, mostly very mild, yet with high viral loads. Get this, vaccine efficacy against the infection was 30% and 11% wow. respectively. That's for 30% for Pfizer, 11% for Moderna. Local and systemic adverse reactions were reported in 80% in Whoa. Pfizer and 40% respectively in Moderna. So this is what the 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 um, 
FDA so is relying this is what upon. they use to override having any of the Burback, the professional, you know, uh, committee group that was supposed to give their advice or ACIP. They overrode all of those things because of this study that basically says at best you had a 30 percent efficacy and an 80 percent chance of getting, uh, you know, a mild vaccine injury. Yeah. Outrageous. And they looked at some of the sa- they looked at some of the safety data from the Ministry of Health population coverage in Israel. Nothing from America, really. And these authors went on to conclude in this study, uh, the fourth COVID-19 mRNA dose restores antibody titers to peak post third dose titers. But they also say low efficacy in preventing mild or asymptomatic Omicron infections and the infectious potential of breakthrough cases raise the urgency of next generation vaccine development. And, you know, here we are sitting on the cusp. Uh, almost a year ago to the day, we had the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, go on N- MSNBC and say that vaccinated people don't carry the virus whatsoever. We've right. known this was a lie really since then. We covered it then. And it's been a lie. This this study continues to say this is a lie with even the boosters. And here we have the lead author of that Israeli study. He's been doing the rounds in the media. This was him on NPR. He says, this is the headline, who might benefit from a fourth shot and who might not? He says this, not a third dose, not a fourth dose, not a fifth dose will do anything to stop infections long term, says Dr. Gilly Rajab Yashe, uh, an infectious disease specialist at Sheba Medical Center in Tal Hamshar, Israel, the lead author of the new study. And just just to cap off this section, so th- I mean, well, we were kind of left. This is proof. This is proof that they know nobody reads. No doctor reads, no scientist reads beyond the headline because they put in there, because of this study, we have proof that it works. We're giving a booster shot. No one's going to read that study. You did. You did. And you found that the lead author is saying, yeah, these things don't work at all. It's not going to stop. You're going to be spreading it everywhere you go. Yet they are so sure that we're that stupid. We're never going to read that this is what we're basing our information on. Right. And, and, you know, just looking at this the FT, from the FDA standpoint, if you're immunocompromised or even 50 and over, it looks like you are just going to be in line for whatever amount of boosters that they want to give you. That's that's yeah. basically what they're saying. But now a day after this FDA press release broke, we had Peter Marks. He's uh, the FDA's head for the Center of Biologics Evaluation and Research. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, exchanges with him, with our lawyers. Yep. And he went on a press media call. Listen to what he had to say about the boosters. Will people uh, be expected to get another booster in the fall or summer, if that's correct? Thanks thanks for reminding me of that part of the question. So that there will be um, a a discussion at the uh, at the uh, vaccines uh, uh, advisory committee meeting next week, where I think this will be uh, discussed. I I, I should say that it would not be surprising um, if there is a a potential need. I don't want to don't want to. Uh, shock anyone that, that there may be a need for people to get an additional booster in the fall, along with a, a more general booster campaign, if that takes place, because we may need to shift over uh, to uh, a different uh, variant coverage. In other words, it may be uh, that a decision is made that uh, rather than uh, what we currently have, the vaccines we currently have, which are called vaccines against the prototype uh, virus that we will move to a vaccine that is either against one of the variants, um, whether it's Omicron, Beta, or Delta, or something else. I can't say right now. That's for discussion, or whether it's some mix of different ones. Um, but it's possible that people will need to get another vaccine there, and, and this the, getting this booster will not uh, preclude people uh, from getting that booster necessarily if there's evidence that another booster could be of benefit.
Man, I'm telling you, the high wire would be half as long if these people could just say exactly what they mean instead of just, like, drum up this ridiculous word salad. I mean, like, here, here's what he's basically saying. Yeah, COVID boosters till the end of time, probably every couple of months. We've already given you four or five. We're looking towards six uh, in just the first year. So what do you think? Of course, boosters are coming. Yeah, we're going to try and hit other variants, probably try and pack them all to a vaccine. You know, that probably won't work either. But, you know, I'm supposed to tell you, well, there's a chance there could be a booster. Folks, get ready. If you're already on that conveyor belt, it never ends for you. Doesn't matter that it doesn't work. They've wiped out your immune system and they have no other plan for you except to keep trying to boost you every couple of days with a brand new product where they make billions and you get sicker and sicker and sicker. And from my count, that would be six. And he's basically saying, I don't want to shock you, but six are coming and six isn't going to be enough because we have just the prototype strain that we've been vaccinating you against. We don't have the new variants coming out. Prototype strain, right? I I mean, I know he doesn't mean that. I'm not going to make a big thing out of it, but aren't we calling that the Wuhan strain or the out, you know, like there's alpha, beta, delta, but the prototype strain, just such an odd use of language there. Right. And, you know, Dad, you mentioned about reading these studies, hoping they won't read them. I spoke to our legal team before I went on air. The uh, The next installment of the Pfizer documents data dump will yeah. be coming tomorrow. We're expecting over 10,000 documents. You can go to wow. org to get these documents. You can be right alongside us in the investigation here as we look through these and we see what we're going to find. And, you know, Understanding this, the the trials as we as we covered this, the trials were not designed from the beginning to determine whether the vaccines could interrupt transmission. They had deliberate right. cutoff points at, at six months when you know right when these these antibodies were plummeting and they knew that you know these things probably wouldn't be effective past then. And right. what were we called then? We were called Russian disinformation and Russian, right. Russian bots, bots sowing disinformation. Right, totally. Yeah, I remember now, that. That's right. And so now moving on to this next story, perhaps some of the biggest news in America right now is uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story. And we're going to get into this here uh, just because we've had similar attacks in the media against us. And they're throwing those same attacks at this story as well. And they have been for over a year. So it really started just to bring people back to 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 get this record straight. It really started with the New York Post. They were originally reporting on a series. They had an expose of uh, several stories from this laptop. The laptop was allegedly left in a Delaware repair, uh, computer repair store in 2019. The the gentleman that owned that store turned it in. And, you know, the rest is history. This, this, this laptop has been producing evidence ever since. Smoking gun email reveals how Hunter Biden introduced Ukrainian businessman to VP dad. This businessman was a, they called him a shady advisor and oligarch to this oil company called Barista in Ukraine. Uh, Well, what happened right after that? Remember, this is on the run up to the election. This was a very pivotal time in the Trump-Biden election cycle. Twitter and Facebook did some of their hardest censorship to date that we've ever seen. This is what the headline looked like here. Twitter, Facebook, censor posts over Hunter Biden expose. Facebook restricted the story. Uh, The fact checkers attacked it. Twitter went a step further. They locked the New York Post's account and they blocked users from sharing links to the stories. I mean, you couldn't shut down a story any harder than that. And why did they do that? What gave them the credibility to do that? This is what it was. In Politico, this this article... uh, talking about this um, letter. Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. There it is. Dozens of former intel officials say. So they had more than 50 former intelligence uh, officials signed a letter and it saying it was casting doubt on whether this story was real. So here you have this story 
a, a paper, one of the oldest papers in the United States runs an expose and you have a concerted effort by intelligence officials, CIA, Department of Defense, all coming out to kind of interject in the news cycle and say, this is not true. And what did they say at that time? This is very interesting to the rest of the story we're going to report on. So this was their public statement. They, they released a concerted public statement on the Hunter Biden emails. And they said here, we want to emphasize that we do not know if, if the emails are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement. Just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that Russian government played a significant role in the case. So there you have it. They didn't have any evidence. And why is this and, coming I mean, around? Why right, are we talking and, about? And what I find interesting about this, because we I, we tend to just let these headlines go by. But what I think about now, and we all know where this story is going, because it's all over the news and we're going to give it our spin and sort of get into our details. But when you look at 50 intelligence, former 50 intelligence officers, FBI, CIA coming out and saying this is Russian disinformation. Every news media outlet is saying this is not true. It's fake news. It's Russian disinformation. Um, and when I think about that, and I think behind the scenes, you have President Joe Biden, you have his son, Hunter Biden, who both know for a fact that this is a true story. They are literally letting these reporters hang themselves. They're letting these CIA agents and FBI, former you know government officials, hang themselves on this story because it's inevitable. The truth will always come out. I mean, unless they're crazy enough to think that they could bury this. But when you look at that, I just want you to remember that as they are watching the same headlines we are, where people are putting their reputations on the line for this, this soon-to-be administration, all to sort of, you know, push this story aside. These people, our current president, knew this was a lie and did not care how many people are going to hang themselves trying to protect him and his son. That's the part of this that really disturbs me when it comes to the integrity. I don't care what ends up being in there or what, you know, but just the idea that you don't even have the integrity, that you would let other people dive on swords when the entire thing is your lie. That's, that's what I find incredibly disturbing. And, you know, the, the corporate legacy media, their, their, their dwindling power, but still power, they were able to kind of crush this story and, yeah. and anybody that came close to it until just recently. And this is why this story is being resurrected. One of the reasons in the, in the, in the corporate media, the New York Times has admitted that this laptop was real. This is the headline. Hunter Biden paid tax bill, but broad federal investigation continues. There isn't a federal investigation going on with him involved in there and his business partners. But it says here in the article, people familiar with the investigation said prosecutors had examined emails between Mr. Biden, Mr. Archer, and others about Burisma and other foreign business activity. These emails were obtained by New York Times, by the New York Times from a cache of files that appears to have come from a laptop abandoned by Mr. Biden in a Delaware repair shop. The email and the others, uh, the email and others in the cache were authenticated by people familiar with them and with the investigation. Wow. Now we enter. Uh, someone that one of the people so it's almost a like a side glancing view that caught this thing in the crosshairs, right? It was brought up in a courtroom. Are these your emails? Yes, I was a part of those emails. And those emails were on what was supposed to be a fake laptop. New York Times only has them because they had that laptop information. And so now it's been verified. These emails were inside of that. Therefore, that we now know whose laptop this is. Really interesting. It, yes. And those those same emails were able to be verified by others who had reported on it and and said they were verified. However, they were they were neutralized by the media and by these CIA operatives mm -hmm. that were coming out with this letter. Uh, one of those who attempted to be neutralized but was not was Glenn uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald. He is a American journalist and 
he started, yeah. he was one of the founders of The Intercept. Uh, for people uh, that are like maybe don't know the names, you know, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange. I mean, he's been deeply involved in trying to get their stories out there. Uh, so this this guy is, is sort of my kind of journalist, a guy who's really put it all on the line, come under incredible risk to share inconvenient stories about characters that may or may not be, uh, you know, how we want to hear this information, but really revealing lies and deceit coming from inside of our government. A very bold journalist, uh, really one of the last of his kind. So I just want to put that out there. Uh, Glenn, if you're listening, I'm a fan. <laughs> and, you know, The Intercept was kind of born out of his uh, reporting of Edward Snowden yeah. kind of wanting to get this truth out. And his some of his board members, some of the people at The Intercept actually gave him uh, uh, some big issues. And we're trying to really, if you look into it, spike the story in a way when he started originally reporting on this by a laptop. It caused him to leave and start. Uh, his reporting at Substack, which really was one of the one of the biggest voices that went over there and, and started that off. And now he just wrote this article here, kind of coming around full circle. The New York Times now admits the Biden laptop falsely called Russian disinformation is authentic. And he says here in the byline, the media outlets which spread this lie from uh, ex-CIA officials never retracted their pre-election falsehoods, one used by big tech to censor that. So he says very few these are all the, you talk about the media outlets, very few even included the crucial caveat that the intelligence officials themselves stressed, namely that they had no evidence at all to corroborate this claim. Instead, as I noted last September, virtually every media outlet, CNN, NBC News, PBS, Huffington Post, The Intercept, and too many others account began completely ignoring the substance of what they're reporting and instead spread the lie over and over that these documents were the byproduct of Russian disinformation. And then Sure enough, too, at Substack, we have Matt Taibbi. He is another uh, prominent journalist. He's been around for a long time. And he, he put a really fine point on this piece. His article, too, kind of running in parallel with uh, Greenwald. The media campaign to protect Joe Biden passes the point of absurdity. And he nails it by saying the line between the intelligence community and commercial media has blurred to the point of meaninglessness. They know everyone knows they screwed this up and are long past pretending to care. These are these are shocking words. I mean, we're looking at kind of almost like a media coup. We know how bad the media can be here in the United States, yeah. but it's really it really rises to another level here. And the reporting now is it looks like they're trying to uh, the media is coming around. I'm seeing reporting at CNN and other big outlets that you know spiked this story and lied about it. Essentially, they're really circling around Joe Biden, saying, "Well, this is his son's issues. There may be some tax evasion situation, but you know, Joe Biden has nothing to do with this." So that looks like the talking point we're seeing right now. But this story took a crazy, crazy twist at the beginning of the Russian Ukrainian invade, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is what it looked like. This was Victoria Newland. Um, she's a, a senior White House official, and she was. She was uh, questioned by Ted Cruz at a Senate hearing committee. Listen to this. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda 
to groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100% it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. Uh, of course, that wasn't Ted Cruz. That was uh, Mark Rubio. Um, Go ahead and pause it. Um, yeah. Um. All right. So that's Victoria Newland that we mentioned earlier in the show. Robert Kagan's wife. She's undersecretary for state for political affairs. What she said there at the end about like, first off, Rubio teed it up. He interrupted her. He took her off the hot seat. He underhanded a question. It was like 100% sure. This is like, that's. It's all a bunch of BS, that whole inter interaction. What a but, complex question. <clears throat> but what she said there at the end about this is Russian disinformation and it matches the pattern. Huh. Isn't that what the 50 guys said about the Hunter Biden laptop? Mm -hmm. Has anyone questioned those 50 intelligence officials intelligence who said it wasn't? Right. It was Russian disinformation. Do I see a pattern here? And also from that Jackson report, we okay, now. the steel dossier. Well, the PP dossier that came from MI6. MI6. Surprise there. Mm -hmm. Who had the drop from the get-go? Who has the ability <laughs> to like do that to an American president? I mean, they took him off Twitter. They at least, you know, didn't take his head off like they did to JFK. They just took him off Twitter. So would have gotten reelected or they didn't successfully do what they did during the election. Well, speaking I'm, of I'm, Twitter, who knows? Twitter is uh but I'm, I'm not a fan or anything, but I'm just saying well, I think it's evident now that Twitter aided and abetted as did Politico as did these other platforms that, that lied about oh, the story. They, they, admitted they aided and abetted in throwing in helping to rig and helping to change the outcome of a political election in a democratically elected country stru structure, no different than they use Twitter in Egypt. And for all these other Twitter color revolutions that they've been doing, they did it ahead of time. Now it's known beyond shadow of reasonable doubt that they deep six that story because it was incomplete. It was incompatible and inconvenient to their candidate Biden that they are trying to put up for president who was basically no match for Trump in any way, shape or form. Oh, like no. when they nominated him, I was like, good luck with that. Like, yeah, I don't have same. a same. I don't vote. I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't yeah, vote. I, haven't I agree. Voted I, I haven't voted ever actually in my life. I voted like two or three times before I stopped because that was before it, you, you know, knew. I mean, you're older than yeah, I, I didn't know so enough. I understand. Like if I was see yeah. that the wheel in the back seat's not connected to the car that's driving down the street. Like we're kids in the back seat pretending we're driving with that stuff. So I stopped participating. It. So when I say from an objective outside perspective of looking at freedom and slavery here, there was a guy, he wasn't perfect, but he was about to win again in this other side who can't use logic and reason, who said the day after he won at Google meeting Friday, where they cried, we're never going to let this happen again. Then they scuttle the Biden story. And then they write the Time Magazine story saying, we did it. We kept that dirty outcome from happening. We had to break some rules to do it, but we're proud we did it. And we say, well, no, you didn't save America. You just deep sixed America. Look Let's at your stop. economy. Look at your, your gas bill. Look at your grocery bill. And done by the guy you kicked out of office. Look at the mandates. Look at the mandates. I mean, the, it, Trump's economy is a disaster too, but the mandates, they could not have gotten, in my opinion, that Trump. The other thing they ran with was the insurrection narrative. 
let's not forget not only did they put down well, that before one, we get but to that they ran Trump, with the January Trump has his imperfections like i always yeah. point out the rothschild connection i point it's out that he took money from pfizer and merck and had to be on the yeah. whole warp speed train oh, and yeah. he's not an informed dude to start with he surrounded no. himself with a bunch of globalists swampians yep. and like he never had a chance from day yeah, one no, corbett right? had a really good expose of him like how he filled the swamp and he gets into all the central bank connections to with the filling his uh cabinet positions yeah, sure. it was for it sure. was pretty bad but at the same time i don't think it doesn't yeah, seem he like wasn't, he's, he's not he part of the a, in crowd of the world economic forum or part of that where those people he's not no, but he's friends with klaus he's in oh yes like, you know yeah, he's yeah. just never accepted by them and he was right. never going to be in control of much even behind the desk That's so right. be that as it may imperfect guy orange man bad this whole thing about January 6th and insurrection and FBI pipe bombs and, uh, you know, a whole lot of not people being armed and being invited in by the police, by the police into the people's house. I don't get how American citizens can be in the people's house that is their house and from which they give government the approval to say, you guys can do the things that we approve of. This is the Constitution. This is how it works. When did it go from being the people's house to you go to prison for life and you go into the gulag uh, if you were anywhere near anybody who was there type of situation, right? Like I saw that spot on Joe Biggs this past week and that dude's been yeah, running away Biggs, in solitary John confinement. Baum, that's a whole thing. And he's an that, imperfect yeah. person. Yeah. But, know, yeah. And he's yeah. not the best journalist that might have been taken on a ride for like the Texas Pizzagate thing that was like a, a spoof story that you know people jumped on and then they're like, haha, it's a fake story and then they you know, got to go away from InfoWars, that sort of thing imperfect guy yeah but u.s military veteran fought for his country and now he's like being held without bail in uh like almost solitary confinement like conditions almost gitmo kind of conditions yeah, yeah. right and think about all the people that went to gitmo who had nothing to do with 9-11 that's right that was the other thing that pissed me off because i saw like who was really doing 9-11 and who was really being hung out to dry in some cases hung out or waterboarded or tortured to death or sodomized or all those other things that you see from those Abu Ghraib pictures where those people were like smiling and giving thumbs up. Right. So that stuff can happen again. If it ever stopped, like I'm pretty sure it just kept going on under. Oh yeah. Different locations. Yeah. I mean, there are elements happening in Afghanistan. Um, Those weren't, those weren't, well, you got the dancing boys in Afghanistan. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Right. It's just, but they weren't around prison um organizations like institutions that were like sort of set up over in afghan but they're around like our involvement in afghanistan insofar as like our controlling of various sectors and territory in other words our guarding of poppy plants at the time when heroin was still desired until chinese and sort of manufacturing fentanyl in mass so yeah. and then yeah, we just pull so it out because we don't need it anymore it's a lot of dirt under those rugs and no, it is the January 6th the world they, government summit. They, they propped up plan. January 6th, right? When they put down the Hunter Biden story, it was like a perfect sort of uh, transmutation of energy. Well, I noticed a pattern the Steele dossier, Russia, oh, yeah, Trump that. connections yeah. that never panned out, even though what is provable is Rhodes Scholar, uh, uh, not Condoleezza Rice, Susan Rice, Rhodes mm, Scholar, yeah, Susan yeah. Rice, Obama, these guys, they had a stay, beh- stay behind team like a second white house that actively used government surveillance on candidate Trump, private citizen Trump in order to spy on him and do all these other things. And he said, I remember the dude saying, and I'm like, he's probably right. MI six is all over this stuff. And they're using, you know, like uh, the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, they were fifth column for the Anglo-American establishment. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the thing is like, it's almost to an analogy of what happened uh, with the Nixon presidency. It's a, it's sort of allusions to in regards to going in and Watergate and whatnot, but like Nelson in this, Rockefeller ca- in this case, like the, the media away, was they act- shot. They shot Ford. Did you know this? Uh, you, this is before you were born. So I'll fill you in. Nixon was president. Watergate happens. He resigns and America gets its first King as president. Here's a good trivia question. Leslie Lynch King, the third or Leslie Lynch King jr. Is Gerald Ford's real name. So he became adopted. He changed his name to Gerald Ford, became a Freemason, all these sort of things. So he's president and Nellie Rock, this dude who wanted to be president in the 60s, he's vice president. He's one shot away. And I'm pretty sure that they did try to kill Ford that would have made Nelson Rockefeller the unelected president of the United States. It's pretty interesting if you think about it. I know we we don't live in that timeline, but we do live in the timeline where Mandela got out of prison, divorced his wife. Isn't it interesting they got they tried to? I mean, obviously Nixon. I'm not a all that sort of stuff. I get that, but at the same time, there's a a stay behind. First off, dude was a crook. He was a crook. He was the crook long before he was a crook. He was at the bottom of the crookage, and that's why he got hung out to dry, and his legacy got scuttled because he's a reasonably intelligent fella oh no he's but, not dumb he was not dumb. but the way they've been around um, for a long time before well, the whole jfk before he tried to right he went against that. jfk okay. and then he he lost to jfk and then he comes back and what 72 or whatever 68. according to john loftus who we referred to in the show earlier with the belarus secret author john loftus who was an attorney at the united states department of justice and had a cosmic nato super clearance to go into all the archives uh what he said was Hmm. What was the quote? I had it right there before I gave the reference, but I wanted to give the reference. And about oh, Nixon, or is it about JFK? Yeah, and Nixon. Uh, okay, so here it is. Yeah. Here it is. Here it is. So Nixon is um he's an attorney. No, this is before he's like vice president under Eisenhower. Eisenhower, I think, was right. He's vice president right before Kennedy. He'd been gets in politics he ran, for a long time. He, he ran against Kennedy in sixty. 58 or 64 no, so, yeah, 60, yeah right around 60, then yeah so the way the he came years. up was he was a lawyer he was in the navy he was looking into some nazi funding and the way that uh, loftus tells it 1960 so this is in like the, then it failed again in 62 for governor of california okay. right so this is like in the 50s at some point in the timeline yeah, yeah. so the way loftus tells it uh you got dick nixon he's a young attorney and he comes across these documents in whatever government access he had to legal documents. And it showed the Rockefellers funding the Nazis. And he's going to go get them for training with the enemy and make a name for himself. So he goes and sees what they promote him. Dude, they, he goes, this is, a, this is true shit, dude. He goes and, not arguing. I'm just he goes and sees Nelson Rockefeller's attorney who is doing these transactions who at the time was a guy named Alan Dulles, and he wasn't yet the CIA director of, of CIA, but he goes, gets to be CIA director, and Kennedy killed, and he sits on the commission. Yeah, it's not sure long that, after that. Yeah. He sits on the commission that says Americans don't read, and Oswald did it. But before that, so it's a blackmail situation, very similar to what Mossad did to Nelson Rockefeller. And that before is, that, yeah. true, uh, yeah. Nixon book, comes yeah, in. Yeah. And by Joff Loftus. You, yeah, yeah, so he, he tries to say, look, Dulles, we're going to take you and your employer and we're going to parade you out in handcuffs and we're going to get a ticker tape parade for catching the people who funding the Nazis and we're going to ruin you. And Alan Dulles is like, mm, that's a good offer. How about I fund you for a political campaign and make sure you make sure you win. 
And then he's like, okay. So he like his get go is like, okay, yeah, I'll shut up to get a leg up. And he's vice president. And they really, they thought like he could beat Kennedy until he didn't wear the makeup for the TV interview. He might've, right. That was a whole thing in history that he wouldn't wear makeup. I'm not wearing that makeup. And Kennedy was like, oh yeah, dude, let's whatever you guys say. And Kennedy looks sharp and was on point. And Nixon looks like sweaty and shifty. That's what comes through to people, right? That's exactly least, right. I was just going to bring up. I had like a, a teacher. Or at in least high that's school. what we're taught about mass media in our country. Maybe I caught that. No, no, you're not. You're not. No, that because I I'd studied this. I took a '60s course in high school of all things. That's an interesting. It's like an honors course. All this sort of nonsense. And I'll never forget. They showed us clips of their debate, and they pointed out specifically that like not only did they lack makeup, but just like Nick um, Kennedy's disposition. He was good looking. He was young. He's more well spoken. He's more, more confident. Well, rhetorically, he had confidence. Nixon, like Nixon when I listened to my English Kennedy teacher talk about that, she's had. like, she was like getting horny from like talking about Kennedy. Like that's how people viewed him. Like they, it was just a whole different. Nixon just doesn't have that appeal. He doesn't have that charisma. He doesn't. He's not as good looking. All these factors played a major role into why. Plus, also the Teamsters being connected to Kennedy's father, and then they they got the Teamsters to play ball with making sure that he got like so there's that angle so nixon's dirty at the beginning i don't think he's necessarily like a bad guy but he gets in with the bad guys and by the time he becomes president that watergate thing happened right they make it look like he wanted to make sure for re-election so they broke into the democratic national committee and broke in and whatever right the underground history of that story would be something like this yeah those dudes broke into that place but not for the reasons that you guys are told. Yeah, that, that, I remember that place. This. Go ahead. Yeah. There was <clears throat> allegedly, and you can check out the facts, see if they hold up. Allegedly, there was a diary in a safe They're that was being kept black- there yeah. that they were blackmailing with, and they were about to release because it was the diary of that part. I, Mary, I remember listening to the story, and I forget Mary Meyer. From uh, uh, what's her name? The uh, she yeah, Myers or whatever. Sorry, well, I don't I don't know if that was the source. I forget where could, I heard it, been. but I, I but it was Cord Myers' there, wife, Mary uh, maybe Meyer. It was, what's his name? Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so Mary Meyer and Cord Meyer are part of the Georgetown set. Cord Meyer is an assassin who works in special ops and didn't like Kennedy because Mary Meyer started banging JFK and gave him LSD. Right. Mary, the whole time she's doing all this stuff, keeps a diary. Mary. <clears throat> not smart enough. I don't know what's a polite word naive enough to tell James Jesus Angleton that she's got a fucking diary of all this stuff and espionage, the president, whatever that's going on. And at some point she dies in a horrific way, uh, like raped on the side of the road by the highway in DC. Right. When you break it down and ask the question, could like cord have been, there to do like is he part of the people who actually did it like did he off his own wife because she was banging jfk because like if you're a dude who's like put down by that and you're a special assassin for the people who are trying to bump jf you know jfk off anyway like my so there's this whole milieu of information around that diary what it contains the fact that she really was doing these things and the fact that angleton from good resources knew about such things so the story is that a secretary who had heard about this took it home for the night 
And then Watergate happens and the diary's not even there. And right. those dudes end up getting caught. And there's a whole like shit storm that blows up around it. And they, they and, what they do is they talk about it being part of like Nixon being sort of uh, terrified of what the what they have on him. So he wants to have some sort of black, not because of the diary, but because he's against like the, what is he, Republican? So the Democratic well, They already party. had Nixon because so they had the against whole the White Democratic. House bugged. Yeah, yeah. Everything right. Nixon said, That's right. they had so everything he's like, help. Yeah. And he wanted to go against, so he's like, what, what do they have on me? That's what they essentially, what does the Democratic Party have? But that was not really the they issue. The issue was that they wanted the diary so he could go against his brother and have, you know, sort of, you know, uh, yeah, there bring was, his brother down. There's a lot of shenanigans around it, but long story short, that situation gets that. handled by Woodward and Bernstein, <laughs> who to this day continue to show for like official story. They have, they've come out recently and said stuff in the past couple of years about stuff. It's like, come on now. Yeah, that's like, Woodward came from Office of Naval Intelligence. And the whole thing is like the fact that they made that movie with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, like so soon after, like, let's make a movie, the official story thing of that. Um, yeah, there's a lot. So that's all before, you know the 80s there's all these things going on that percolate into the end of the cold war dave what was his last name there's a couple trying to remember where i heard that because i mean we went over this 10 years ago and i was like shocked to hear there's a side story that whether true or it's interesting dave emery yeah i was thinking maybe dave russell and they probably did see the maybe russell or dave emery because it might have gotten in from there that's why i'm getting confused on it because i could have sworn that's where i initially heard that or wires, but still, it's interesting What's because you, you haven't really considered the fact that uh, the story and way the which it's been told about him just being sort of a nervous wreck and concerned about the Democratic, what the Democratic establishment party had on him. I don't know. It, it brought a lot more clarity and insight as to what, especially knowing how he was, he got to be a vice president with Eisenhower in the first place in 52. I mean, well, who was Eisenhower? Here that the office holders of party officials met in a smoke filled room, which is obviously an allusion to the idea of like, behind closed doors so it's like would they they somehow picked him for some reason he wasn't he was sort of ambivalent that's how the story goes you know if you just go back one couple steps in the story let's go back Mm -hmm. a couple steps in the story because we've been talking about this guy on the wall nelly rock nelson rockefeller right Mm -hmm. let's go back to how did eisenhower become president there was this thing called world war ii and and let me take you to the history blueprint because i got this modeled out in there we're going to tell a little story about world war ii and bring it up to what we were just talking about with nixon and that should take us to intermission let's see uh nelson rockefeller he's a nelson aldrich nelson aldrich rockefeller oh yeah he's named after the federal reserve guy right nelson aldrich 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 bill became the federal reserve act with warburg's help and repolishing it so let me Oh, spicing it up a little bit i got one note in this guy's thing like i got other stuff but the note is february 1955 william harding jackson was appointed (laughs) special assistant to president eisenhower on psychological warfare succeeding nelson rockefeller look at that Mm -hmm. nelson rockefeller was the dude before harding jackson all right so let me uh pull this that's actually very very important it's apropos i'm just saying for all the things i could have said about nelly rock right there that's pretty good. All right. Let me see if I can uh, move this out. Now, one of the things I wanted to get to was he did work in psychological That's warfare. That's the big one I would talk about. Yeah. 
That's yeah, because no one talks about it. Especially like there's things we can't even talk about with him, his involvement in World War II, but he was the head of psychological warfare and you have CD no, Jackson, I'm not Charles talk Douglas. About but him, but is, I'm going to talk around them. And the reason yeah. that he's in. So how does this guy from Standard Oil become in charge of like psychological warfare operations in World War II? Prior to World War II, the Rockefeller family had a building called Rockefeller Center. You might have heard of it. Still around. Still Rockefeller Center. Yeah. A, uh, a lot of propaganda generated from that building. And back then, they had this place called British Security Coordination, which is the British intelligence of the British Empire, taking up home and a residence in America in Nelson Rockefeller's building. Under his tutelage, under his commission, you might say, his approval, you know, his family helped to fund the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a.k.a. Chatham House and the CFR, where uh, Pippa was just talking at the World Summit. OK, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller during World War II and after World War II worked in psychological operations because he had the British there doing it in his building. Why not? Right. So during World War II. Uh, he's got some people that work under uh, and around the infrastructure that he's in, namely Eisenhower, who's the Supreme Allied Headquarters kind of commander for Europe. And uh, another guy named Charles Douglas Jackson, C.D. Jackson. Let's see if I got Charles Douglas Jackson over here. Can I find him? Charles Douglas Jackson right here, right under British security coordination in the model. We'll find C.D. Jackson. Now, this is an interesting character because he worked with Nellie Rock and Eisenhower and this type of psychological uh, operations in World War II. But afterwards, he's the CEO of Fortune magazine. He's the he's in charge of time life at the time of the Zapruder film and these sort of things. So he ends up like being like a mockingbird role. Right. He has a holder. He's one of the holders of the Zapruder film for 12 years. That was huge. I mean, he's spinning narratives. He's holder. He understands it's that's what Psy War is essentially a form of dark shamanism controlling right. language. And so, yeah. So, so these right. guys are working under the is really important of British intelligence. The political warfare executive was one of the groups. There was also, uh, there was another specific group that he was involved in, but like the, the people that are in this uh, coterie are, are interesting people. And they have an interesting history before Eisenhower becomes president. So there's like, you know, Nazi gold. There's all sorts of stuff over there oh, yeah. that the fu- the first five-star general in United States history, I'm pretty sure was Eisenhower, right? It wasn't Patton or did Patton? No, they, they killed Patton. Okay. So that's true too. I mean, they really, they, I mean, they, that, that's, there's so much, prepo- there's such the, a preponderance of evidence. Patton died in a car crash after he complained about the there's Semitic a museum influence in the press. that has his car crash. That's not his car that he crashed in. Right. So the evidence has been disposed of much like Kennedy's limousine was disposed of like ASAP. Get that evidence out of here. Just like the World Trade Center rubble was all disposed yeah, of. Let's get it to China. To China and Let's get it to China. It. Let's make it into new stuff before anyone can and all the hard any drives this stuff and get take out to stuff. Germany. You know, let's see. Yeah, Convar. I mean, every crawl. Convar with a C. Crawl with a K. Got it. Look it up. Look it's it up. great. I mean, it's great. And the reason why I brought that up is like so they they threw nixon under and like rightfully so they threw him under the the rug so to speak put him under the bus but then we have this stay behind committee with obama which like they sort of they protect so it depends like if you're a part of that establishment or not you know that's what my point about with the steel dossier and other things of that like it's not like trump like looked for this sort of information like or was doing it was the fact that there was a stay behind presidency 
that yeah. but then they had to take him down because they, they the wrong candidate got in. They I guess yeah. they didn't have the infrastructure in place, they didn't have the mail-in balloting ready to go, something of that nature. Well, wink, and then to, to close off the 70s, just real quick, mm-hmm. in 76, H.W. Bush, who was never in the CIA, becomes director of the CIA. Herbert Walker, yeah. Right? And then they want to make him president, but America won't do that. So they get the proxy what year did actor, he get, what year Reagan, he to get president and forced him to pull in H.W. as his vice president. So he gets another role to power right there. In between Nixon and Reagan and H.W. Bush, so like Watergate goes back to the people who killed Kennedy in the first place, H.W. Bush being one of those people who rose to power after they got rid of Nixon. After they got Nelson Rockefeller and Ford out of the White House, who got in the White House? David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski went out and found Jimmy Carter, took him to Wall Street and said, here's your candidate. Now, what's my source for that? Because that's a big that's a big call saying the Rockefellers are controlling the White House from inside of America during the 1970s. While we they're an oil family, we had a big oil. What happened during there was like a oh, my, there's an oil shortage. This is it. It gets interesting when you start to see the people in power and the, the games they run while they're in power. Right. Because I'm leading up to like, how do we have a world government summit that they're talking about new world order? Because David Rockefeller said they're trying to do this. They're internationalists and they, he stands accused and they're guilty of it. And what's what's Brzezinski, right? He's sort of like the the Scowcroft of like the late seventies, early eighties. Another national security advisor that comes in and like well, advises. Nelson the had Henry Kissinger, correct. And, and then David Zbigniew, had Zbigniew Brzezinski. Zbigniew, right, right. And their book ends. And they're basically on, they're yeah. doing the exact same. They they're following within the same ideology. Well, I mean, Brzezinski was anti-communist, and Kissinger was like, "Let's help the communists in Mao." Mm-hmm. You know, they play the dialectic, right? And then, and like Brzezinski's From big both thing, sides. Operation Cyclone, in one generation, whole, like, in w- like two administrations but, in the White House, you can demonstrate yeah. that. Yeah, literally. But then, so like again, you know, the evidence for that is uh, with no apologies, the personal memoirs of Senator Barry Goldwater, and in there in chapters. 32 and 33 he'll tell you exactly how the government works what the cfr is all these things that we've been talking about that are like nebulous or ambiguous like he writes it out in his own words you should read it and you can probably get it online for free it's there and uh that's 50 years ago and it still rings true to this day so that's like evidence artifacts people wrote it down we can check it against reality and if it holds up to be true we deem it to be valuable as opposed to the like spoon fed trough and they they played him up today they played Brzezinski up as being anti-communist or whatever, but like he also helped found. He was one of the founding members of the Trilateral Commission, if I remember correctly. So but he like, grew he, up under communism, and he married. Okay, uh, I see, the, but it's, it's interesting that he grew up I mean, he from Poland's daughter, because Edward Benes was his father-in-law. So hmm. like he did have like I think a the anti-communist thing. sentiments, yeah. But but he remember what quickly saying, said these people work with both sides. Sides, like right. you know, he's like they fund the capitalists and the communists, and they yeah. they do everything in between to get whatever they want going on. Well, he helped to perpetuate the limited warfare concept of Kissinger by funding like Operation Cyclone, Mujahideen, and, like funding essentially neo-nationalist groups in the Middle East and other places in order to like, you know, uh, go our, fight against communism, obviously back in the day, specifically the Soviets. But then, of course, that gets transformed magically into Al Qaeda. And that becomes then the narrative they use three decades later in uh, 9-11. So true that. All right, so what are we going to select here for our uh, intermission? We got some clips. Maybe we can. Uh, I, I definitely want to get a clip from the trust game. Oh, I had the time code in my head from oh, what was it? Okay, so um, it's going to go back to the era we were just talking about. 
the Volcker era era mm-hmm. of the seventies, the decoupling of gold at Bretton Woods in seventy one. Uh, and I think that directly relates because what you're seeing is in this episode of the trust game by Aaron and Melissa Dykes, you're seeing the beginning of the train for which today you're seeing the caboose. So they're going to yeah. show you the engine. Here's where the they, manifestation from the gold is the engine from, and right. it, they decoupled it from the American dollar. Right. And then they've tra- the, the cars have been slowing down, slowing down, slowing down to the point you get today where Saudi Arabia and Russia is like, we're going to go do something else. Because we don't, you know, we don't have to use a dollar anymore. And the dollar was the world reserve currency from the first Bretton Woods <clears throat> conference from World War II. But in the 1970s, at the second if, one, that's where they failed. decoupled yeah. it, right? right? So they got it on world reserve currency. Everyone got on the dollar. It was all hunky-dory because it was backed by gold. It was backed by gold, right? right? Yeah. And then Nixon, he does that thing for them, right? He He's the one who gets the blame for it because he's the one that decoupled it. And everyone's like, well, it's okay because the train cars are almost as going as fast as the engine that's pulling away. Like the engine was in other words, there's forward momentum. There's forward yes. momentum. And it's right. hard the to economy stay. has forward momentum. And then the uh, so it the preserves entropy, its energy the friction, moving forward. You need some sort of inertia to slowly slow it down, but it takes some time. But they can they can bring it to a stop right now when if Saudi oh, goes, yeah. you know, because that's part of the, the leverage themselves. and they want to do that. So if they wanted to control the demolition of the American dollar over 109 years, it would start with Federal Reserve in 1913, almost to the end where they decouple it in 71. And then from here on out, it's just, like, but it, I think it ramped it up dramatically with for the 9/11. central currencies, the central bank yeah, digital CBDCs. currencies. Right. So as they take away this at the end, by if they get the Saudis to pull the oil and do something other than dollar, that really gives them the need to do this other thing. They were just talking about the world summit. Oh, they have I don't their think Casas a lot of people belly. see that coming. Yeah, they have their Casas belly. They are metaphorically using that that sort of term, but the idea is like they would now have the supposed justification to go ahead and. And bring in what? What did that? What, what was her name that we just showed from the uh, summit? Hippa. That HIPAA. So like Hippa. just saying that we're going to bring no, HIPAA in is HIPAA, where HIPAA, they're supposed HIPAA, to protect your health and care HIPAA. insurance. HIPAA, yeah, right. sure, yeah. Her name's yeah. Pippa with a P. Pippa. Pippa Malmgren. 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 Sounds like some sort of D and D name. But anyways, uh, some sort of role playing name. But either way, that what she say? We're we're on the cu- the precipice of a completely new. Uh, type of financial uh precipice is like a cliff a cliff is something from which we're walking you would die it's high enough that's why i use precipice quite literally because we're on that precipice of a complete transformation of uh currency and and monetary policies all around the world and that's that's exactly right i mean but one of the things i just want to to your point Mm. 9-11 played a key role i mean obviously like because Technically, the dollar is backed by the productive capacity of the United States. When they take it off, this fiat, it's legislative currency. You have to devalue it, which means you got to have a justification for printing lots and lots of money. Like they didn't, one of the huge emergencies. The emergencies. You need ever that since FDR emergencies. with an emergency act. Yeah. Or even it went back to World War One. They need war. In other words, they need war. They need fear and war. And that's what they use to sort of give the justification for now printing oodles of money. And then they consolidated some of the biggest financial institutions in 2008 because they're too big to fail, of course. But that's the whole thing. With subprime it, marketing, they we're using AI algorithm technology saying they can hedge it against you know whatever and it'll it'll work itself out. We can go subprime contradictions. I mean, they just they, they ring capacity. everybody up. They're like, uh, the bill is a hundred thousand and we're giving you a thousand of it. Yeah, uh, you gotta you gotta pay some ninety-nine because we charged it and we ate the stuff and we're leaving. It's yeah. like they they uh 
and they restabilize and ditch those type of people yeah, yeah dying and ditch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only these people do it to the tune of 30 trillion fucking dollars man it's it's impossible like anyone that's knows anything about the economy we're already an insolvent nation we can't yeah. even pay back the interest on the loans at this point it would be impossible you would have to tax every american at somewhere around 70 or 80 percent of their entire paycheck and then you'd have to stop all government programs concomitantly with the, that taxation our it's forefathers went to war to increase on the tax this. on tea <laughs> and now we're sitting here metaphorically taking up the bomb take a fifth jab burn. take a sixth jab yeah take, take a, a fucking uh, stick in everywhere jesus christ it's fucking ridiculous man it's fucking ridiculous they want everyone to be like kim kardashian just like stick one in everywhere all right <laughs> i know i'm talking about <laughs> kanye's ex-wife and <laughs> pete what's his name's current bang toy whatever oh really is that the i don't know <laughs> pete davison i only know his name because i i saw saturday night live one time and i was like this guy is <laughs> not funny how do i is stay away from Kyle Dunnigan makes fun of all the time probably Peter, he's man. so he's i don't know dude it, like uh, paint on draw or paint on wall drying so i'm sure he's a nice guy to somebody but i don't really want him in my life whatsoever that's why i learned his name to be like so i don't if i you stay away from his non-comedy because he was like the most not funny dude on a not funny show already it's so already a not like, funny show right? yeah yeah it's like you get he went lower Right. <laughs> like he went like maybe diversity quotas, well you can't like, beat norm mcdonald or you know yeah, some of the classics right yeah, yeah. you can't so you go to the other end of the pool and you take a shit apparently and that becomes a thing and kim kardashian's like i want some and then you polish that shit and then boom dude wish, i, I wish norm them Mc... both luck yeah I wish yeah. them well godspeed you know love what a joke um the uh, I do. I have a Norm McDonald clip I'll be playing during the logic, my next logic presentation. Like people will get a good. It's a joke about logic, by the way. You'll enjoy it, everyone. So, get a little incentive to come to the next uh, logic presentation on Thursday. Check out Norm McDonald. It'll start up. It'll start off a presentation of Norm Norm McDonald joke. <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't make them like they used to. Yeah, that's for damn sure. I think that's Crowder's favorite comedian. Well, I mean, it's one, one of my favorite. I mean, I'd have to go to, to like, top comedians, but I'd go to like Bill Hicks or Richard Pryor. Yeah, Eddie, that's Eddie my, Murphy back in the day. Eddie or, Murphy back in the day was brilliant. Like he was fucking phenomenal. George Carlin, Carlin, even going back to the 70s where he got us like he was always extremely funny. Um, Bill Hicks to see. I don't know, but because I have his, <sighs> obviously uh, I'm biased towards the mushroom and he was he has some funny stories about being on acid being stopped by cops or mushrooms and <laughs> i was like hey i can relate kind of <laughs> uh, <laughs> to a certain extent so you know that was back when i was a you know a renegade um, oh very- that's back in the day you know they started the you know censor well censorship was a thing and then people started to break through that wall of confinement you know lenny bruce that's yeah. a funny motherfucker Dude, the I shit feel, you could say back I feel this. that we could say motherfucker today because yeah. these guys broke the wall down to make it acceptable to say such things. Otherwise, in polite company, we'd never say such words. But then you, again, you wouldn't in, say such words. In the old days, a gentle man was like a, a term of like incompetence. I was right? gonna say yeah, Americans were rugged, they were not gentlemen. They were people who could go down and cut down that tree to get you know the wagon across the river or whatever you got to do to not die today. From getting bitten ass by a rattlesnake or some tornado. Yeah, you see, you. you see these videos on YouTube of like people in I don't know 
Finland or Scandinavia, like chopping down like trees and building their own log cabins by themselves. I'm like, that's probably every man in America back in the day for the most part. Like they're all just, I mean, that's what I'm being. No, just the ones who got fed up with life in the town. You don't like it. You just move further out into the woods and just keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, in terms of like natural law and the determinism of nature that you can't control, 1883 is a good example of that. Like nature doesn't care. Nature, That's right. there's, nature there's a set of rules and if you don't obey that cause and effect you're gonna fact, die yeah. and that's what they started it doesn't care how you feel or what you believe that's all right. the way through yeah that's yeah. good 1883 Check all it right out. well we're going back into the 1970s i had a good segue for aaron and melissa's trust game and then we went back to 1883 and i lost <laughs> my timeline rattlesnake must have bit me in the ass on that one but i want to yeah let's cut to um so okay. we're gonna do yep go ahead I also want to do, uh, what was the other one we had? So we have Academy of Ideas. You want yes. me to see? So yeah. So we have um, Fear, Psychosis, and Call to Safety. Um, and so I'd we'll like to that. get Academy you... of Ideas on the show. Yeah. Wanna... Yeah. That would be fantastic. Yeah. To see if we can use his name or not just Academy of Ideas, but that's, I like his work. <laughs> People who and do this like one... his Yeah. This one just came out yesterday or, you know, it's pretty recent. So the last two have been fantastic. The last one was, is humanity doomed? Carl Jung on healing a sick society. That was 11 days ago. Check that out. But tonight we're going to play the new one he released yesterday or two days ago called fear psychosis and the cult of safety. Check them out in tandem. So after you watch this episode, go check out the other one because he has some interesting things to say about how we can sort of heal a sick society. Carl Jung had some very fascinating ideas about how to heal and find a resolution to the disparate pieces of the, our psyche. But anyway, so that we've been in a safety society for the record since like nine 11 heavy on that's, that's what nine right. 11 did. It's for your safety. It's for your security. It became an excuse to take away your rights It's for your safety. It's for your security. And it's just like what, uh, I don't know, a Jeffrey Dahmer or, mm. you know, any of those type of serial killer Ted Bundy types, dude, there are people preying on us right now for our safety and security. And that's not a lie. It's not an exaggeration. Some of them just had a world world government conference and the other ones you've been seeing on tv for the past two years <laughs> telling you what's up without uh backing it up that's for sure. all right so okay, let's roll then, into so the intermission two, should we just do a truth stream and then play 20 minutes of that and then move into the yeah how long is the academy of ideas 11 minutes 10 minutes 11 right. minutes 12 minutes technically no 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 right. 13 i'm sorry 13 i'm looking at the one, 13 and then uh do we have any other nominations for that intermission that we need to play a clip of Unless you have timestamps, you had the DuPonts, America's Wealthiest Family, George III, The Last King of America documentary. Um, All right, George III's, you know, NASA he's an incompetent fool who was born in the power and we went to war and we won against him. So that covers that. But the DuPonts, we should show the first 10 minutes of that documentary because they were, despite everyone thinking the Rockefellers were the shiznit, the Rockefellers put their money together in very orchestrated public ways for the new world order and internationalism where the DuPonts did it behind the scenes. They moved here from France. They had a whole bunch of people. They got into the gunpowder making long before they made mm. nylons for everybody and took the world by storm with all sorts of petrochemical chemical, yeah. plastics, wow. all these sort of things. So I want to get DuPont their story at least in the time capsule a little bit. Cause we do Rockefeller foundation, Rockefeller, this Rockefeller. And it sounds cliche, but I promise you, if you dig into any of the source materials, you're going to find out how not cliche that is and how understated it is on the actual facts. 
but let's put the duponts yeah. on the record and then um why don't so, we do duponts first then trust game then academy of ideas yes. this is from a historical time <clears throat> right because it mind. goes from like the money people to like the trust game and like what right. they got up to and then like how do we get out of that with academy of ideas yeah. and this safety culture created by the people who are printing money out of nothing yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not that complicated yeah. power flows where money goes and those people are printing money out of nothing and giving it to their friends so is that yeah. a conspiracy fiat is uh, Call it whatever you want that's yeah. how the work how it's how the world works yeah. let's move forward all right cool intermission uh, and then we'll be which right back. part of the trust game did you want to highlight uh I'm trying to remember Bretton Woods. Yeah, I wanted to catch the beginning of Bretton Woods and then follow it through Volker smoking his cigars and doing the I don't read the entrails of what the New York you know post says. I read, you know, we make stuff up for ourselves over here at the Fed. All right. Uh, I haven't haven't had a chance to check this one out yet. No, that's all right. I started I'll help you. I'll help you you find it Mm -hmm. while we so play the DuPonts first for 10 minutes and we'll go through it and see if we can find that. Yeah. uh, Aaron and Melissa, they have a couple more episodes of this to drop. They drop it on Friday nights. They drop it right when I'm beginning the autonomy lecture. So I'm always like, I want to watch a couple minutes, but I got to get in there and talk to the students. So when I get out at like three or four in the morning, I watch like a half hour of the trust game. Then I finish it off the next morning for the past like seven weeks. That's like a thing. So that's how I get it in. Take it. And like the other episodes up until this one were like really scintillating. If there's a dry one, it's like, yeah, it's got Volker. Like, you know, this, he's not as bankster X. Like he's just like a quiet bureaucrat banker, like doing his thing. But hey, the there's always series, connecting glue in every story. Like, yeah, he's, they, a, I mean, he's an important they, figure that will make sense. It'll come to why it'll make more sense in light of the future episodes as to why they're spending time on Volker or Volkernomics. Oh, for sure, dude. And like, like they've done a, sense. a masterful job at that. taking like an inaccessible subject. And, a, yeah. and if you can access it and understand it, a dry subject, right? Yeah. And I like Aaron's little, uh, his, his, uh, wow, 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 wow. Yeah. The, like I wanted yeah, to say, what, like, what are those Brown. inserts called, called, there was a name I was trying to draw for the inserts, but yeah, where they do that. And he like repeats back, like funny shit. It's a Charlie Brown sort of, yeah. But that yeah. teacher wah, talking wah, 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 wah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So to make it, the, make it exciting, to make it understandable and to make it like something I look forward to every week. I think that's art right there. This is a masterpiece. This might yeah. be the greatest series, like documentary series in regards to money hegemony out of all the great ones we talked about and alluded to earlier. Ben Stills and uh, Corbett's was fantastic on the history of the Federal Reserve and all that stuff. But like this, this puts it completely into perspective because it goes the whole way back to the Rothschilds. It goes back to what happened with Napoleon and starts there with like how they were able to manipulate things with gold. And then what happened moving forward from there? Yeah, they didn't uh, have to the start Civil in War or Egypt or Rome. Right. Like, okay, here's the usable history on this that's topic. The, that's the problem. And it's still with, 12 episodes. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's still 12. I know. Right. Exactly. And that's the problem with books. Like this is a great book. I mean, so. Yeah, lost but like money. you start back in Rome, you know, and actually before I also have Babylon, not Babylon's bankster, but the Babylonian, Babylonian woes. Yeah. yeah, Dave Astle. So that's another one. It starts back with again, we're going back to the banking system and the priest class, and you know, which is really important, but it's it can be really hard to. Yeah, they've got a better education right now in their series than any university kicking around is offering to their students. And uh, this is what so, should be taught in university instead of like gender oh, yeah. studies. And, Except you'd leave university and be like, this is part of the that. Ponzi scheme that they're talking about <laughs> in this movie. 
What's the one type of debt that's not a lot cannot be forgiven under any sort? Oh, student debt, right. sir. Student debt. That would be the answer. All right. So now that. we're going to roll intermission. So it's going to go DuPont and then Trust Game and then Academy and Ideas. And then we're going to come back with the culture section, which is going to get lewd and crude. So if you got kids around, you're going to need to mute or fast forward after the intermission because we're going to be playing stuff that uh, maybe Chris Rock should have said. Some funny things could have been said. And those joke writers, they went with the least offensive thing that they had on the list of things available. I mean, so anyway, we'll get to that all. But that's not as important as what you're about to see during this intermission. Thanks, LD. We'll be right back. DuPont, a name recognized around the world. Famous maker of nylon, rayon, Teflon, and paint. Everyone's heard of the company, but we know little about the family who founded it. With thousands of heirs, they're richer than the Vanderbilts, the Gettys, or the Rockefellers. But by and large, you won't see them on the evening news. The two exceptions, one who would be president, and one who spun out of control and for the first time in years dragged the family name into scandal. Unlike many wealthy American families, the DuPonts did not get rich quick. Theirs is a fortune that took many generations to build. In fact, tracing the family history means going all the way back to 18th century France. It was the time of the French Revolution, and the country was in a state of turmoil. Angry mobs roamed the streets, hunting down noblemen, who were brutally executed in what was known as the Reign of Terror. One of the fugitives from the mobs was Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours. Born the son of a humble watchmaker, DuPont's natural brilliance won him the position of economic advisor to the King of France. Pierre's position brought him in contact with men like Thomas Jefferson, the American diplomat. It also raised the DuPont family to the level of aristocrats, making them prime targets of the revolutionaries. Facing death by guillotine, DuPont very prudently decided it was time to start a new life in America. On October 2nd, 1799, Pierre and his family boarded the American Eagle, a ship bound for the New World. The passengers had high hopes as they set sail, blissfully unaware they had embarked on a voyage from hell. The weather was foul, the ship leaked, and the captain lost his way. So a trip that should have taken seven or eight weeks stretched to more than 13. Food was so scarce that towards the end, the DuPonts were reduced to eating boiled rats. On New Year's Day, 1800, the ship finally docked in Newport, Rhode Island. And they all got off the boat as fast as they could, anything to get on some land. And there was a farmhouse. So they went up to the farmhouse and there was nobody home. But there was a whole dinner ready to be eaten. And my family ate that farmer's dinner. And... The only saving grace to their <laughs> stealing, in a sense, somebody else's dinner was that they left them a Louis d'Or, which was a French gold piece, which was probably more money than that family would ever have seen in their lives. Getting to America had been a miserable ordeal, but the DuPonts were eager to start a new life. Since Pierre was getting on in years, his son, Eleuther Irone, would take the lead in making the family's fortune. 
As a young man, Irenae had studied the manufacture of gunpowder. As this reenactment shows, he was out hunting with a friend when he got the idea that spawned a multi-million dollar business. I think I got one. That is my third misfire, Colonel. You should use English powder, as I do. The American made is very poor. You made powder in France, Irene. You're an expert. Maybe you can tell what's wrong with it. I would have to examine it carefully before I could tell. But there is no reason. Why don't you make a study of it? Why not go into powder making? The chemistry you learn in France from Lavoisier would make you the best powder man over here. And you would be rendering a great service to the country. Hmm. It was a golden opportunity. With money borrowed from French investors, Irene bought 95 acres on the Brandywine River, just outside Wilmington, Delaware. He built his powder mills, incorporating all the tricks of the trade he had learned in France. For instance, instead of one big factory, he built several widely spaced smaller ones. That way, when there was an explosion, he wouldn't see his entire investment blown sky high. By the spring of 1804, E.I. DuPont de Nemours and Company was open for business. The first sizable order came from an old family friend, Thomas Jefferson, now President of the United States. Jefferson was pleased to hear about Irenae's new business and saw to it that the U.S. Army and Navy bought DuPont powder. These contracts provided the boost Irenae needed to get his company off the ground and establish what would be a long-term business relationship between DuPont and the U.S. government. In those early years, the entire family worked in the mills. Living in that somewhat isolated area, cousins often married cousins, making the family a very close-knit group. Well, understand that these people were French immigrants. They didn't speak the language well. They were in a very dangerous business where uh, people were getting uh, injured and killed all the time trying to make gunpowder. I mean, one spark and there was a very large explosion. So they did kind of uh, stick together. It was a point of pride that the DuPonts assumed the same risks as their employees. Family members not only worked alongside the powdermen, they built their homes beside the mill yards. My father was trained as a very little boy. If he heard any explosion, he was to go and stand in the doorway of his room till someone came because that was the strongest part of the house. And the beds were not up against the wall. They were in the middle of the room because if the anything had blown, you didn't want a picture falling over on top of you in your bed or the wall coming down and hitting you. Despite all the precautions, there were many accidents in those early years. One horrific explosion in March 1818 killed 40 workers instantly and shook the ground as far away as Pennsylvania. These accidents were tough on Irenae, but he never thought of giving up. The company, to a certain degree, gave a, uh, a, a purpose for the family. The company becomes a statement to them of their worth. It becomes a statement of their, uh, of their patriotism to their new country. DuPont would provide the U.S. government with explosives in every war, beginning with the War of 1812. 
Though these early conflicts provided steady profits, Irenae was plagued by a shortage of working capital. Every dollar earned went toward rebuilding or expanding. In 1834, the strain on this hard-working man finally took its toll. Irenae died of a heart attack at age 63. Ironically, the founder of a multi-million dollar company died owing money to his creditors. Alfred DuPont, Irenae's oldest son, would head the company for the next 13 years. More a scientist than a businessman, Alfred's philosophy was make it better, make it safer a policy that very nearly ran the company into the ground. Fortunately, his younger brother Henry, a West Point graduate, took over in 1850. Known as the general, Henry had an entirely different outlook. Make it quicker, make it cheaper, was his philosophy, and he saw to it his workers did just that. It was under Henry that the company first started making a profit, thanks to his skill as a manager as well as to the country's great push westward. What's happening is that the United States is growing as, an, as a nation. It's uh, expanding across the continent. and the course of doing so, it's building roads, it's building canals. So what you have is a, is a nation coming into being uh, in, on this continent. And DuPont Powder played a big role in making that happen. As Henry got older, the family was relieved when his nephew, Lamont DuPont, emerged as the star of his generation. Lamont seemed to have it all. He was tall, good-looking, and a gifted chemist. But in 1884, Lamont was at Ropano, a dynamite plant he had started in New Jersey, when a worker alerted him to a problem with a nitroglycerin experiment. Mr. DuPont. Yes? There's something wrong in the nitrator. All right, I'm coming. And he found that the uh, mixture was already beginning to decompose and bubble and boil. And so he pulled the handle that would drop the bottom out of the vessel into a, uh, a swimming pool-like container and ran as fast as he could. And it did go off with such force that the barrier around the machinery uh, moved right over and buried him. Lamont was only 53 when he died, leaving his wife Mary to care for their nine children. It was a devastating blow for the DuPont family. When Henry died just five years later, there was no one really qualified to take charge. The older partners kept the company going until 1902, when they decided to do the unthinkable. They would sell out to their biggest competitor. 100 years of hard work and sacrifice were on the line when Alfred I. DuPont, a young member of the firm, made a bold announcement. We will proceed with the sale as soon as it can be arranged. <clears throat> the meeting is adjourned. Just a moment, sir. I'll buy the company. You, Alfred? Yes, I'll bid against Laughlin and Rand. Contributing causes set up the 1970s for, generally, a slow, stagnant growth. Sharply rising consumer prices, unemployment above 10%, and rampant inflation. Egged on by the Fed's easy money policies, which in turn catered to government's unlimited appetite for deficit spending, 
particularly on swelling social programs, what Fed officials now refer to as the Great Inflation Era. Then in 1973, the big Middle East producers cut off oil shipments to major consuming countries. When the embargo was lifted, the price of foreign oil had jumped from three to $12 a barrel, four times higher than before. More than $20 billion left the United States. No one was spared its impact. 1974 to 1981, ironically, the OPEC oil-producing nations, who penalized the West with embargo during the acute oil crisis, turned around and reinvested their gratuitous oil earnings by the hundreds of billions into U.S. treasuries, commercial banks, European markets, etc. Thus, the petrodollar was recycled on Wall Street in a huge way, amounting to some $450 billion in the time period, continuing afterwards to be a market force as well, spiking again from 2005 to 2014 when oil prices were especially high. This partially accounts for Saudi princes, Russian billionaires, and the like buying flashy sports cars, Western sports teams and stadiums, exotic weaponry, and pretty much just showing off in a stereotypical 90s rap video-like fashion. Meanwhile, the 1974 Equal Credit Opportunity and the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act led to increased loans to many who were previously unqualified or outright discriminated against. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, both government-sponsored enterprises, became one of the most common conduits for these types of loans, with many issued at subprime rates, which will become significant later. The marketplace responded to these new conditions by packaging mortgages and other debts into securities, later known as collateralized debt obligations, where risk is sold based on a pool of total mortgages. Solomon Brothers and First Boston led development of these securitization investments. A misleading name at best, since over the decades its systemic risk became a contagion. Amid this gritty and bleak period, in August 1978, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City hosted its first economic policy symposium, then held in Kansas City, to discuss world agricultural trade, the potential for growth, the relationship between food, population, developing economies, and loan assistance had long been intertwined, as evidenced by entities such as the IMF and diplomats such as Henry Kissinger. They cranked up their tractors before dawn, jamming the routinely clogged commuter routes that funneled thousands of federal workers into Washington. Not even the entire metropolitan police force could prevent sporadic outbreaks of violence as some farmers shouted, we've raised enough corn, but not enough hell. Police arrested at least 14 demonstrators as police cars were rammed, tires slashed, and windows broken on others. As tractors circled the White House, American agriculture movement spokesmen claimed they'll mass 30,000 farmers here over the next several days. And on Capitol Hill, groups sometimes angrily pressed their demands for higher federal price supports, claiming low income and rising inflation is destroying the family farm. At a rally, speakers scoffed at last year's reported 40% increase in net farm income, saying it went to large corporations that someday will fix food prices, leaving the consumer helpless in the face of rising supermarket costs. Later in the day, chief inflation fighter Alfred Kahn, at a briefing, was asked whether he thought farmers were the worst victims of inflation. No, I don't think that's true. 
Did he know the president had said farmers suck the most? That's all right. He's entitled to his opinion. I'm entitled to mine. October 6, 1979, newly appointed Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker, a noted member of the Trilateral Commission that surrounded the Carter administration, almost immediately raises the discount interest rate, a last resort rate available to banks from the Fed to meet reserve shortages, to an unprecedented, never-before-seen 12%. The Federal Reserve Banks issue most of the currency we use. They serve as bankers, both for the government and for private commercial banks. And they also influence the lending and investment policies of commercial banks by utilizing a variety of economic tools which are available to the Federal Reserve System. Tightening money supplies and jacking up overall rates across the board. Volcker has been called the second most powerful man in Washington, and with good reason. His Federal Reserve controls how much money banks have to lend out. If it slows up the flow of dollars, there is less money to lend. Result, interest rates go up and the economy slows down. Unbridling gold from the $35 an ounce peg in 1971, the price increased tenfold to $350 an ounce by the time of Volcker's Fed appointment. Months later in 1980, it had soared to $850 an ounce, pushing the interest rate up and up as the value of the dollar plummeted in comparison to the shiny stuff. To correct this in the background, Volcker was quietly instituting a new, unofficial standard for the value of the money supply. Now, instead of pegging it to just one commodity, gold, Volcker used a basket of 25 different commodities, with gold included, to determine the volume of worthless paper notes he wanted in circulation. With currency circulation at his personal discretion, this powerful appointee had become a veritable wizard. From this moment, every bit as much an alchemist and magician as any in the superstitious courts of history. Now, the entire economy lived or died by Volkernomics. Yet, the gravity of his powers lent to his noted reclusiveness. Even his appearances before Congress were often in secret sessions. Perhaps the little people had a right to openness and accountability in their government, but it was clear that did not extend to the secrets of their money. Enter the new age of banking. Meanwhile, in February 1980, came curious talk about the quote, commercial prospects for alchemy as the New York Times ran what was admittedly an unsubstantiated story claiming a laboratory in Russia had mastered the age-old mythical practice of turning lead into gold. And at the efficient rate of just $600 an ounce, something like $1,944 in today's money, ironically quite close to the actual price of gold as of writing this. The article acknowledged the process is technically feasible, Particle accelerators have been used to create 24 synthetic elements to date, with both the U.S. and the USSR holding credits. But whether or not a modern lab can do it economically, on a mass scale, or under the direction of credible research programs funded by a global power remains admittedly aloof and out of the realm of widely accepted fact. The population, though furious, felt helpless at the hands of powerful interests. And the CBC reported, 
Volcker's inflation-slaying actions spurred massive protests, with farmers blockading the Fed's headquarters with tractors and builders famously mailing Volcker wooden two-by-fours to show their lumber was no longer needed. One U.S. senator even demanded Volcker take his boot off the neck of the economy. A lot of people are angered at today's high interest rates, and some of them are letting the Federal Reserve Board know about their anger. The mail for Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker today included sawed-off two-by-fours from people in the construction industry protesting high interest rates. Well, there are 400 more downstairs. There actually, there are 700 more downstairs. And outside the Fed, demonstrators chanted, Volcker is a loan shark. The protesters representing community organizations around the country sent a delegation inside. Volcker said high interest rates are necessary to control inflation. We have a very serious problem, which I think hurts the lottery income person, hurts the poor person. Then responding to the crowd, Volker came outside and promised to consider the demonstrators' demand. The group will come back in about two weeks with some more detailed suggestions. This particular crowd was easily satisfied, even though it may be a long time before interest rates come down substantially. A declining standard of living and lots of layoffs in our town. That's why our parents are depressed. November 2nd, 1980. In a stark reminder that the economic system is laid on a foundation of little more than bare confidence, Alan Greenspan, then a key economic advisor to Reagan and before the chairman of President Ford's Council on Economic Advisors, identified belief as the key tool of the inflation fight. It's psychological, said Greenspan. If people believe he will bring inflation down, then inflationary pressures and long-run interest rates will fall. That's a critical economic variable. So it's all about what people believe in, where they put their faith. Because you got to have faith, right? It's the 80s, so George Michael's coming up and, you know, but... The question remains, who's operating behind that curtain of faith anyway? In 1981, the 12 Federal Reserve Banks took on an advisory role in implementing the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act, in theory giving better home lending access to low-income and other marginalized demographics who were often shut out of the process. In practice, it also facilitated the expansion of quasi-government-backed collateralized securities, including those under Countrywide, Freddie Mac, and Fannie Mae. At the same time, a tipping point rocked the U.S. by May 1981 as the prime rate, the number that actually affects ordinary consumers on credit cards, home equity, and auto loans and the like, reached an astronomical 20.5%. Frankly, fucking insane to all those who could only sit by and watch. The unemployment rate hit 11%, and unease overtook the nation as the most severe recession since the Great Depression emerged throughout 1981 and 1982, inextricably linked to the Fed's sharp, spiky, and painful interest rates. And Volcker is not a wealthy man. He has to smoke 25-cent cigars, in fact. His policies have been blamed for throwing a lot of people out of work. And today, a senator said, 
Good luck, Paul, you poor devil. A few demonstrators may have hanged Paul Volcker in effigy outside the Senate today. Protests erupted with farmers, workers, and average people confronting D.C. and demanding relief from the most powerful but little-known cigar-smoking man looming over our economy. Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, told the Congress today that the Fed will relax its tight control a little over the money supply this year, which could be some help in bringing down interest rates. But at the same time, Volcker said the Congress should work as hard as it can to cut the huge deficits. Volcker arrived on Capitol Hill at about the same time as the president's annual economic report to Congress. The report blamed Volcker for high interest rates, and so did some members of Congress feel very frustrated in responding to that question because I don't have a quick and easy answer. But some congressmen said the administration was blaming Volcker for the failure of Reagan policy. I think we're seeing a tendency towards scapegoating. And uh, I think from time to time you become one of the scapegoats. And Volcker said he will continue high interest rate policies to fight inflation despite administration criticism. I don't hang around trying to read the entrails of what some statement in the administration may say because it's our responsibility to make up our mind about these things. But by July 1982, Volcker would predict lower rates and an economic recovery. Late today, the Fed cut its principal lending rate to member banks for the third time in less than a month. Volcker brought the senators a promise that credit and money supply growth won't get any tighter. Federal Reserve Board's lowering of the discount rate yesterday brought a sigh of relief. Volcker said he believes we have turned the corner on inflation, interest rates will move lower, and there will be a slow recovery from the recession. If we are successful in bringing down inflation, and I think the trend is clearly in that direction, uh, interest rates are going to reflect that. Is this where they meet? Let's go. This place looks like shit. You can pull it in. Go to the next one. In August. This content is made possible by individuals like you. Become a supporting member and access our growing library of membership courses and videos. Learn more at academyofideas.com members. Is the modern world caught in the grip of a fear psychosis? And has a cult of safety entrenched itself in the West? In this video, we are going to explore these questions. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. Today we live longer than ever before. Our chance of dying from war, natural disaster, pandemics, or starvation are at levels our ancestors could only have dreamed of. But given all this security, we are more fearful than ever before. From all corners of society, there are warnings of potential dangers and imminent disaster. And as the sociologist Barry Glasner observed, we are living in the most fear-mongering time in human history. And the main reason for this is that there's a lot of power and money available to individuals and organizations who can perpetuate these fears. 
But it is not just manipulative fear-mongering that is responsible for the disproportionate fear that infects our society. For in one way or another, we all accept and reinforce the normality of fearing. We continually remind ourselves and others that threats exist everywhere. In the streets, in the food we eat, in the technology we use, in our fellow men and women, and even in the air we breathe. The cultural narratives which inform how we make sense of the world seamlessly move from one fear to another. Hardly anyone questions, however, whether we should be so fearful. In his book How Fear Works, the sociologist Frank Furity exposes our culture of fear, and as he writes, In the current era, fearing appears to be such a volatile and directionless activity. It seems as if one threat begets another only to be contradicted by yet another newly discovered target of fear. Or as the philosopher Lars Svensson likewise notes, there no longer seems to be anything that is really secure. We seem to be obsessed with every conceivable danger. Fear has become a basic characteristic of our entire culture. Life is unpredictable, and the world is littered with dangers and threats to both our security and well-being. And so fearing is not unique to modern society. However, in some of the most flourishing civilizations of the past, fear was counterbalanced by hope and by an optimistic belief in the human potential. During the Renaissance and Enlightenment, the idea that individuals and communities, through bold and creative action, could ward off dangers and shape the uncertain future flourished. In ancient Greece and Rome, courage was held in high regard, and so individuals were proactive in the face of risks and daring in the presence of the unknown. Fortune favors the brave, according to the Latin proverb. Furthermore, in many past civilizations it was acknowledged that uncertainty is not only a source of potential danger, but also of opportunity. But as Frank Furity writes, that was then. In the 21st century, the optimistic belief in humankind's ability to subdue the unknown has given way to a belief that it is powerless to deal with the perils that confront it. The flame of hope still flickers on, but it is increasingly overshadowed by a dark mood of intangible anxiety. The courage, hope, and optimism that in civilizations past kept fear in check is all but lost in the modern world, and so the lives of many of us are consumed by fear. We see everything through the distorted lens of fear. And regarding this perspective, Frank Furity elaborates, This perspective of fear has been so thoroughly internalized that many people who adopt this outlook are not aware of its influence on their behavior. For most people, such a perspective comes across as common sense. This does not mean that people are perpetually scared or fearful. Rather, the perspective of fear works by sensitizing people to focus on potential threats and dangers while distracting attention from the probable positive outcome of engaging with uncertainty. In viewing the world through a perspective of fear, people see risks in things, behaviors, and activities which in generations past were not considered risky. They are overly fearful of threats which are an inevitable part of life, and they evaluate experiences first and foremost on the basis of the potential risks they entail. One of the accomplishments of the fear perspective is that it continually expands the number of issues that constitute a hazard and are therefore represented as risk. Since the 1980s, numerous commentators have commented on the explosion of risks, 
What is more, the meaning of risk has taken on a largely negative connotation. Up until the latter half of the 20th century, it was common sense that many risks are worth taking, so long as one was motivated by a noble enterprise, self-realization, by the spirit of adventure or by values such as freedom and truth. Facing up to risks was acknowledged to be a precondition for the cultivation of character and even the accomplishment of greatness. Or as Nietzsche put it, the devotion of the greatest is to encounter risk and danger and play dice for death. Instead of being celebrated, today the risk-taker is often castigated as foolish, selfish, and a danger to both himself and others. This negative perception of risk-taking is driven by worst-case thinking. Many people are predisposed to think of the worst that can happen, and then they behave as if it is likely to happen. This worst-case thinking has even infiltrated the highest levels of government. As some politicians and policymakers have adopted the utopian goal of socially engineering a zero-risk society, and to the applause of the fearful masses, an ever-expanding obsession with risk is one of the most striking features of the culture of fear. In its most irrational version, some people demand zero risk, a project that would require abolishing uncertainty completely, explains Ferdy. In seeing risks almost everywhere, and in being highly risk-averse, many people, without explicitly knowing it, are guided by the precautionary principle. According to the precautionary principle, when faced with any degree of uncertainty, the best option is to protect oneself and others and to side with caution. In recent years, the precautionary principle has entrenched itself in public policy in the form of the inverted quarantine. While the purpose of a traditional quarantine is to seclude a sick person to prevent a disease from spreading to others, an inverted quarantine, in contrast, involves healthy people isolating themselves from the dangers they perceive as threatening. And as Ferdy writes, Inverted quarantine constitutes a response to the fear that the human condition is inherently unsafe. The belief that the human condition is inherently unsafe is the fundamental creed of the cult of safety, which has solidified itself in our society. In the last few decades, safety has, in the words of Ferdy, taken on a quasi-religious quality. The quest for safety has become the raison d'etre of the West and the rules and restrictions erected at the altar of safety have ballooned to absurd proportions and intruded on ever more areas of life. To make matters worse, no matter how irrational or authoritarian they are, and no matter whether there is any evidence they are effective, safety rules and restrictions are held by most people to be essential and beyond question. Safety and security have become their own arguments, Officials and organizations seem to believe that the mere mention of these words is enough. No further justification is needed. Safety rules are often assumed to be doing something good just because they exist. Safety and security theater describes procedures whose main role is to convince everyone that someone somewhere is dealing with a threat, regardless of whether they are or not. An abundance of safety rules and restrictions are not making people feel safer they are contributing to our culture of fear. For safety rules and restrictions communicate signals about potential dangers and threats. And so the more a society is inundated with them, the more people assume that the environment is inherently unsafe. Furthermore, in placing limitations on the freedom to explore, experiment, 
and make one's own choices, rules and restrictions implicitly communicate to people that they are incapable of making their own risk assessments and assuming responsibility for their own life. The modern cult of safety is infantilizing people and increasing the chances that, from cradle to grave, they remain dependent on overbearing authority figures to keep them safe from what they have been socialized to believe to be a dangerous world. The act of trading in freedom does not make people feel safe. It heightens people's awareness of their lack of control over their lives and thereby enhances their sense of insecurity. The loss of any of our freedoms simply undermines people's capacity to deal with the threats they face. Many safety rules and restrictions derive their perceived legitimacy from the authority of the science. In contrast to science, which relies on evidence, experimentation, the testing of ideas, and whose conclusions are open to doubt and reinterpretation, the science relies on trust and authority and does not tolerate skepticism. If the science alerts us to a threat, or if politicians invoke the science to justify heavy-handed measures, then those who refuse to blindly follow the science are treated as the modern equivalent of a heretic. Statements like, the science says, writes Ferdy, serve as the 21st century equivalent of the exhortation, God said. Unlike science, the term, the science, serves a moralistic and political project. It has more in common with a pre-modern revealed truth than with the spirit of experimentation that emerged with modernity. The constant refrain of scientists tell us serves as a prelude for a lecture on what threat to fear. Those who do not heed the warnings of experts are frequently castigated as irresponsible, if not evil. The fear that is infecting society is socially conditioned into us from a young age and it is fueled by a pessimistic conception of what it means to be human that is deeply entrenched in our society. People are educated to be preoccupied with their safety, and to regard being fearful as a sensible and responsible orientation toward the world. Policymakers, opinion formers, and advertisers act on the basis that people are risk-averse and feel powerless, and their messages normalize the perception that people are vulnerable this pessimistic conception of the human being is fundamentally flawed. For if vulnerability was the essential feature of the human being, the human race would have perished long ago. Although our lives are unpredictable and exposed, as humans we are more defined by our resilience and adaptability. Not only do we have a remarkable capacity to withstand threats, dangers, and hardships, but sometimes these even fast-track individual, familial, and societal growth. The pessimistic pull of our culture of fear is strong. But if we can become more aware of how it operates, influences us, and shapes society, and if we can cultivate a more optimistic vision of the human condition and a courageous attitude toward the future, then it is possible to free ourselves from its crippling influence. Or as Ferdy concludes in How Fear Works, Must we be defined by our vulnerability? Must we be fearful? The moment we ask these questions, we are well on the way to intuiting that there is always an alternative. Whether we adopt the philosophy of precaution or embrace a more courageous risk-taking approach depends on how we perceive what it means to be a human. Learn more about our membership, access transcripts, and the art we use in the videos by visiting academyofideas.com. 
Welcome back. It's the post intermission show. <clears throat> We're going to have some laughs because it's been a, it's been a lot of news and heavy ideas, right? Tony, you got to have some laughs and all this. Lots of laughs. Lots of laughs and the slap. A lot of yeah. slapping going on. You can yeah. take that to mean a lot of different things. What's that? Oh, I just got slapped by the invisible hand of Adam Smith. Been waiting all week to drop jokes like that. All right. So there's a reason um, why we're not comedians. Oh, yeah. There's a reason we're not comedians, especially. <laughs> I stand up, but if, if it's not funny, it's not comedy. Let's go to somebody <laughs> who actually has real comedy uh under under their jib. Let's check out um I'm thinking of a guy with a suit of armor. Maybe his name's Andrew Schultz. And he does a podcast uh called Flagrant Two with Akash Singh and um, he had a couple good points to make about the first amendment, about the rights to free speech. Like in Canada right now, they're trying to make an internet bill where you are going to lose your free speech and then they're going to copy that in America. I'm sure. So it's coming. So, uh, you know, back in the the day, you know, Lenny Bruce mentioned earlier, uh, Lenny Bruce is like breaking through boundaries and walls and stuff like that. And I'm sure that Andrew Schultz is about to cross a couple lines, uh, you know, and, but it's free speech and Will Smith resigned. So therefore Andrew must be right in what he's saying. <laughs> uh, let's go, let's go with 10 minutes. We'll go for 10 minutes. Cause he had some well thought out. And he has some like punches later that he's able to like work into the conversation. Let's go 10 minutes with flagrant two first time on grand theft world. Yes. Uh, this is more of a reaction to the slap heard around the world. And then now into the future in this time capsule, but you guys need to know that they tried to do this this week to distract us off from the world government summit. And since we talked all about that, now we can have some playtime. We did our work. Now let's see some funny chuckle chuckles that maybe you guys missed out on. So let, do we have that clip? I didn't know the yep. show card. Got show. He's got it. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing go. magic all the time over there, LD. Yes, he is. Audible's coming. I, I haven't had a show magic, card for two but, weeks. Uh, yeah. No, uh, I haven't had a show card for two weeks, and the show oh, still yeah, goes where's on. Your, uh, where's your the tablet tablet? won't open Notion anymore. I'm going to have to un- uninstall it and reinstall it or something. But I just like said, no excuses. Let's just move forward. Out. Let's just move forward. <laughs> Cyber Polygon got the tablet, but it didn't get this one yet. So this PC is still going strong. Do we find it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Flagrant two, Andrew Schultz, you're up. After the vicious attacks on Chris Rock last night, we think it's only right here at the Flagrant two podcast to defend the comics honor to tell jokes. So here we go. If you didn't see the Oscars, Chris Rock got himself in a hairy situation. He shined a light on female alopecia, while Jada's head shined a light on everything else. (laughs) Chris was making fun of Jada's baldy, but seriously, how is Will supposed to get turned on if she has a woman's haircut? Now, I'm not saying that he's gay. He likes women, specifically ones that swim for pen. All I'm saying is last night wasn't the first time Will fondled another man to make Jada happy. And Will's hand that struck Chris Rock was actually a metaphor for his relationship with Jada. Open when he wanted it to be closed. But let's be honest. Last night, Will Smith looked like he was from the streets of Philadelphia. And Jada looked like she was from the movie. 
<laughs> After all that drama, Will Smith still took home an Oscar. I'm talking about the award, not a Mexican guy to fuck his wife while he walks in the oh corner. My face. You got to chill. Now to clarify, Will won the Oscar for Best Actor. People were saying it was for the Lifetime Achievement Award, and no, that's not it. That Oscar goes to the plumber that unclogged Jada's shower drain. <laughs> now, oh now. I am tired of people not giving Jada enough credit, okay? It was actually Jada that helped Will get in character for King Richard. Because when she gives blowjobs, her head looks like a bouncing tennis ball. (laughs) (laughs) Give it up to Will, okay? Give it up to Will Smith. He is the only person to be recognized by the Motion Picture Academy and the Citizen app on the same night. (laughs) And to everyone saying Will was probably under the influence, no. Okay, he doesn't drink or do drugs. This is the only time he's ever smoked a rock in his life. (laughs) Now, don't feel bad for Chris Rock, okay? He was finally part of a hit white people will watch. (laughs) Give Chris Rock some damn credit, okay? He took that smack like a champ. And next year, he's going to be ready, okay? He'll have more bobs and weaves than Jada's wig collection. (laughs) Now, a lot of people are saying this never happened during Oscars So White. Exactly, okay? The white Oscars are mind-numbingly boring. Or as Jada would call it, a relationship with Will. (laughs) So, I think we can all admit this was shocking. Okay, because if there was going to be one chick at the Oscars with a hair loss disease that doesn't understand humor, I would assume it'd be A.B. Schumer. Oh, my God. Anyway, (laughs) Will, let this be a lesson to you. If you want to keep your wife's name out of other people's mouths, make sure to keep your hands off comedians. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Flagra 2. Now, let's start the show. Wow. Hey. Wow. Wow. You defended Chris Rock's honor, dude. Yeah, we did. How long do you think I'm going to be in this? Uh, Until we decide you can get out. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, you're really a prisoner of this. You're like Jada in her own marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Jada or Will? (laughs) Well, hey, Jada wants out, can't get out. That's That's facts. What did you guys think of what happened? Thank you, Squire. I mean, dude. Like, first um, off, the costume. Is yeah. just <laughs> I mean, it's fire, right? Is this just just in case like Will tries to attack? Yeah, because... this is what comedians are gonna have to wear now. Oh, oh really? Yeah, we're gonna have to dress prepared for violence, dude. Oh, yeah, really? this is what it's like now. 100%. Comedians are under attack, dude. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Everyone dude. wants to talk about Ukraine. Comedians wow. are the real ones the that real are Ukrainians. under attack. We're you, the Ukrainians of America. Absolutely. You don't look dude. like the Kingslayer. We're King the Slayer. Ukrainians of America. <laughs> you're not the Kingslayer, but you're like the Prince Slayer. I think. I'm the Prince Slayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Which Prince? Yeah, the Fresh. The fresh De- one. Definitely. <laughs> okay, um, guys, what were your thoughts on what happened with, uh, with Will and Rock? <laughs> I mean, that was unreal. It's hard to All right, so uh, that's one candidate. Now we got another candidate we're going to roll up. It's going to be uh, the foreshadowing of the whole thing. I didn't know about this until after the time, but as we all know, that slap teaches you a whole lot about the family Smith. There's a Ryan Long. He actually had two videos. Yeah, I think. He, he had two, one yeah. after, but what I found was the one from three months ago that actually builds out the plumber joke that Andrew Schultz just courageously told. Because first off, Schultz, he just sold out like uh uh, where are the Rockettes do radio city hall in New York, like 10,000 seat auditorium type place. So a lot of people are into his comedy. They go and pay to see it. Um, some of those jokes were pretty funny. Oh, no, I was laughing. That was there's good. some, 
but there's some uh, background on the jokes he was telling that I didn't know until <clears throat> Monday when I tuned into Twitter. And then you have to learn about all these things. So oh, yeah. Ryan Long, thoughtfully, uh, is not Will only Smith's like uh, a tall dude, but he also thought ahead on this. And he said, Will Smith's going to smack Chris Rock at the Oscars. I should go back three months in time and make a video about Will Smith's entanglements in a funny way. And no one will really see it until after he smacked. So anyway, he smacked Chris Rock, and then we saw the Ryan <laughs> Ryan Long video go around. And so uh, let's go ahead and play this thought piece from Ryan Long, and then we'll go to his post slap video. But this is like the the context backstory, if you will, to uh, what everyone's seeing in those uh, those clips all week. Yo, what's up, Will? Hey, Will. What's going on, Will? Hey, Will. I know you've been feeling down lately, so Jada called some of the guys and asked us if we do a little video for you. So here it is, buddy. I hope it helps. I don't know if you remember me, but I'm the maintenance guy that came around to fix your sink, and I ended up tagging Jada in the bathroom while you were upstairs. Dude, she cares about you. Just last week, after a two-hour piping, she's still talking about how much she cares about you, how good of a father you are. Big Willie, listen, I know you've had trouble satisfying her in the past. That's never been an issue for me, but to each his own. And again, we do know that you've been having trouble pleasing her, so we're all doing our part to take some of that burden off your back by keeping Jada on hers. I mean, I dropped a hammer on her pretty good. She's, I mean, you know, sometimes the kids are there waking up shit, and it's crazy. Yo, you ever play Halo on a big screen? Nah, Jada was mucking around. <sighs> I know you've been getting flat from that portion in your book where you said you gagged during sex. Don't let Jada tease you. She gags during sex, too. By the way, I came back a few days later and I had sex with your wife again in the pool house. And I wanted to ask, the cabinets, is that oak? Matter of fact, we got a couple noise complaints from the neighbors last week because she was hooting and hollering. It was, dude, she's a fiend, bro. But I just want you to know, eventually, maybe you'll figure it out, too, man. Keep swinging, keep trying. I'm sure you'll get the gist of her body eventually. We care about you because if you're not happy, then she's not happy. She's gonna be telling us about it. And that's not really our job. That's not what we signed up for. Yo, Will, can I just say, you're the man. Just cause we're taking your wife for a spin doesn't mean we don't care about you. Ooh, is my mic still on? Hey, keep your head up, buddy. You know, you might just need a night off with some good food. Uh, Jada actually recently took me to this bomb Italian spot. Uh, she gave me a handy under the table at the back. So just mention your name to the bouncers and they'll let you in. Worked for us. She cares for you, bro. That's why she has the same haircut as you. Jada put me on an allowance of about five G's a month. So works out to about a grand a bone. Fuck, I love an allowance. You used to rap too, right? I think that's where the connection came. And then my boy August is the one who called me and put me on her. And he was like, Phil, you gotta meet this chick, man. She's crazy, man. So me and him one night ended up, all I'm gonna say is choo, choo. She had a caboose on her, dog. It was crazy. We ran her like a highway. Oh yeah, anyway, man. Um, hope this makes you feel better, man. I, I've always been a big fan of yours. <laughs> Keep pushing. Also, while I was smashing Jada on the counter, I noticed there was a little bit of scuffage. So you might want to get that checked out before it gets any worse. Hey, and uh, I'm sure Jada's probably watching this with you. I know how she is. Jada, uh, you left the handcuffs over at my house. They're a little tarnished, but it's still usable. Stay in the game, brother. Keep on keeping on. Feel better, big guy. You got this. And next time, if you're going to drop her off, which I don't have a problem with that, dude, you got to like wait around the corner, but you can't wait outside anymore. He makes the block too hot. Everybody sees Will Smith. Now I'm flooded with all types of people asking questions and shit. You know, we'd, we'd really like our privacy at this time. <laughs> privacy yeah. that's quite outspoken even before the oscars you know situation because they're talking about running the train on dude's wife yeah, right. 
Oh, I, I cut it off too soon. Hang on, there's just a couple. A tiny oh, is there a couple more seconds? Did anybody call Thursday? Because I think that'd be a good day to take another crack at her. I definitely got Thursday. All right. All right, there you go. <laughs> she started using Doodle to organize those multiple person meetings. It's like uh, Calendly, but for group meetings. <laughs> yeah. That's a new it's feature on Tinder, right? That's a callback joke to like 12 hours ago when I was doing the Q&A with the mm-hmm. students. We were talking about getting your calendar set up. And that's how you have the group meetings, right? There you go. Yeah. Doodle. Doodle.com. Doodle, yeah. You see, Pick you your see time that. slots. I'm going to have to let Ryan Long know about that. All right. So that was the um, the prequel to the slap. Now, Ryan Long also has had a piece post-slap. Uh, that's for consideration. Then we can get to Kyle Donegan and maybe yeah, the JP. Dunnigan, yeah. yeah. So four comedians, different flavors on the take. But I also know that making fun. Hi, hi, I'm a comedian, but I also know that making fun of people's bald wives is no laughing matter. A lot of people are of the mind that nothing should be off limits in comedy, but I'm of the mind that one thing should be off limits, and that's making fun of people's bald wives. When your bald wife's thinking about attending a show, she shouldn't have to be worried about whether it's one of those comedians who's going to make fun of bald wives. Hollywood award shows are a place for celebrating heroes and not a place to make bald wife jokes at the expense of Will Smith's bald wife. You know, it's one thing if your bald wife wants to make bald wife jokes at her own expense, but it's not the comedian's place to decide whether this is a time for those bald wife jokes. When Michael Richards hit the stage of the Laugh Factor, he said some of the worst slurs imaginable, except for making fun of bald wives. Because even Michael Richards knew that bald wife jokes are a line that should not be crossed. If you see a comedian making a bald wife joke at a show, it's up to us to hold that comedian accountable and say, hey, bald wife jokes are not okay. Comedy has rules, like the rule of three, things that are not allowed. Sexism, racism, and bald wife jokes, in that order. In the odd case, after a comedian finishes his or her medical assessment of the audience and finds out that one of the bald wives in the crowd was a bald wife as a result of a fashion statement and not a medical situation, even then I would handle that bald wife joke with extreme caution. If you want to make fun of the fact that someone's bald wife is having sex with his son's friends, then be my guest. But if you want to bring his bald wife's hairdo into the equation, you no longer have my stamp of approval. And despite the fact that edgelords like Chris Rock think that bald wife jokes should be okay, I hope that we can move forward to a bald wife joke free society where comedians come together in unison to say, no, I will not make bald wife jokes. And bald wife jokes are never okay. If you want to talk about who's really mental, anyone that doesn't get the fellas. Now, um, I don't know if we had the clip, but Jimmy Dore also had honorable mention because he found a Will Smith clip when he was Fresh Prince back in the day, uh, making fun of someone with alopecia. I I don't know if it was like uh, Arsenio Hall show, maybe someone in the band. So Jimmy was playing a clip like what a hypocrite Will Smith is because back in the day, he embarrassed someone who had lost their hair on live TV and like did it for jokes. Yeah, I have it here. But it's uh, it's in the we culture. don't necessarily have to watch okay. it boom yeah. boom 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 because I don't get the Fresh Prince like logo theme song in my head again. I don't need that. <laughs> there was already enough memes. That's a meme song now. It's not a theme song. It's a meme song. You saw some <laughs> of the mama. The mama told me anyway. Um, so let's go to uh, Kyle Dunnigan. Yeah, you want to go to Dunnigan? And does JP have the wrap yeah, up then he, tonight? JP is he like up, okay? Because yeah. then we'll I'll, we'll close out the show and we'll play us out with JP. But let's go to Kyle Dunnigan first because it's the one underneath there, LD, of the one you just first. Five comedians takes. We don't have funny. time to show Jimmy Doors, but yeah, there's there's. Please welcome Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli. 
<laughs> you got the wrong cards. Chris rocks. Oh, Jada jokes. Don't read those. Don't read. Everyone those. loves jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. It says Jada Pinkett's pussy smells so bad it melted the hair off her head. <laughs> Scared me. You can't even keep another man's balls out of Jada's mouth. Do what he says. Security sucks at this event. Would you like me to read the winner now? Yes. Everyone who fucked Jada. <laughs> oh, shit. I shoot my show alone and... That is fantastic. <laughs> Not reverential. <laughs> oh, dude. That's, that's Kyle Dunkey. Oh, geez. <laughs> I don't know how he does that, man. That's mm. uh, pretty ballsy. It's pretty ballsy. <laughs> it's ballsy. Liza Minnelli. He's like, let's have Liza Minnelli say these words. <laughs> Such a superpower he has. He has the ability to make anyone say anything and make it funny. Kyle Dunnigan. I don't he know does. what that Pete Davidson dude does, but Cal Dunnigan's funny. He should be. Cal Dunnigan tried to get uh, he tried to get on Saturday Night Live, and they sh- shut him down. Apparently. Good for him that he didn't yeah. get on Saturday Night Live. That's a quick way to kill your career. That's what they, people are saying. It it's ain't like, like it used yeah. to be. It ain't no uh, Lauren Michaels MK Ultra production anymore. They don't, they're just all phoning <laughs> it over there. <laughs> no, now it's taken over by the Frankfurt School at this point. That's what I'm saying, man. Super boring. Yeah. Go woke, go broke over there at SNL. Out of Rockefeller Center, though. Woo! <laughs> Thank you, you Nelson. You left us SNL. That's your legacy, you shit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that was <laughs> pretty <Fuck>. funny. <laughs> Don't speak ill of the dead. Okay, all right. Whatever. All right, Nelly. All right, uh, LD. Who do we got? What he said about pen? Alec Baldwin. Oh, dude. Well, the well, Alec Baldwin know. skits he does, like the two, the one where he did the too soon. Is it too soon? Oh. Fucking brilliant. The, the mannerisms are just spot on. Kudos to Kyle Dunnigan. Thank you anyway. to all the members of the Grand Theft World community. LD, who else do we have to thank in addition to our stellar members and uh, yeah, all big, the people supporting Big the thanks to the Rockfin creatures, uh, T-Can, Dylan, <laughs> Occult Priestess. Uh, she she interviewed Addie earlier and uh, gave a shout out and uh, came and joined the, the fun. Carla, Augustine, DJ Lizzie, Thomas, Mark, Jim Garrison, Chalamoni, THX113-322, Dallas Avad, Matt Green, Chalamoni again, and Denver Attaway. Thanks a bunch, guys. Thank you, thank you. and uh, Thank you very much. That's awesome. Yeah, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out having two guests, but I was like, we need to make this work this week because it's the topic and... uh, there's a lot more to be learned about. I'm not done watching that summit yet, but that, at least we got it on the record, got the gist. We're getting into like what we need to know about it, but <clears throat> got to mark your calendars for next year for the world summit, world government summit. Got my book flight or my flight books. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm probably not going to be in Dubai next year. They'll move it to the next uh, <laughs> e, e city that they want to light up. But um, yeah, it's been a good like uh, an e cigarette. <clears throat> good workout tonight we learned about a lot of different uh historical topics that all kind of blend together into that same meta narrative 
that you can come back to each week on Grand Theft World as we take the week's news and we distill it and we add context. And uh, we have amazing, interesting, invigorating guests. And we wrap it all together in just like six hours. That's pretty good. Our day keeps uh, toxic news away. So until next time, uh, let's... Oh, we got uh, Lee Camp next week, right? Yeah, Lee Camp's the Lee guest Camp. next week. And then we got guests booked for the next several weeks after that. So okay. uh, okay. yeah, as we go through, it's, uh, it's a good pace to set into spring and let's invigorate and let's, let's help each other flourish. And uh, I want to thank you all for tuning in and not dropping out. 12 hours at this desk today is enough for me. So let's have JP play us out. I'm gonna have All right, good night. Oh. Looks like a good old-fashioned peaceful protest to me. Wow! Will Smith hit Chris Rock? But was it staged or was it real? We'll answer all those questions and more as we give you our full commentary about the situation tonight in order to shamelessly cash in on getting a bunch of easy views on a video. Just like everyone else is doing out there with this situation. After Chris Rock made a joke about Will Smith's wife, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air approached the stage, hit Chris Rock, and then sat down and proceeded to belligerently scream at him. Let's break it down. <laughs> Guys, could we please socially distance while inflicting violence on each other so no one gets harmed? Jeez, this is LA, so we're just starting year three of the first 15 days to slow the spread. <laughs> The radical left initially suspected that Will Smith is committing a racially motivated hate crime because Chris Rock is black. One of the only explanations their minds can come up with about anything, due to the limited thinking power that comes with mass formation psychosis. But upon further review, the left has concluded that the most appalling thing about this assault is that there was not nearly enough diversity involved. Accordingly, we can conclude that this incident was wrong but would have been absolutely fine if Chris Rock was a woman and Will Smith said he was a woman. In that scenario, we could all rally behind Will Smith for being brave enough to Leah Thomas the hell out of a woman. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. But I'm not a biologist, so I can't be completely sure what the genders of these men are. Let's keep going. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? He seems as logical as a radical liberal is supposed to be. He's mad that Chris Rock made a joke about his wife looking like G.I. Jane? Checks out as true. Nothing to get mad about there. He must have been mad about something else. This just in! Will Smith and his wife, G.I. Jane, are in an open relationship. So guys fornicating with his wife are okay, but guys making jokes about his wife are off limits. Makes sense. But the big question the world wants to know is, was this incident real or was it staged? Well, let's consider that the Oscars have become woke enough in recent years that they've fallen off the edge of the flat earth of what people actually care about. With ratings so low that they aspire to elevate their viewership all the way down to CNN levels, would the Oscars stage a stunt in order to catch the attention of everyone who's deliberately not paying attention to them? Well, with hundreds of millions of views on various clips about the incident going around the internet, it looks possible. But would the Oscars, 
who is an extension of communist Hollywood, whose principal objective is to entertain you with mind control Marxist propaganda so you're more controllable, and they serve the Chinese Communist Party, would they stoop to such a level of dishonesty? Well, given the fact that they mostly carry out an evil agenda, no, they wouldn't do such a dishonest thing. And besides, it looked so real. It couldn't be staged, right? Take a look. <laughs> oh. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your f***ing mouth. I'm going to. It looked so real. One of the best actors on the planet probably wouldn't be capable of making a staged event look so real. Would he? I don't think he'd know how to do that because that would require the actor to do acting. And that seems pretty far-fetched. So our conclusion is that the Will Smith-Chris Rock incident is authentic, just like everything else in Hollywood. Well, given the fact that this is definitely real, what's the most embarrassing part of this for Will Smith? Is it that he violently assaulted someone? No. Is it him belligerently yelling, making a fool of himself in front of the dozens of people that were watching on live television? No. It is the fact that when he hit Chris Rock, he didn't even phase the skinny comedian who was defenseless with his hands behind his back. For a man who played Muhammad Ali, you'd think he could do better. And hopefully he will next time he hears someone say something he doesn't like. Before we get to the very impressive lessons learned from this event, aside from everything, what else isn't worth hearing about from the Oscars? Well, former comedian and current wokeologist Amy Schumer took this stage to try to discredit the governor who most stands for freedom and protecting children. Ron DeSantis. The results were zero laughs and 100% of people still not giving a shit about her existence which is perfectly in line with the spirit of the Oscars. And without further ado, here are the lessons we've learned from Will Smith hitting Chris Rock. Number one, one of Hollywood's most shining examples is happy to inflict violence on someone in a crowded theater. So children should continue looking up to Hollywood celebrities. They're definitely mentally stable enough to model one's thinking and behavior off of. Kids, violence is only okay if you use it on someone you don't like. Otherwise, it's never acceptable. Number two, people on the left who violently assault someone who they don't like should face zero consequences. While parents on the right who use words to defend their children from corrupt school boards should continue to be considered domestic terrorists. I think the Chinese Communist Party's North American ambassador would agree. Number three, the uninteresting Oscars only become relevant to America if there's an interesting display of violence. Number four, Tagging jokes about a guy's wife who everyone else has tagged is not okay. Tremendously helpful lessons if you ask me. That's it for tonight's special report on Hollywood's finest. Will Smith peacefully protested Chris Rock's jokes, Amy Schumer continued protesting actual comedy, and Chris Rock can receive a blow better than Will Smith's wife can give one. Tune in tomorrow night where we'll continue trying to disguise Hollywood's degenerate agenda with praise for their virtue signaling so they can keep capturing your children's minds without you knowing it. Good night! Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, the things you've been missing. 
a mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at GrandTheftWorld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.